Joe in Norway. Right, Here we you go. need to press record. Does this look better? Is this... That's better, right? Okay, here we go. Press record. Yes, sir. Thank you. Then you got to make me host too because yes, the sir. chat screwed up. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, we're going to do it. Yes, we are. Somehow we're going to do this. Somehow. Somehow we're going to do this. I don't know how. I don't know how we're going to do this. show hasn't started yet. It is so hot in here and I am not going to run the air conditioner. I'm not. This is performative. I'm going to sweat for you people. Eight hours of sweat. Everybody turn off your air conditioner. It's like Meatless Monday. We can save the planet if everybody just turns off their air conditioner. Welcome to the mop up for August 11th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 90 degrees and partly sunny. Let's look at the weather. A new study from Norway out today says Arctic. The Arctic is melting four times as fast as the rest of the planet. This is a rate much higher than scientists had anticipated. (sighs) Since the start of the summer, 44 billion tons of Arctic ice alone has melted into the ocean, which will have devastating effects on the rest of the world, as evidenced in Kentucky, where close to 40 people have died this month from flooding. On Tuesday in uh, South Korea, nine people died after South Korea experienced its heaviest flooding in nearly a century. 17 inches of rain fell. One part of South Korea got nearly six inches of rain in less than an hour. Now, that is what's going on in South Korea where they could uh, really use, uh, I don't know, what's going on maybe in California, which would be a drought, worst drought in California history. And they're calling it a fire NATO, a brush fire in Southern California yesterday. I think it was in Gorman. Uh, was captured by a Los Angeles traffic copter. He's a reporter for KTLA, and it literally left him speechless. 
or the pot he smoked before he got high left him speechless. Something left him speechless. I'm going to apologize to my podcast listeners. We have a YouTube channel and the Zoom room. I I want you to see this. This is a fire NATO. Listen to the traffic reporter high in the sky. And I think he was high in the sky. I don't know what's going on. Maybe the DEA was burning some California ganja. That's what the Biden administration is doing. They're cracking down on marijuana still. Anyway, obviously, this traffic reporter was getting a contact high off this. This is a a fire tornado. It's caused by intense heat, climate change. Uh, The fire itself gets hotter and hotter. So it rises quickly and then lower temperature fires rush in to encircle it. Take a listen. Look at that. Wow. Wow. Well, dude. Amazing. That's one of the, wow, that is a tornado. It. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) Dave's not here. That is, it really is incredible. Yeah, I know. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Wow. That's California, a fire tornado. Over in Europe, the Rhine and the Danube are drying up. Those are the rivers that supply Germany, Switzerland, Holland and the rest of Central Europe, all the way down to the Black Sea with ships that provide, you know, oil, food and other life essentials. France uses rivers to cool their nuclear reactors, but they can't anymore because the Rhone is now too hot. Uh, Rivers provide one ton of freight each year for every single citizen living in the EU. Not anymore. It's become so hard for barges to navigate these shallow waters. Uh, We're seeing a, a, a rise in the cost of shipping jumping 30%, 30% rise in the cost of shipping in Europe this summer because the rivers are drying up. You want to beat inflation? Beat climate change. Cost of shipping goes up 30% because of climate change. So uh, I'll talk about that later, inflation and how it's related to climate change. We had primaries on Tuesday Congresswoman Ilhan Omar narrowly beat her conservative challenger, former Minneapolis City Councilman Don Samuels, by fewer than 3,000 votes. Samuels is, I think he's 73. He jumped into the race very late, and that didn't give APAC enough time to launch a campaign of lies to distort Congresswoman Omar's record. As we all know, Omar has been critical of Israel's mistreatment of the Palestinians, so APAC must tamper with American elections and spread lies about her. Samuels, who ran against her, challenged Congresswoman Omar because she supported a ballot initiative back in 2021 that would have reorganized the Minneapolis police after the 2020 murder of George Floyd. The initiative was defeated by voters in November. Well, in Texas, Beto O'Rourke is running for governor against Greg Abbott, and people have been showing up to Beto's campaign stops 
brandishing AR-15s, and it's perfectly illegal. They're carrying AR-15s and holding Greg Abbott for governor signs. And as we know, Beto is running against Texas gun laws. His middle name, by the way, is Francis. He is named after Robert Francis Kennedy. He's named after Robert Kennedy. Now, I have my problems with Beto, but he has taken on the NRA. He is, uh, you know, he's in enemy territory. He's in Texas. And he showed up at Uvalde and shouted at Greg Abbott. Well, here's what happened while he was campaigning in Mineral Springs on Wednesday. Someone holding a Greg Abbott for governor sign thought that Beto was being a little bit too performative and bumming people out about AR-15s. Originally designed for use in combat, legally purchased, if you want to, AR-15s, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and take that weapon that was originally designed for use on the battlefields in Vietnam to penetrate an enemy soldier's helmet at 500 feet and knock him down dead up against kids at five feet. It may be funny to you, motherfucker, but it's not funny to me. Yeah, it's the coarsening of our politics, not not the cursing, the, the, uh, the, the fact that cursing seems like the appropriate response now to Republicans uh, is terrifying. You know, I, I criticize John Stewart for using the F word. It gets things done, apparently. Uh, and I hope Beto wins. I, I really do. He kind of bailed on us in 2020 on Medicare for all. He is pretty brave taking on the NRA uh, in enemy territory, Texas. Well, as you know, the four Louisville cops who murdered Breonna Taylor, she was the, I think she's 20, was 26. She was a 26-year-old emergency technician, uh, African-American woman. As you know, the four Louisville cops who murdered her are now being charged by Merrick Garland's Justice Department for violating her civil rights. And I'm going to keep talking about this because it's really important because it delineates how full of shit the Republicans are when they say they're for law and order. They're not for law and order. They're, they're, they only uh, support the police when they kill innocent black people. And we'll talk about that later. I was talking about it on Monday's show. The, the reaction to the FBI and the Justice Department, it's the height of hypocrisy. They're anything but law and order. Well, here's the story uh, about the Breonna Taylor murder. Here's a part of that story the police and the NRA never mentioned. This is important. You should pay attention to the Breonna Taylor murder. Seven armed cops broke into her home. Seven armed cops wearing bulletproof vests. They were plainclothes police officers. Her boyfriend was standing his ground, you know, Castle Doctrine. He didn't know who it was, so he fired a warning shot, hit a cop in the leg, and they returned fire, right? This is really, really important. Stephen L. Carter is a columnist over at Bloomberg. He wrote a really important column yesterday. He points out that after Breonna Taylor's boyfriend fired one warning shot, the Louisville, Kentucky police returned fire 
with 32 rounds and not one of those shots hit the intended target. This is mind-blowing. Read Stephen L. Carter in, in Bloomberg. It is mind-boggling that nobody other than Stephen L. Carter is talking about this. Seven police officers with bulletproof vests fire 32 rounds after one warning shot fired at them, and they didn't hit the intended target. They killed Breonna Taylor, but the shot didn't come from her. Shot came from her boyfriend. 32 rounds. They never hit the intended target. Stephen L. Carter over at Bloomberg goes on to point out that not only did they miss, the bullets went into the upstairs apartment, narrowly missing Breonna Taylor's neighbor. There, there are your seven armed good guys with a gun, right? That's what we always dream of, right? The great marksmen who work for the police. Read this, read this over at Bloomberg. Stephen L. Carter uh, writes at Bloomberg, uh, he offers evidence that police officers in general are notoriously bad shots. He cites study after study that shows police officers when tested on their marksmanship, score as low on average as novice gun owners. When they are in states of stimulated stress, these studies show that the police perform even worse. These are your good guys with guns. He writes, this is from Stephen Carter over at Bloomberg. This is what he writes. Most police officers are poor shots. And then he has a hyperlink to back that up with a study. And when they're under stress, they shoot even worse. And then he has a hyperlink with another study. He goes on to write, and few events raise stress more than facing an armed suspect. One study found, and he hyperlinks to the study, one study found that experienced officers who shot fairly well on the range rapidly lost accuracy when faced with instructors who returned fire, even though the police officers knew the quote-unquote bullets in this exercise were soap pellets. Facing live rounds, one would expect the loss of accuracy to be greater. That's from Bloomberg. That is Stephen L. Carter writing over at Bloomberg, providing incontrovertible evidence that our local police are bad shots, and nobody's talking about this. Well, uh, Senator Ron Johnson, bad guy. He's a Republican running for re-election in Wisconsin. And on Tuesday, this Tuesday, Democrats chose Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes to take him on. Professor Harvey J.K. is from Wisconsin, he supports Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. He'll be on the show a little later. Here is Lieutenant, Man, Lieutenant Governor Man, Mandela ba Barnes uh, Tuesday night addressing supporters after he won the Democratic nomination to take on Senator Ron Johnson. I'm here today to tell you that it's not about red or blue, left or right. It's about those who've been at the top and everybody else who's been left behind at the bottom. It is time for a change, everybody. It's time for us to be represented by people who actually share our experiences. 
I am the proud son of a middle-class union household. And like most people in the state of Wisconsin, I'm not a millionaire. I don't have the backing of big pharmaceutical companies or oil companies. But what I do have is skin in the game. I have the backing of hard work and honest people just like you all in this room tonight. That would be Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes winning the Democratic nomination for Senate to take on Senator Ron Johnson. Democrats can flip this seat. Ron Johnson, very unpopular in Wisconsin. Democrats can flip this seat. Also in Wisconsin on Tuesday, Tim Mickles, a millionaire construction tycoon who was endorsed by Donald Trump, won the Republican nomination for governor. But Robin Voss, the Speaker of the Wisconsin Assembly and the most powerful Republican in the state, narrowly beat off a Trump-backed candidate, Adam Steen, who promised to take back Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes in 2020 and award them to Trump. In other words, if he wins, he lost. But he's still, he's one of those uh, Republicans who... Uh, wants to award the 2020 election, it's not funny, to Donald Trump. Still, on Tuesday in Washington State, Representative Jamie Herrera Butler, a Republican who voted to impeach Donald Trump after January 6, she conceded defeat to her Trump-endorsed challenger. Arizona yesterday had another election, and the infamous Joe Arpaio lost his third election in a row after he went down to defeat in the race for mayor of the wealthy town of Fountain Hills. Uh, Arpaio was defeated by two-term incumbent Ginny Dickey. Arpaio was sheriff of Maricopa County for 20 years, and he is loved by Donald Trump because... Arpaio tortured his prisoners. I remember when I worked on the Dennis Miller show back in the 90s, I think he was one of the first guests on the HBO show because he used to make the prisoners wear pink panties around their face and humiliate them. And Dennis thought, this is, this is how you lower the crime rate by torturing prisoners. In Connecticut's Republican primary for Senate, Trump endorsed Leora Levy, defeated moderate Republican Themis Claritas on Tuesday. All in all, despite a few electoral victories for Donald Trump, it was a tough week for Trump supporters. There was the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and then the FBI seized the phone of Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Scott Perry. They're trying to determine his role in attempting to overturn the 2020 elections. He denies asking Donald Trump for a blanket pardon after January 6, but uh, he did. So it was a rough week for Trump supporters. But there was a glimmer of good news for Trump supporters. There was one piece of good news that will make diehard Trump supporters happy. 
A grand jury in Mississippi today declined to indict the white woman whose accusations set off the lynching of Emmett Till nearly 70 years ago. Carolyn Bryant Dunham, now 88, initially claimed that Till made unwanted advances towards her at her family's grocery store. It led to the brutal torture and lynching of the 14-year-old. The prosecutor said the grand jury found insufficient evidence to charge Dunham. So congratulations, Donald Trump and his supporters. Rough week for Trump fans otherwise. Uh, there was the raid in Mar-a-Lago. And now Donald Trump says there is a rat in Mar-a-Lago. And anyone who's ever stayed at one of Donald Trump's hotels knows there's more than just one rat at Mar-a-Lago. Aides to former President Donald Trump say he's now sweeping for bugs. Unfortunately, for guests, not the bed varietal of bugs, bed bugs. This is the truth. Trump support Trump supporters and Trump properties are notorious uh, for bed bugs. Seriously, if I were one of those FBI agents, I would burn all my clothes. I would. Here's a headline from the Daily News. Trump denies his Doral Resort is infested with bed bugs. If you remember, he wanted to hold, I think, the G7 meeting at his Doral Hotel in, I believe, Miami. But uh, people said you can't bring world leaders there. They'll, they'll come down with bed bugs. And let's see. There's this story. Also from the Daily News, bed bug victim outraged as Trump denies infestation at Miami Resort. And then he filed a lawsuit in 2016. And then there's this story from the insider, Business Insider. Trump said his Florida resort where he wants to host the next G7 had his no bed bugs. But the resort settled a lawsuit over bed bugs back in 2017. Yeah. Well, like I said, not a good week for Trump supporters. The inflation numbers came out on Wednesday. And inflation has slowed to an annualized rate of 8.5%. 8 it's still high, but it seems to be going down. Price of gas is going down. Bad, more bad news for Trump supporters. And all this on the heels of the labor market adding 528,000 jobs in July. And nobody expected 528,000 jobs to be added in July. The stock market spiked uh, and the unemployment rate is down to 3.5 percent despite the Federal Reserve doing everything it can to depress wages by raising interest rates to cool off the economy. The Federal Reserve is doing everything it can to bring the unemployment rate back up. It's down to 3.5 percent. Now Jerome Powell will say he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve appointed by Donald Trump and uh, reinstalled by Joe Biden. Jerome Powell says it's all about inflation. That's the only reason he's raising interest rates. Yes, and he is worried about inflation, but a very specific type of inflation, wage growth. That is what terrifies the bankers, wage growth. Low interest, uh, low uh, unemployment rate means, you know, there's a labor shortage and workers can ask for more money. So they want to cool off the economy by raising interest rates to fight inflation, wage inflation. Now, 
You want to fight inflation? It is. It is a disaster for the middle class right now. As I said on Monday's show, one third of inflation is rent. One third. So, Jerome Powell, you want to kill inflation? Tell Joe Biden to declare a national emergency and announce a rent freeze. Have Congress pass laws that forbid out-of-town investors from going into cities they don't live in and gobbling up affordable housing and then taking advantage of zero rent control laws by raising rents to the tune of thousands of dollars a year. Also, since we're talking about the weather, you can tackle inflation by fighting climate catastrophe. I just talked about the Rhine and the Danube drying up, and that's causing uh, uh, a 30% spike in shipping costs. I'm not the first one to talk about this. Sarah Bloom Raskin said this. Uh, She sat on the Federal Reserve And she said, if you want to tackle inflation, the Federal Reserve has to have a policy that protects banks that support green energy. Sarah Bloom Raskin wanted the Federal Reserve to study how climate change has a direct impact on banks and how climate catastrophe ricochets into all corners of our economy. Biden, to his credit, nominated Sarah Bloom Raskin to serve as vice chair for supervision of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. He should have nominated her to replace Jerome Powell. But he nominated Sarah Bloom Raskin to serve as vice chair for supervision of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. So the banks would address climate change But in March of this year, he had to withdraw her nomination specifically because Republicans objected to Sarah Bloom Raskin trying to make the Federal Reserve go green. You know, Noam Chomsky said of the Republican Party they are a bigger threat because of their their climate change denying they are a bigger threat to the planet than Nazi Germany. That's what Noam Chomsky said. So we can be too cool for school and pretend the Democrats are just as bad as the Republicans. The Democrats are satanically bad, but the Republicans <laughs> are even worse. And, you know, we're, we're in midterm season, and if you If you're patriotic, if you're looking for wins for this country, you have to admit that Biden is putting numbers on the board. Uh, Not great, but he is pushing ahead, at least politically speaking. And I know most of my listeners get angry when I say this, but politically speaking, and that's where we're at right now, we are 88 days away from the midterms. We have a chance to fight it out within the party in the lead up to an election. But when you're 88 days out before the midterms, you've got to accept now what we've achieved. And then after the midterms, we go back to cutting each other's throats. But right now, and I know most of my listeners disagree with me, but 
between now and the midterms, I am willing to acknowledge that Joe Biden is putting numbers on the boards. Granted, you know, many are calling the new climate bill, the the Inflation Reduction Act, whatever you want to call it, smoke and mirrors, but it does have some good things in it. And I want to talk about what Peter B. Collins said on the show on Monday and what Bernie Sanders said about uh, the Climate Reduction Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, So Bernie Sanders spoke on the floor of the Senate to complain about this new climate bill, which is a pared down version of his Build Back Better. He came in at like something $3.5 trillion, and it would have been the most transformative piece of legislation since the, the New Deal. And this new version of Build Back Better, the Inflation Reduction Act, it's not anywhere close to what Bernie wanted. And Bernie is rightfully upset he voted for it, but he's rightfully upset. Bernie says, so I want to go over his complaints. We should air his complaints. And they're all legitimate. He, he says the Inflation Reduction Act is, quote, an extremely modest bill that does virtually nothing to address the enormous crisis facing the working families of our country. He asks, does this reconciliation bill raise the minimum wage? No. I agree. First of all, I would never disagree with Bernie on anything. I'm just telling you what he says. Uh, and he's right. It, it, build Back Better would have raised the minimum wage. Joe Biden promised to raise the minimum wage to $15. Now with inflation, that's not even, that's nothing. People need $25 an hour for a livable wage. So Bernie says it doesn't uh, raise the minimum wage. He asks, does it provide workers the protections they need in order to form unions? No. Maybe we can pass the PRO Act. Maybe. Bernie asked rhetorically during Votorama, quote, does this bill reform our dysfunctional child care system, make it affordable and pay child care workers decent wages? No, it doesn't. Cost something like $17,000 a year for child care. Who can afford that? It's like, it's, uh, Bernie reminded his senators in the Democratic Party that he caucuses with that 60,000 Americans a year die because they cannot afford to go to a doctor. Yet this bill doesn't create what he calls a rational, cost-effective health care system, which guarantees health care for all. He's right. It's absolutely true. Bernie says this bill does nothing for the 45 million Americans who are struggling to pay student debt. Joe Biden, when he ran for office, said he was going to cancel some student debt. He can do it with the stroke of a pen. He doesn't need Congress. Hasn't done it yet. Maybe that's his October surprise. Bernie warned in the Senate last week that 55 percent, I couldn't believe what I heard. He warned that 55 percent of America's senior citizens try to live on $25,000 a year or less. Half of the elderly in our country try to survive on an income of $25,000 a year or less. Imagine, I mean, the average rent 
is 3000 a month in this country. So old people can't afford literally to live, or at least half can't. And uh, his bill, his version of the bill that got passed, Build Back Better, would have expanded Medicare to include dental and eyeglasses. This bill doesn't have it. Is that asking too much for the wealthiest country on the planet to make sure grandma and grandpa have teeth and can see? Bernie says 600,000 people are sleeping on the streets and that 18 million working families spend 50% of their income on rent. And he says the climate reduction bill does nothing for them. His Build Back Better would have addressed that. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act allows Medicare to negotiate with Big Pharma. Peter B. Collins talked about this on Monday. And Bernie agrees with Peter B. Collins. He says, yes, the bill does allow Medicare to negotiate with Big Pharma, but that doesn't kick in until 2026. And then, as Peter B. Collins pointed out, only 10 drugs can be negotiated with more slowly added after that. There is a cap on insulin for Medicare, not for uh, private insurers uh, overcharging people for insulin. For Americans who aren't on Medicare, there's no insulin cap for people who aren't on Medicare. Bernie, and I really wish we could have this conversation, he reminds us that the VA negotiates with Medicare. The VA negotiates all drugs with Medicare, which is why, I'm sorry, the VA negotiates with Big Pharma. It's hot in here. I, I'm not using my air conditioner. The VA negotiates with Big Pharma. All drugs are negotiable when it's the VA. And that's why Medicare pays double what our VA pays for the same exact prescription drugs. Bernie says that if Medicare could negotiate with the drug companies on all medication, Medicare would save close to $1 trillion over the next decade. Why wouldn't the Republicans be for that, right? Don't you want to save $1 trillion? No, the Republicans want $1 trillion to go to the drug companies. But the Republicans keep complaining, right, that Medicare is insolvent. Negotiate all drugs with Medicare, you save a trillion dollars over uh, 10 years. Okay, those were Bernie's complaints about the, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Peter B. Collins on Monday's show pretty much echoed those complaints, and they need to be aired. Uh, this bill does fall uh, short. There's a paucity of funds for a social safety net. But it's being promoted as a climate change bill. Bernie admits that this climate change bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, provides, quote, serious funding for wind, solar, batteries, heat pumps, electric vehicles, energy-efficient appliances, 
and low-income communities who have borne the brunt of climate change, okay? So, and this is why Bernie voted for it. You should just get your news from Bernie. Bernie is like Ralph Nader. There, there are only a handful of Americans in, in, in the arena who you can trust. Just get your news from whatever Bernie says. He, he tells the truth. So I'm reporting what Bernie says, and uh, I'm going to go on here. So I would never, ever disagree with Bernie Sanders. I think he's as close to a political god as he's a miracle of democracy. I I worship Bernie Sanders. His criticism of the climate bill is the following. And I, I would never challenge Bernie. Okay, but. Uh, he complains that big oil will continue to receive billions of dollars in tax subsidies. He's right because he's Bernie. I would not. But I can live with that. That's sausage making. That's how, you know, you, you got to get Manchin on board. Right. And the, the pipeline that, that we're going to expand pipelines for natural gas in West Virginia and throughout the country. I'm against it. But. It's compromise. I'm willing. We need to object to it. Bernie voted for this. Okay. Uh, Legitimate complaints. Then Bernie complains before the federal government could approve any new offshore wind development. It must first offer to sell 60 million acres of ocean. That would be the size of Michigan, he says, to the oil companies for drilling each year you know, uh, the size of Michigan, ocean space each year uh, must be offered to the oil companies to buy, to drill. Okay. Uh, That's 2 million acres of public land as well, right? Inside the United States, 2 million acres of public land must be offered for sale to oil companies each year before renewable energy leases can be approved for wind and solar. I would never challenge Bernie. But I think my my pea brain thinks that it sounds a lot worse than it is because oil companies aren't drilling. That's why oil has gotten so expensive. The oil companies want to return this windfall, which... They think maybe the last they're going to get, they want to return it to investors, the money. They don't want to put it back into drilling. Drilling is expensive and it doesn't always turn out good. Oil companies are finding that by not drilling, they make more money because it creates more of a demand, right? If you don't drill, there's a shortage. You can charge more. That's why the oil companies are recording record profits as I said, drilling is very risky. So I'm not so sure once these subsidies for renewables start to kick in, I'm not so sure that the oil companies are going to risk what's left of their dwindling market share on more expensive drilling. Uh, I hope I'm right. And I uh, and uh, so Bernie says, in total, the bill will offer the fossil fuel industry 
up to 700 million acres of public lands and waters to oil and gas drilling over the next decade. He says, quote, far more than the oil and gas industry could possibly use. Exactly. Far more than the oil and gas industry could possibly use, which means it it sounds a lot worse. I got a bug flying around me. It sounds a lot worse than it actually is. They're not going to use all that land and all that ocean to drill. Uh, again, Bernie, most transformative politician in my lifetime. I would never challenge him. He knows more than I do. So I, I still think this might be a start to reducing uh, greenhouse gases. I think I wish something would reduce this fly that's buzzing around me. Uh, anyway, well, it's midterm season, so I will say that politically speaking, this is all good for the Democrats. Whatever's in the bill, uh, whether or not you disagree with me about the climate bill, it's, it's good for the Democrats because it's something they can run on. Uh, because people who vote for Democrats tend to be ignorant. Not as ignorant as people who vote for Republicans, but ignorant nevertheless. It's important to know, and I'm not trying to be cruel here, but according to the Washington Post and according to Snopes, half of all Americans read below a sixth grade level. Now, you can go high, but you're going to be talking over the heads of most Americans. Uh, most Americans read below a sixth grade level. So voters, right now, you got to keep things simple. They're going to think this climate bill is enough. Whether or not it is... Most Americans read at a sixth grade level. You could sell this bill to them. Uh, and I think you can. So I think the midterms might surprise us. I think the Democrats are going to pick up some seats in the Senate. I don't know about the House, but at least it looks like they're going to keep the Senate. Granted, Joe Biden is still underwater in terms of his approval rating, uh, but there is some legislative achievement that the Democrats in September can run on. It's mediocre, but if you're reading at a sixth grade level, you can be convinced it's the most transformative legislative agenda since the New Deal. Uh, there is, for the first time in recent memory, an industrial policy in the United States, and they're not willing to admit this. We have an industrial policy. Finally, the Chips for America Act was just signed into law. It gives $300 billion to chip manufacturers and research institutions. That is the industrial policy that Keynesians have been asking for for 50 years. This is a, a giveaway to colleges and, and Wall Street, but it is an industrial policy. We've always said before this that America is against 
the government picking and choosing winners by pouring money into manufacturing. But that's what we're doing right now. And and they're saying that the jobs have to be here in America. This is bipartisan. Will it work? Well, politically speaking, does it matter? It's something you can run on. It was bipartisan and it was a flagrant concession from the Republicans that there is no such thing as a free market. It is be- it, it does begin the possibility of a conversation with Americans who read at a sixth grade level that you're being lied to when they claim there's a free market, when the government is pouring over hundreds of billions of dollars into giving it to chip manufacturers and colleges for scientific research, you, it, it should be a nail in the coffin for the argument that there is a free market. There is no free market. We are subsidizing the chips industry to the tune of $52 billion. The free market doesn't exist. Uh, and no equity stake in, the, in these companies. I think an industrial policy, this is the first one, in, I think, in my lifetime, I think this begins a conversation about an equity stake in corporations that the federal government either bails out or props up. And that is the road to socialism. It's not socialism, but if we give money to Intel, we should get some stock in return. I think you can have that conversation now. I don't think you could have had it a year ago. And that is a road to socialism. It's changing the debate. Both sides of the aisle have conceded with this bill, the free market doesn't exist. For a nation of people who read at a sixth grade level, this is a path forward to explaining on very simple terms what socialism for the rich mean. And uh, it's a step towards getting Americans, uh, you know, just it's going to go, this money will go to our schools. So we'll get Americans maybe reading at a seventh grade level. And if they read at a seventh grade level, that means pretty soon they can read at a high school level and they'll understand that if the Chips for America Act pumps hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy, then why can't it also pump hundreds of billions of dollars towards the people who really need it? Like all the people Bernie says are left out of the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a step forward. And it is a bad week for the GOP. It is a bad week for the GOP and a good week for America. You take your victories where you can. This was a good week for America. Joe Biden signed the PACT Act, the new veterans health care bill, which draft dodger Mitt Romney voted against. Here is Joe Biden giving Jon Stewart... Much deserved praise. John Stewart deserves this. I don't like John Stewart. You know that. But you have to. He loves this country and he did something good and we should celebrate him. 
So many of you here today remind us that we have fought for this for so many years. Veterans, surviving families, surviving family members, advocates like Rosie Torres and John Stewart. And John, I want to thank you again. I, uh, I wanted to come up and hang out in the Capitol steps and the Secret Service said I'd be a pain in the neck. They wouldn't let me do it. So at least we did a little video on there. But, uh, but what you've done, John, matters. And you know it does. I, I, you should know. It really, really matters. You refuse to let anybody forget. Refuse to let them forget. And we owe you big, man. We owe you big. So Republicans were against that. This is how you get things done, whether you like it or not. This is the system. This is the system. John worked the system. He wanted to get the, the uh, first responders at ground zero, the health care they deserved. He wanted the Iraqi war veterans to get the health care they deserved. He worked the system. You can stand on the sidelines and snipe, or you can roll up your sleeves and work the system. John worked the system. I wish more multi-millionaire neoliberal hacks like John Stewart would work the system and put some guardrails on capitalism. So uh, he deserves credit. He really does. He, he, I mean, this is monumental. It's not enough, but it's monumental. And it's good for the country because it points out that Republicans are completely full of crap, more so than the Democrats, and they are losing the argument. They have no argument. They claim they're pro-military. They say when they're ginning up a war that isn't going so well, don't criticize the war because it's unfair to the troops. But when the troops come home, they're on their own. He pointed that out and uh, he called them on their bullshit. The Republicans would not sign this legislation to help the victims of the, the burn pits in Iraq. It took John Stewart kicking, screaming, cursing and humiliating Congress until it passed. So we need more people like John Stewart to uh, go to Washington, not as politicians, but to, you know, as gunslingers and, and uh, hold these people accountable for Medicare for all, for the PRO Act. They can also go and support Christian Smalls over at the JFK warehouse up by where Amazon is. Well, I was told, Tucker Carlson, who is the soul of the Republican Party, whether you like it or not? And I really don't pay attention to Tucker Carlson or Fox News, but I do it at my own peril because this is where Republican talking points and policy emanate. I was told Tucker Carlson use this as an opportunity to attack Jon Stewart. And I thought, oh, this must be interesting uh, because I'm not a fan of Jon Stewart. 
And, uh, but he got something done, which is more than I can say about myself or most people. So I figured, all right, Tucker is going to use his, his uh, pulpit to go after John. How do you criticize John? Where's the hypocrisy if you're on the right? You go after John for his union busting activity at The Daily Show. I thought, ah, okay, now I see what Tucker's going to do. He And it's inappropriate. He's, he's going to say uh, John is all for veterans getting the health care they need. But when his own writers wanted health insurance, he was against it because it came out of his pocket. I figured that's what, what Tucker Carlson would say. And then he would probably accuse John of uh, cherry picking who deserves free health care and who doesn't. Right? If you're Tucker Carlson and you want to crap on uh, John Stewart, you know, a good talking point is that this is great what John did, but he should be calling uh, for health care for everyone, not just those who he thinks deserves it. Right. It's, it's great that we're giving soldiers and first responders the health care they deserve, but it should be free for everyone. I figured that's what Tucker Carlson would work with. I wondered how he attacked John Stewart. That's John Stewart. The famous John Stewart looks like a homeless mental patient. He's shrieking and disheveled and very short, really short, too short to date. Was he always that short? What happened? Where's he been the last seven years? If you know, let us know. We want answers. That's all they have, ad hominem attacks. Amazing. Uh, that's all the Republicans can do because they can't defend not supporting the PAC bill. By the way, as long as uh, we're being cruel, Tucker Carlson's mother, read this in the New York Times, left him when he was eight and he never saw her again. Never saw her again. And she had money. And she left him out of the will. It's one thing to have a mother when you're eight die on you, but to have your mother, like Tucker Carlson, had just up and leave and say she hates you, which, according to the New York Times, she said, and she didn't leave him any money. Uh, she wrote him out of the will. A boy never gets over that. A boy never gets over his mother hating him. That's what that's who Tucker Carlson is. His mother was pretty smart. Mother was pretty, pretty smart. How do you get over your mother hating you? you I, don't, I don't like you. I don't want to be around you. I'm leaving you forever. And you never see your mother again. How does a boy get over that? Well, there's one way for a man whose mother hated him to get over it. You create all the love that's missing from your life, right? But Tucker Carlson chooses darkness. He's evil. I believe in evil and Tucker Carlson is evil. And uh, all he has is the, the dark side. You know, John Stewart gets to go to bed and say, I accomplished something. What can Tucker Carlson say to himself? when he goes to bed at night. I got more and more white people to be frightened of immigrants. I'm making sure 
that people from Guatemala come to America and held in for-profit detention facilities. How does he sleep at night? Well, if you're evil, you sleep on 1,000-count Egyptian cotton sheets, right? The people over at Fox, over at CPAC, we, we see it. They never cared about the troops. They love the idea of the troops, but when it comes to actually supporting the troops, no. So the GOP is running out of rational arguments, and this is what makes them so dangerous. This is why the Republican Party, I know you're too cool for school. Both parties are blah, 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 blah. I'm telling you, I have never seen a, a Republican Party or any party in the United States in my lifetime as dangerous as this Republican Party. From the climate change denying to the guns, this is a deranged, these are psychopaths. Uh, they, they, uh, they have a cult built around Donald Trump and Jesus Christ. This is, this is who the Republicans are. It's insane. Uh, well, bad week for Donald Trump. As we all know, the FBI on Monday raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, but he was in Manhattan at the time preparing to testify before New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who is looking into allegations, not allegations, charges that are true that Donald Trump committed fraud by inflating the value of his properties when he was asking banks for a loan, and then he would deflate the value of the same properties when he was avoiding taxes. Letitia James is an African-American woman, so Trump had no choice to accuse her of being a racist. Donald Trump spent all of Wednesday, all day, being grilled by Letitia James's office. How did it go, Donald? Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. It was horrible when other people took the Fifth Amendment. Uh, Trump took the Fifth Amendment, which, according to the Presidential Papers Act of 1978, is the only thing he's allowed to take. I'm sure he took the Fifth Amendment and hid it in one of those boxes that uh, he's hiding from the FBI. Well, the reaction to the FBI's raid on Monday has been surprisingly subdued on the right. Here is Sebastian Gorka. Gorka served in the Trump White House. Before that, he served as an advisor to Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, the, the racist. Uh, here is Sebastian Gorka responding to the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago. Rest assured, this act by the FBI, by Merrick Garland, the DOJ, and the White House that had to approve all of it is a declaration of war against peaceful American citizens, 74 million of them. This is not America. Stay strong, my friends. God bless. Yes, he's also a Christian, just like Viktor Orban, who he used to work for, yes. So what did you say? God bless. Ah, thank you. Very good man. Sweet man. I have no idea why everyone accuses him of being an anti-Semitic racist Islamophobe just because he's an anti-Semitic racist Islamophobe. I mean, just because you're an anti-Semitic racist Islamophobe 
doesn't mean people should call you an anti-Semitic, racist, Islamophobe. God bless. Well, speaking of anti-Semitic, racist, Islamophobes, uh, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon uh, talked about the raid, very low key, just like Sebastian Gorka. Uh, Steve Bannon, he wants to see what the Justice Department has, and he just wants the, the, the legal process to play out. Here is Steve Bannon on Wednesday talking with Alex Jones, very calm and measured. You can tell that the legal system has really tamed both Steve Bannon and Alex Jones. Steve Bannon was found guilty of contempt of Congress last month. Alex Jones, of course, uh, has lost four defamation trials that will probably end up costing his entire fortune. You can tell they have been spooked and, uh, and they are now offering up a sober reflection on the FBI raid. Here is Steve Bannon. I do not think it's beyond uh, this administrative state and their deep state apparatus to, to actually try to uh, work on the assassination of President Trump. I, I, think, I think everything's on the table. I think his security ought to be at the highest it's ever been. And, and honestly, I think he ought to, and I think he should have flown down to Mar-a-Lago this morning, walked out there at noon today and said, hey, I'm running for president of the United States. Suck on that. Well, that was my next question. Yeah. Alex Jones and Steve Bannon. Well, Bernard Carrick was New York police commissioner under Rudy Giuliani, and he was going to be George W. Bush's director of Homeland Security but instead, he was sentenced to four years in federal prison for minor stuff. You know, he pled guilty to tax evasion, accepting illegal gifts while he was serving as interior minister of Iraq briefly in 2004. Uh, and there was an apartment reserved for the first responders at Ground Zero for them to sleep in because they were working 48 hours straight, but they couldn't get into the apartment because Bernie Carrick, the police commissioner, was using the apartment illegally to engage in extramarital affairs. Anyway, Bernard Carrick did three and a half years in prison, and then he eventually got pardoned by Donald Trump. And Bernard Carrick, the former police commissioner of New York City, thanked Donald Trump for the pardon by helping Donald Trump spread the lie that Joe Biden lost in 2020. Well, he's a police commissioner. And here is former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick. Now, here he is talking about the raid on uh, Mar-a-Lago. And remember, he's a former police commissioner, so we should hang on his every word. Here is Bernie Carrick, the former police commissioner of New York City, on Newsmax yesterday. I was in Washington, D.C. I was at a couple different social events, and I heard people talking. They said the Democrats want this guy so bad that they wouldn't put assassination behind it. And, and I'm going to tell you something. They've tried impeachment. They've tried another impeachment. They've tried one investigation after another. This is about one thing. This is about stopping him from running in 2024. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not into conspiracies. I'm not into anti-government rhetoric. Sure. This is the first time in my lifetime that I would say I am deathly afraid for Donald Trump. I would not put assassination 
behind these people. So I'll move on. But you have to know that Donald Trump studies Hitler. He there's a new book out. It's not funny where he screams at General Kelly. You know, why can't I have the same generals Adolf Hitler had? This is this is what he actually said. I want the same generals that Hitler had. He studies Hitler. Uh, Bannon studies Hitler. Read about Ernst Röhm in the SA. The the Nazis, when uh, Hitler became chancellor, feared for his life and they needed a palace guard. They needed his own private security operation. That was Ernst Röhm and the SA. And it was von Papen, who I think was vice chancellor, he agreed to absorb Hitler's SA into the German police, uh, uh, into the German army. And all of a sudden, Hitler had his own police. If you don't think this is what Steve Bannon, Bernie Carrick, Donald Trump are thinking of, yeah, it's crazy, but they're crazy, just like Hitler. They're, they are saying they fear for Donald Trump's life. They can't trust the DOJ to protect him. They want to clean out the FBI. They are going to create their own army of loyalists. Yes, it's crazy. This is what they're planning. If you don't think the midterms are important, you're, you're not paying attention. You know, I want Medicare for all. I do. But life happens. Uh, we're not going to have Medicare for all uh, if Donald Trump and the Republicans take over. Uh, and I'm sorry. I, I know my listeners disagree with me. I'm going to get tons of mail complaining that the Democrats are just as bad they're bad, but they're not just as bad. Well, over at Fox News, Jesse Waters, being the responsible journalist he is, he had a calm, clear-headed conversation with the equally thoughtful Senator Lindsey Graham about the Mar-a-Lago raid. What? These people are out of control, Senator. This country yeah. is at, like, well, we're on the edge of a cliff, man. I'm telling you, this country is at the edge yeah. of a cliff here. Yeah, no, I got you. I understand exactly what you're saying. Mm hmm. Here is uh, Sean Davis, the CEO of The Federalist. It's a website and a magazine. Here he is on Fox News the next day. Pay attention to his dog whistles, right? Well, I think it's a declaration of war against the American uh, public, uh, against the half of the country, if not more, that doesn't want to be ruled by a, a bunch of corrupt oligarchs. It's easy to look at what happened and say, oh, it's just about Trump. It's just about, you know, Donald Trump. And, you know, he's kind of different. It's not about anything else. No, this is about the, the ruling elites, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, the oligarchy, deciding that it is up to them to pick who we get to vote for and that it's up to them to decide who gets to be on the ballot when Republicans vote. 
This was a declaration of war against the American public for having the audacity to think they get to decide who represents them, because it is obvious what this was about. This was about disqualifying Donald Trump from ever running again. This is their kill shot uh, to take out Donald kill Trump's shot. political career. And unfortunately for them, I think it's going to backfire, but that's not going to it's not going to undo the damage that they've done uh, with these Stasi tactics. No, and, and the damage won't require a conviction. Stasi tactics. They're now comparing the FBI to East Germany's secret police, the Stasi. By the way, uh, the Federalist uh, has been accused of spreading misinformation about COVID and climate change. Google threatened to demonetize the Federalist for posting fake information about black crime in America. And when workers at the Federalist wanted to go union, the National Labor Relations Board stepped in and accused the Federalist of unlawful threats. They challenged that, the Federalist did, and the NLRB's ruling was upheld on appeal uh, inside a federal court. Anyway, uh, Sean Davis, CEO of the Federalist, says the FBI is like the Stasi, but Congresswoman Lauren Boebert disagreed with Sean Davis for comparing it to the Stasi. This is Gestapo crap, and it will not stand. Yeah, it's Gestapo crap. Uh, I'd go with Gestapo. Stasi is a little too inside baseball. Lauren Boebert, Congressman Lauren Boebert from Colorado, loves her guns. She refuses to go through the congressional metal detector. But it's not like people on her side are using dog whistles to encourage people to uh, take their arms and uh, use them. It's not like Sean Davis, the CEO of the Federalists, is using dog whistles to incite violence. This is their kill shot. This is their kill shot. This is war. Look, I get it. People love America and they're hurting. And seeing a president's estate raided this way, well, here's Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn. I think that there are a lot of questions that we justifiably have, and we want answers because if the FBI can do this to President Donald Trump, they can do it to you. And the American people know that. All right. How come when a police officer uh, leans on George Floyd's neck and kills him, nobody in the Republican Party says, if Derek Chauvin can do that to George Floyd and get away with it, he can do that to you. How can we never hear that on Fox News? But somehow we're supposed to relate to a psychopath, a, a, a liar, uh, like Donald Trump. Interesting. Well, Jesse Waters summed up the pain we're all feeling. Yeah, I feel violated. The whole country feels violated. Yes, we, we feel violated. He feels violated. Jesse Waters, by the way, got his start working for Bill O'Reilly. And if anyone knows what it means to feel violated, it's someone who worked for Bill O'Reilly. We're talking $50 million in NDA violations there alone. Well, here is Jesse Waters. Ever seen the base more angry? I'm angry. I feel violated. The whole country feels violated. It's disgusting. They've declared war on us, and now it's game on. They've declared war on us, so it's game on. So it's just a game. Okay, that's reassuring that, you know, the midterms are coming up. It's a game, game on. Just a game. It's just a game. Okay, game on. Here is Dinesh D'Souza. He pleaded guilty in federal court 
to one felony charge of making illegal campaign contributions a few years ago. He had to do eight months in a halfway house. He was put on five years probation. He had to pay a $30,000 fine. And then Donald Trump uh, pardoned him. Here's his tweet after the raid. The FBI, an organization set up to fight organized crime, has become the most powerful organized crime syndicate in the world. We now need to carry the fight against organized crime to its logical conclusion, shut down the FBI and prosecute this gang of dangerous criminals. Hmm. This is what you do if you're planning to create your own secret police force. I'm not a fan of the FBI, but I'm not a fan of right-wing charlatans like Dinesh D'Souza encouraging Steve Bannon, Alex Jones and Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Bernard Carrick to create an extrajudicial police force and have it absorbed into our government, which is what they're planning. Wendy Rogers from Arizona says, I'm looking forward to November 2022. This is what she tweeted. And 2024, when we will have landslide victories against the Marxists, I wish. Are there any Marxists in the Democratic Party? She says, the Marxists who hijacked our government, where? She says, we need many arrests, tribunals, and tough constitutional punishment for the treason that has continued to take place. When that day comes to reign in our government, we must drastically reduce the FBI, the Justice Department, and the IRS. Yes, the IRS. That's her real job, is to shut down the IRS. That's what the rich are paying her to say. Get rid of the IRS. Uh, Ronnie Jackson, Congressman Ronnie Jackson, who was Donald Trump's personal physician, uh, he was known as the Candy Man. He gave that provigil and ambient to anybody who wanted it at the White House. Now he's a uh, congressman from Texas 13, Republican. He tweeted, they've declared war. Now they're seizing the phone of a sitting member of Congress. The regime grows more tyrannical every day. If we don't win and win big in November, our country as we know it will cease to exist. This is Lauren Boebert. Rebel, she's quoting Thomas Jefferson. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. She's basically saying that Thomas Jefferson is giving you permission to take arms against your government. Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be speaker, Republican congressman from California, you know, on the phone on January 6th, screaming at Donald Trump, but still his lapdog. He was infuriated that the FBI raided Donald Trump's uh, residence. And it's not just me saying this. You've got the Democrat former governor of New York, Cuomo, upset about it. You've got the Democrat who ran for president, Yang, upset about it. I think every American should be upset about this. Well, Andrew Yang is not a Democrat. He's left the Democratic Party to form forward. Andrew Yang is, is not a Democrat and he's a, an idiot. And Andrew Cuomo uh, has grabbed uh, almost as much pussy as Donald Trump is and uh, obviously would, because he had to step down as governor, would uh, not be too sympathetic to the FBI 
as well. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Alan Dershowitz. Again, I have a YouTube channel. You have to see this. Uh, this is Alan Dershowitz. I don't know where he was. He's, I guess he's in Martha's Vineyard. And I, don't, I think he was on Newsmax. Here he is defending Donald Trump. They don't want a different rule for Hillary Clinton and Sandy Berger on the one hand and President Trump on the other hand. They want to see equal justice under the law. Right. And I want to see equal teeth under your gums. Look at this. I mean, my God. Look, that, that, that's Alan Dershowitz's mouth. I mean, he's gone full MAGA. This is the Harvard-educated professor Alan Dershowitz trying to appeal to Trump's supporters by removing one of his teeth. You would think Alan Dershowitz could get his teeth fixed. I'm not trying to be cruel here, but Alan, wow. By the way, Sandy Berger, who we mentioned in 2005, was fined and sentenced to two years of probation. Plus, he had to do community service uh, for unauthorized removal of classified material from the National Archives. He, he got, he had to, he was a victim of justice, uh, Mr. Dershowitz. He also gave up his license to practice law. That is Alan Dershowitz. Uh, wow. Well, the uh, GOP... I can't get over that. I mean, these are crazy people. I, we're talking about multimillionaires who can afford to go to a dentist. Uh, I, I'm not making fun of poor people who can't afford teeth, but Alan Dershowitz can afford teeth. These are, this is, these are demented people. Well, the GOP loves the police. They support any Supreme Court nominee who wants to give the police more power when it comes to a legal search and seizure. This is the Republicans since the 60s have always said, if you're innocent, then you shouldn't be afraid of the police. No concern for the police. But here is Senator Rand Paul suddenly worried about our police. No, people distrust so much the government that we've gotten to the point where for example, do I know that the boxes of material they took from Mar-a-Lago, that they won't put things in those boxes to entrap him? How do we know? Their lawyers weren't allowed to see the boxes go. They weren't categorized. That's going to be a problem. Thousands of documents were taken. Yeah, mm -hmm. how do we know that they're going to be honest with us about what's actually in the boxes? How do mm -hmm. we know that was in the box before it left the residence if the lawyers weren't allowed to see everything? So, you know, they've lost a great deal of trust, and it's... Uh, it's amazing. We didn't hear this when uh, George Floyd was murdered, but somebody raids, the FBI raids Donald Trump's house, and all of a sudden we hear about the dirty cops. Interesting. Here is Jesse Waters shitting on the police, shitting on the FBI while Senator Lindsey Graham just sits back and listens. This is the third election. We know they well, doctor Jesse, evidence. We know they yeah. plant evidence. Yeah, sure. We know they hide yeah. evidence. We know they lie. We know they leak. I mean, this is not anything new. This has been this has been years they've been doing this. We can't just say, oh, yeah. you know, we're waiting for the guy to come out and, and give a statement about what is predicated. I mean, what? 
These people are out of control, Senator. This country yeah. is at, like, well, we're on the edge of a cliff, man. I'm telling you, this country is at the edge yeah. of a cliff here. Yeah, no, I got you. I understand exactly what you're saying. Right, but when Black Lives Matter says that, it's, you know, why do you hate the cops? Well, all this trashing of the police even got Fox and Friends's Steve Ducey spooked. Here he is questioning Steve Scalise. He's the Republican House whip. The FBI, with 35,000 uh, members, you know, now they are apparently are receiving a lot of specific field agents are receiving specific death threats because... There are a number of people online and elsewhere who are demonizing the FBI and some Republicans. Paul Gosselaar, a Republican in Paul your caucus Gosar. from Arizona, said we must destroy the FBI. We must save America. I stand with Donald Trump. Marjorie Taylor Greene says defend the FBI. I'm just curious. Defund the whatever FBI. happened to the Republican Party backing the blue and in particular the 35 members of law enforcement, federal law enforcement at the FBI? Yeah, and frankly, we're, we're very strong supporters of law enforcement, and it concerns everybody if you see some agents go rogue. And if you see an agency that doesn't have the right checks and balances at the top, this is coming Steve, from the who top. Steve, who went rogue? Who went rogue? They were following a search warrant. We want to find that out. We want to find that out. And that's why we're asking these questions, because... It, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene said defund the police, not defend. And it's Paul Gosar from Arizona who helped uh, orchestrate the Stop the Steal rally, and he requested a blanket pardon from Donald Trump, which is why Paul Gosar wants to destroy the FBI. Where is this heading? Am I being an alarmist? Am I just, is this confirmation bias? Am I just looking for little clips of Republicans threatening violence? Uh, Where's this heading? Civil war? Anthony Sabatini is a member of the Florida House of Representatives from the 32nd District. He's a Republican. He is a candidate for uh, the House of Representatives. He wants to go to Congress. He wants to represent Florida's 7th Congressional District. This is Anthony Sabatini. Uh, he's a lawyer and he served in the National Guard and this is what he told Stu Peters. Uh, this was an interview he gave after the raid on uh, Mar-a-Lago. This, uh, this is what he said. That's using nullification, using the 10th Amendment to say if a federal agency is operating and performing so-called law enforcement functions, which is what they're pretending what they, it is that they did when they raided Mar-a-Lago, they have to gain state permission. If they do not do that, we should treat them as trespassers and arrest them. If the FBI is going to try to haunt uh, Donald Trump and arrest him at Mar-a-Lago, which I believe they're going to try to do in the next few months if we, if we don't stand up, we need to physically prevent these rogue federal agencies from doing that. And that means using our law enforcement. If we don't have agents that are willing to do that, recruit new ones. But use the state power against federal power. It's obvious. So if... So when they say civil war, again, this is a low level candidate for Congress, but he does serve in the Florida House of Representatives. 
he's talking about nullification. This is what Calhoun talked about. He, he was the vice president under Jackson, and he quit uh, to nullify federal law to protect slaveholders. They're using the term nullification. Uh, he is literally talking about sedition. He is calling for the police in Florida to take arms against the federal government. He says, if they won't do that, then we have to create our own police force, which, by the way, Ron DeSantis, DeSantis, has talked about creating his own personal police force, right? And uh, so he's talking about state police taking arms against the federal government, which, according to the 14th Amendment, would disqualify him from holding elective office. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits those who engage or threaten to engage in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, those who give aid or comfort to enemies of the United States government, cannot serve in that government. That's in the 14th Amendment. Section 3, Anthony Sabatini who's running for Congress in Florida, sure sounds like he's encouraging local police to take arms against the federal government. Here is what he said yesterday. Uh, he gave an interview to a Florida newspaper. He says, Sabatini got the FBI like a fish, and he is holding an AR-15 there's a photo of him holding an AR-15, pointing it at a sign that says Democrats' radical agenda. This is very dangerous. This imagery is very, very dangerous. Uh, this is an interview that uh, Congressman Sabatini gave with the Florida Standard. I'm going to uh, wrap it up, but uh, I'm just going to read what he said. They asked him, what do you think needs to happen in Florida? This is, this is, he serves in the Florida State House of Representatives, and he's running for Florida's 7th Congressional District. They asked him, what do you think needs to happen in Florida? You've stated that you'd like to see legislative changes. He writes, there are two things that need to be done. First of all, we need to call a special session and pass two laws severing all ties with federal agencies. We need to pass a statute that says that none of our local or state law enforcement will communicate with the federal government, assist them, be on task forces with them, give them access to jails. This is incredible. This is obvious and it's perfectly legal under the 10th Amendment. No, it isn't. And needs to happen immediately. The left has created sanctuary cities. They basically stopped talking to ICE. Wait a second. ICE is part of the federal government. They, but he's upset that left, uh, the left has created sanctuary cities that have stopped talking to ICE. So he, see, the Republicans like ICE because they terrorize people of color. He goes on to say the left has stopped talking to the Department of Homeland Security. Well, Department of Homeland Security is one of the biggest police forces in America. It's federal. Wouldn't you hate Department of Homeland Security? No, they persecute migrants. Stop talking to Border Patrol. Oh, they love the federal government's Border Patrol. 
he goes, uh, they would just go silent on federal agencies. They don't believe in sort of like an indirect nullification. He goes on to say, the second thing that needs to be done, which is much more serious but needs to happen, is to pass a law uh, that no federal law enforcement operations shall ever take place in the state of Florida without, uh, I can't read that, uh, express state permission. If we're going to do warrants and whatnot, they have to get permission from the executive branch, the legislative branch, before they commence. This is uh, Civil War shit. Now, he's low-hanging fruit. He may not get... He may not win the Florida primary, but he does serve in the Florida House of Representatives. This is what many Trump supporters are thinking. This is what they are thinking. And it's the oldest playbook, it's the oldest American playbook in, it, that we've got. It's nullification, it's secession, it's the Civil War, and it's racism. You cannot separate this from racism. And sure enough, so this is from, uh, I don't know, I think this is from the Washington Post. Headline, a Florida, a, a, a politician wore blackface to dress as his friend. They call it a silly high school prank. Some Florida Democrats are calling for the resignation of Republican state rep Anthony Sabatini after a photo of him wearing blackface in high school resurfaced this week, an image the lawmaker says is taken out of context. Well, it was taken out of context uh, because it's not the first time he was photographed wearing blackface. There are many, many photos of Anthony Sabatini wearing blackface in college. And by the way, I think he's 30. So uh, he's in the not too distant past. He, uh, you can look him up. He has pictures of him dressed in blackface and brownface. And he was notorious in college for using racial epithets. Can't separate the racism from the fascism and the love of the old Confederacy as manifested in talking about nullification and uh, seceding. I mean, th th this is where we're going. This is where we're going if we don't stand up to these Republicans. I want Medicare for all. I want the PRO Act passed. I'm not a fan of the police. I'm not a fan of the Justice Department. I'm not a fan of the FBI. I don't want the Republicans getting their hands on the FBI and the Justice Department. You know, there are a lot of things we have to accomplish. We have fewer than 100 days. Right now, the top priority is making sure the Republicans don't win the House or the Senate, then we can go back to slitting each other's throats in the Democratic Party. But now is the time for all good men and women to come to the aid of their party. What makes me really angry, and I'm wrapping it up, this is what makes me really angry. George W. Bush inflicted more damage to this country than Donald Trump did. Like, Medicare not being able to negotiate with Big Pharma. That's George W. Bush. The 20-year 
and counting the 21-year war, the global terrorist war that has killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, tax cuts for the wealthy. He was uh, ran the most homophobic presidential campaign in 2004 in bed with the oil companies. He's responsible for climate disaster. Uh, it goes on and on and on. Lying about weapons of mass destruction. The worst president this country has ever had. Worse, worse than Donald Trump. He was worse than Donald Trump because he was able to work the system. He worked the system, but Donald Trump will destroy the system. There's a difference between working the system and destroying the system. And this is what makes me so angry. This is what makes me so angry. In our nation's 246 year history, there has never been an individual who is a greater threat to our republic than Donald Trump. He tried to steal the last election using lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. He lost his election and he lost big. I know it, he knows it, and deep down, I think most Republicans know it. Lynn and I are so proud of Liz for standing up for the truth, doing what's right, honoring her oath to the Constitution, when so many in our party are too scared to do so. Liz is fearless. She never backs down from a fight. There is nothing more important she will ever do than lead the effort to make sure Donald Trump is never again near the Oval Office. And she will succeed. I am Dick Cheney. I proudly voted for my daughter. I hope you will too. I'm Liz Cheney and I approve this message. This is what makes me so angry. I hate Dick Cheney. I hate Liz Cheney. Dick Cheney and George W. Bush are the worst presidents and vice president we've ever had in America. They are singularly responsible for the financial crisis. I forgot about that. I mean, we all know, Katrina, we all know how bad they were. Donald Trump doesn't even come close to how bad uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were for this country. The difference is they, and they stole the election in 2000, right? Horrible. They worked the system. Donald Trump will destroy the system. His people will destroy the system and there'll be no coming back from it. Donald Trump is a wrecking ball. Even with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, the worst, there was still an opportunity to come back from the damage they caused. These people, Gorka, Giuliani, Carrick, Fox News, they want to bring a wrecking ball to the entire system. And the only people who benefit will be the rich, white people, and Christians. God help us. God help us if these people succeed. Vote in the midterms. Uh, I can't stand Nancy Pelosi. I can't stand her. 
I want the Democrats to keep the House. We'll be back with Professor Ben Burgess after some new music from Professor Mike Steinel, Turtle.
You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And don't forget, every Friday night, it's office hours, 8 p.m. Go to my website right now to get your link. It's a great community, and we did a great job last weekend raising money for somebody who had some medical expenses. And, you know, it would be nice if we had Medicare for all. We don't. So we have to take care of one another. And uh, we took care of somebody. We didn't, it's not, you know, not uh, we, a Band-Aid. We provided a, uh, a Band-Aid. Professor Ben Burgess teaches at Morehouse and at Rutgers. He's a hype man for Starbucks unionization, and he's host of Give Them an Argument. Please welcome the hypercaffeinated spokesperson for Amazon workers, Professor Ben Burgess. Hello, Professor. Can you unmute? Now I can. Hello, comedian. So let's plug uh, your writing. You're a columnist over at Jacobin. You're also a columnist over at uh, the Daily Beast, and you write over at The Nation. What is your most recent piece? Uh, I think the most recent one is from, uh, there's one for Jacobin that hasn't been published yet. That's I think probably coming out tomorrow about the Kansas abortion vote, but the, uh, the last one I think is the one that came out on Sunday there, uh, which is called three years after his uh, Zizek debate, uh, Jordan Peterson somehow knows even less about Marx. <laughs> has it been three years? It seemed it like has, it was yeah. 10 years ago since Zizek uh, de- de- defeated Peterson. How is Jordan Peterson doing? Is he still as big <laughs> as he was? Uh, you know, I think he, I mean, look, I don't know that he's thriving as a person, you know, between, um, uh, you know, rehab and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think he what does, kind of unfortunately. Did he what, what, what did he go into? For what? Uh, for, for benzo addiction. And that would be speed? Yeah, basically. So he uh, um, he had, uh, so yeah, he there was a whole big saga where he was in, uh, uh, he wanted to do a, like a deuce coma to like somehow to help with the withdrawal and uh, they wouldn't do that for him in Canada. So he was, uh, I think he actually did that in like Russia. You know, this is all obviously really? a while ago. Uh, and then he was in um, back in the United States and then he was at rehab in Serbia for some reason. And then, uh, and then his, uh, and this is this is all like pre-vaccine, you know. The um, uh, then he got and, COVID possibly because his daughter Michaela was uh, like hanging out at nightclubs, you know, posting pictures of it, being like, oh, "I'm not too worried about COVID," you know. So, right. Uh, so yeah, he's uh, you know. So I, I don't know that he's exactly. Been how does he? How does he square uh, his talk about personal responsibility? He's written books about how to be a man, and. How does he square his personal life with his teachings? That is a really fascinating question. Um, 
I because uh, he is know. a scold, and, 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 and I should say to be sorry, somebody's corrected me in the uh, in the chat. Uh, the I, I only vaguely know what benzos are, but that's the uh, kind of the opposite of speed. It's a uh, uh, so they uh, they work to. Uh, uh, Andy Brown is our is the pharmacist for our community. There we go. Yes. <laughs> so, Whatever you need, uh, he's our he's our Doctor Jackson. Yeah, fair enough. We call him uh, the, can- the Candy Man. But yeah, in any case, uh, but yeah, it's a doubter. Uh, but no, look, I don't know. Um, I I have no idea how how fully he's uh, he's addressed the uh, the obvious uh, his obvious inability to take his own advice there, um, and you know, but he that doesn't seem to stop him from giving it, and uh, and he's still at it, and he does still sell a lot of books and. Um, He's uh, he's moving over to uh, Ben Shapiro's media outlet, The Daily Wire, um, and uh, and he's he still seems to have quite a following. And I perked up when I saw that he had for the first time, I think, uh, since 2019 with Slavoj Žižek, uh, he had um, you know he had a conversation with a leftist, uh, as uh, Kyle uh, Kyle Kalinsky. And so I watched it. I was, I was very curious about how this would go. And it's, it's again, it, it seems to me that, so, that somehow in the last three years, between one thing and another, he's actually forgotten some of what he knew in 2019. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's that bad, right? I mean, in 2019, uh, famously, he, uh, he said that uh, he didn't read any of Zizek's debate, uh, books to prepare to debate him because, you know, I don't know, they were, uh, he didn't have time or whatever. Um, but, uh, but he did go back and read the communist manifesto. Cause he says, ah, you know, I figured that's, I'm not going to try to do the Jordan Peterson accent, but said that's where the, uh, that's where the trouble started. And, uh, he casually admitted that it was the first time he'd read it since he was 18 years old. Which, if ever, if ever. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not sure how carefully he read it even in 2019, but, uh, by his own account, that would be 40 years since he'd read it, which is pretty amazing because because uh, he he constantly brings up you know Marx and Marxism you know he he goes on and on and on about the evils of these you know he blames Marx's ideas for everything from uh, the allegedly corrupted influence of postmodernism on Western society to the you know Khmer Rouge to etc right to every for everything and this is one of his big themes even in his self help book Twelve Rules for Life there are surprisingly extensive rants about Marx and Marxism so that itself was pretty striking. That it's uh, that he's talking about this, um, that he's admitted that it's been, you know, assuming that he's even telling the truth about this, that it was 40 years. It was already his late 50s when he debated Slavoj, right? So it was, it's been 40 years since he'd even bothered to read the Communist Manifesto. So I think it's fairly safe to say he wasn't thumbing through uh, the discussion of the fallen rate of profit in Capital Volume 3 in that time. You know, that that's that, you know, that's what he's read. And it seems to me, watching the Kalinsky debate, there's this really striking moment where Kalinsky asks him, well, just out of curiosity, are there any of Marx's ideas or any of his critiques of capitalism you see any merit to? And Peterson thinks about it. He says, well, it's not wrong that capitalism produces inequality. And uh, that's something to be concerned about. But this has always been noted. It quotes the Gospels, the poor have always been with us, which parenthetically, I wonder if Jordan Peterson thinks that capitalism existed at the time of the Gospels. But, uh, but he says, but, you know, but it's absurd for Marxists to talk as if, you know, capitalism is the only system 
that produces inequality. It's not, you know, in fact, it's the difference between this and previous systems. It's not that it uniquely produces inequality. It's that it includes this, you know, it's that produces this great level of, you know, material prosperity, you know, that there's all this development and thought, yeah, he's, he's forgotten his 2019 skim of the communist manifesto because the first sentence of the first chapter of the communist manifesto, the thing about specter haunted Europe, that's the introduction but the first sentence of the first chapter is uh, all hitherto existed history is the history of class struggle. And, he st- and Mark starts talking about slaves and freedmen and lords and serfs and all this stuff, right, about pre-capitalist class struggle. So Marx is very aware that uh, capitalism isn't unique in producing inequality or even class inequality. He's also very aware that the effect of capitalism is to develop the productive forces of a society way past where they'd ever been developed before. In fact, that's his whole point, right? The reason why Marx doesn't agree with the you know, uh, gospel you know, that the uh, poor will always be with us is says that capitalism has finally sort of uh, advanced the productive forces of society to the point where it would be possible to have a more um, – you know, not that Marx would put it this way, but you know, it'd be possible to have a more humane and egalitarian economic system without it just being all, everybody sharing out a few crumbs, right? That you know, that now we actually have enough to go around that we could have uh, a democratic and equal um, economic system without that leading to disaster, because because uh, we have um, we have enough to go around that you know that uh, we don't have to force people either in the sort of old slavery or feudalism way or through the soft coercion of economic necessity, you know, to submit themselves to, to the rule of other people, right? That's Marx's, you know, that's the sort of core of Marx's critique of political economy, which, you know, you could agree with or disagree with, of course, right? I mean, these are all incredibly controversial ideas, but if you're going to express as much interest as uh, Dr. Peterson does in critiquing them, it would be nice if he looked into what they were. Right, right. So you teach political philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I teach philosophy classes that has included a political philosophy component. Certainly not just that, but yeah. Help me out here, because I don't know. Like, you you forget more in a minute than I've ever learned. When we've been told, if you bring up Nazi Germany, you've lost the argument. Uh-huh. So... so we're not allowed to bring up Nazi Germany. Meanwhile, they keep calling the left Marxists. I'm wondering where these Marxists are in the Democratic Party. I, I don't see them. No, certainly not. I mean, this is. Um, I'd I mean, like to. Have, I'd like to see. Sure, a, a, sure a that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, no. So but do you we get don't. to? So let me, I mean, you let me, barely see any moderate social democrats. Like there, there, there are there are only a few of them, and they're pretty embattled. Help me out here in terms of labels. If they get to call us Marxists, uh, why can't we call them Nazis? Yeah, in, I mean, in look, all seriousness. But, Anybody could say anything they want. I mean, I'm not sure how helpful it is. I mean, but, before but, I came but ideologically, on, historically, yeah. I mean, it, before I came on, you were talking about um, you uh, you played a uh, an ad uh, recorded by friend of show Dick Cheney, uh, where um, you know he's uh, he's talking about the the unprecedented uh, you know danger you know posed by by Trumpism, and I mean, like thinking about what's wrong with that ad. Uh, kind of gets me to why I'm a little bit leery about that stuff. 
because look, I I'm you know I I'm a uh, uh, I'm a big I'm a big old sellout cuck who will vote for Democrats, right? You know, yes. like I I think that they I think there are differences that matter. Um, you know, I know a lot of people on the left don't want to hear this, but I mean, like I think that tell um, me about it. I, I, that's all I. If you think that the uh, if you think that the that it wouldn't have mattered if we still had Trump's National Labor Relations Board during this wave of Starbucks unionizations, you you know I think we're paying very much attention to the decisions the NLRB was making during those four years. Uh, I've never met a union organizer who's confused about the difference. Um, so I do think there are differences that matter, right? I, I think it would be bad, you know, if, if the uh, if if. Republicans, you know, retook the House, which unfortunately there's an excellent chance that they will because uh, Democrats haven't delivered on anything, you know. So, well, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, they've they Come they on. have they they have passed a few things, but if you look at the list of things that they promised, uh, a tiny fraction of that came to pass. Uh, what little did come to pass has often been like very ambiguous, right? Like 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 we're gonna give to green energy with one hand to expand fossil fuels with another. I, I went there, over that. There are, there are you, a lot I, of excuse things. me for one second. I, I went yeah. over that at the top of the show. They're 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 offering to sell a lot of land to fossil fuel companies. That doesn't mean, as Bernie said, it's more than they could possibly ever use. Just because you're offering to lease and or sell land to the oil companies doesn't mean they're going to use it. No, but I think that this is um, doesn't mean they're going to use every bit of it, right? But I mean, like, there is a. I mean, I, I also saw Bernie pointed out, right, that there's a reason the oil companies are are celebrating this, right? That they have a that like, it's again that doesn't even mean I'm not even saying that any, you know that like you know Bernie you know for example you know should have you know just opposed it outright or anything like that. I think there's a case that you could be made that like given how dismal the starting point is, right? This is the best that can be hoped for right now. And you can hope that later on you can fix the bad parts. But, um, but you know, but I think we should be real about the fact there are bad parts. I would recommend some of the stuff that uh, Branko Marcetic has, uh, uh, has written about this uh, in, uh, in Jacobin for anybody who's curious. There's always going to be, again, I'm, not, I'm naive and I'm a Pollyanna. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always going to be bad stuff. That's the way, that's the system. I think there's bad stuff. There's bad stuff. I think if there's like, a, I think if there's a big giveaway to oil companies in, uh, in a climate bill, right? I mean, that's like a pretty significant fly in the ointment. Again, you can say overall uh, that, you know, that it's, it's still, uh, it's still more good than bad, or you could be optimistic that, you know, that you, that you think it's more likely that the, uh, that the bad parts will be taken out than that, that, uh, the efforts of fossil fuel lobbyists over the years will succeed in neutering uh, the uh, the good parts, but right, well, uh, let me just address. But, this but, but it is. But it hang is. On, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Ambiguous I, I, result. Oh, okay. I mean, that's just true. And there's also I did just want to say earlier, right? There's a whole lot of stuff that's entirely in their power, right, to deliver that they have chosen not to deliver. Right. That there's a whole lot of stuff that can't actually be blamed on Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. That you know that hasn't uh, that hasn't happened, right? So I think that the all of which is just to say that I think that the fact that you know the Democrats are potentially in so much trouble electorally this fall, you know, I do think that is of their own making, right? You know, now um, I'm you know I'm happy, you know, I mean not happy, but I'm willing uh, to vote for them anyway, you know, hold my nose and you know and and uh, and do what I think I have to to 
bring about the least worst option we're going to get right now. But um, I do think there are real differences. But I think what worries me about the fascism analogies is that like this tends to lend itself towards this picture where it's like, okay, your Dick Cheney's were like pretty bad, right? But uh, but your your new Trumpist Republicans are much worse. And I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I think that like, you know, for example, you know, that, you know, a lot of that ad was spent with Dick Cheney explaining why um, Trump was so bad. It was because of his incredibly incompetent attempt to steal an election. And it's like, okay, but you yourself became pre- became vice president of the United States and, you know, de facto president in some ways because of a successfully stolen election, right? You know, you were just better at it, right? You know, you didn't have to. Well, also because of- Bill Clinton and the Democrats didn't fight after the Supreme Court ruled. Uh, Al they Gore, caved. They caved. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I, you know, absolutely. Right. But I mean, like, I think that the, you know, but, you know, the result is, um, you know, again, it, it was, uh, it was a much more elegant, you know, uh, version of the, of the same thing, right. It was, it was actually successful. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and certainly, and, you know, you talk about destroying the system. I mean, you know, the parts of the system that I'm most worried about, you know, that the parts of the system that I would most like to see go right. Were the parts that were incredibly weakened in the, uh, in the Bush Cheney years, you know, constitutional protections about privacy, about, you know, the, uh, the right to trial by jury, if you're accused by a crime, you know, um, the Patriot Act. Yeah. All that stuff. Torture. Right? Uh, yeah, torture, right? Absolutely. Uh, which, you know, is, you know, by the way, right, I will also say a related point, you know, I think I would, look, I would, uh, I would absolutely love it, you know, and the search, the search warrant in Margalago makes me, makes me think that maybe it could happen, right? I would absolutely love it if, um, if the, uh, you know, if Donald Trump were, were held accountable for some of his crimes, uh, legally, I would uh, I would have to eat some crow because I've said that it would never happen. But you know, I'll wash my crow down with champagne. I'll be very happy, you know, to be to have been proven wrong about that if I am proven wrong. Uh, but you know, but this is this this history we're talking about is also part of why I have such a hard time imagining that happening, right? Because you know, like George Bush and Dick Cheney, you know, they uh, they they kidnapped. I mean, I think that's the only word for it, right? They they kidnapped an American citizen on U.S. soil, Jose Padilla, you know, the alleged uh, the alleged dirty bomber, um, and held him for a long time, you know, without uh, without trial. They uh, they oversaw a system at you know uh, sites around the world where people you know had uh, you know people were uh, were subjected to what in World War II was just called water torture. People had their you know their fingernails uh, you know taken off. Uh, you know, people were you know were were stripped naked and humiliated uh, in um, you know in in CIA cells. None of this was ever very secret, right? And none of them, you know, they weren't punished for that in any way, right? That that's, that just that just happened, and uh, you know, and it was considered a matter of policy debate, and that's that, right? And I mean, like, and this is and that's just the most sort of recent episode in a whole string. Of, uh, of of presidents who've, who've committed high level, like really obvious out there crimes and not been you know and, and not been uh, held accountable for it in any way. I mean, maybe the closest that anybody came to being held accountable 
was Richard Nixon and he was pardoned, you know, and that, that set the, that set the precedent. Right. So I'd love to think that that, that string is over, but I, I, I just, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. All right. We, we, uh, we're running five minutes behind. So I just want to tell the Hirschenfelds, we'll, uh, we're, I apologize. We're running five minutes behind. You teach political philosophy. Mm. Maybe this is confirmation bias. Maybe, okay. the, maybe this is my looking uh, for stuff that isn't there. But, mm. you know, I smell Nazi with mm. this current Republican Party. And I know you're not allowed to say that. And I've been told, well, you've said that <laughs> since you were born. You've smelled Nazi. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm, uh, so. But when when both sides revert to the mean, when, when, when both so when the Democrats and the Republicans revert to uh, their default is it fair to say that taken to its extreme, mm. there is there is an appetite for not so much Marxism, but socialism in the Democratic Party? Is that a fair statement that if you were to ask uh, most Democrats, they don't they don't really want it, but philosophically, they would revert to more state intervention in our economy. Well, there's a big gap between more state intervention and, and socialism. I mean, those are, those are really different things. But, they, but they, they err on the side of regulation, bigger government, uh, guardrails for capitalism, correct? If you're talking about most Democratic voters or politicians here, the, the Democratic platform promise they don't deliver, but they're promising left of center policy that's destroyed by the stuff that they actually do. I mean, sometimes sometimes they explicitly say otherwise. I mean, you mentioned Bill Clinton earlier, right? I mean, you know, he. Uh, you know, he ran on uh, ending welfare as we know it. That was a that was a phrase from his '92 campaign. He uh, he gave a speech where he said the era of big government is over. You know, that's. Um, but that like, was a. Re I'm not defending it, and you're absolutely yeah. right. That was in response to the myth of the Reagan wave. That there was this sense promulgated by the media and the Democrats that. The Reagan revolution has taken hold and Americans want small government. I'm not defending it. I, I, what I'm asking you is. Well, I'm, I'm just saying there have been like because you, you started out saying that, well, they might not deliver on it, but they at least say it. And, it, and you know, just there have been points in the recent past. They haven't even said it. Right? Well, Joe Biden is saying I'm going to be the most pro-union president you've yeah. ever seen. Sure. They're, they're celebrating him as the most transformative president since FDR. So if if you're selling FDR, if you're selling unions, mm -hmm. forget what's actually in the meat. Mm -hmm. It means that you're appealing to uh, Democrats and Americans who believe in a stronger federal government, some cradle 
to grave. I mean, I mean, I think I think it's certainly true that people who believe in those things are overwhelmingly more likely to vote for Democrats. I don't think that the um, I think that you know how much how much Democrats have felt the need to uh, to cater to that. Even whether or not has, whether or not they has definitely has definitely waxed away over the years, right? I mean, like in the Clinton years, they didn't at all, right? And even, uh, you know, even Joe Biden, the current president, you're right. He said things like that. You know, could be the most pro-labor president ever. He uh, he also, um, you know, he also said, uh, you know, he would veto Medicare for all. He also said that you I, know, I know, fundament- I know fundament- but, but- fundamentally nothing will change. So the point is that, like, if your core claim is that rhetorically, at least they're catering to it, even if substantively they don't deliver, I would say that the extent to which they even rhetorically cater to it goes way up and down over the decades, right? But even Obama, Uh, you know, when he talks to Bernie, he'll say, you know, you're a prophet. You you say what we think uh, deep in our heart, but we but in reality, we can't achieve this right now. Would you at least agree that Clinton and Obama and Biden and Hillary appeal to your inner Marxist? No, my those people make my inner Marxist want to throw up. The point I'm making is don't the Republicans appeal to your inner Nazi. That's the point I'm making. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, if you're a uh, if you're a Nazi, I'm sure you see the Republicans as the lesser evil. Uh, they, uh, but um, but do you don't see the playbook. I mean, we're not allowed to compare mm. the Republicans to Nazis. I, I, don't, I don't know who's not allowing you. I see people making this comparison well, I've lost, day, every day. I, I'm, like they say, you've lost the argument. And I'm saying, I'm not arguing. I'm warning you that these people who support Trump are using the fascist playbook step by step. They're already talking now about creating their own police forces. Now, it sounds crazy until it's not. Mm-hmm. No, I, I guess I'm not. I guess I'm, I guess I've kind of lost the thread of what exactly you're saying here, right? Like, is I'm the, saying we should. I'm saying we should be terrified of this Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, I think that the question is like, what should you be worried about? And if the thing that you're worried about is that the um, they'll get rid of our sort of half democratic uh, institutions in favor of just having like um, open dictatorship and, you know, and, and, uh, and round up, you know, distance and put them in camps. uh, Then I would say that's probably not going to happen because it's already uh, happening. That's, that's incredibly, no, it hasn't. I mean, they have a, uh, they, that's probably not going to happen because it would be incredibly destabilizing for capital. I think that it's, uh, I think that like, all else being equal, right? Like allowing people some sort of shell of like elections and free speech and all that stuff uh, creates less instability than uh, than doing without all that stuff. Which is why historically fascism is something that's been resorted to uh, at a time when people are worried, you know, when like the money classes are worried that the only alternative to that is socialist revolution. Right now, unfortunately, I don't think we've given them much to worry about in that regard. I mean, I'd, I'd be worried about Republicans winning, not because of that. Right. But because I think they're going to do the things that Republicans do, you know, when they're in office, you know, which is to say they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to aggressively bust unions. They're going to privatize, deregulate, you know, everything in sight. They're going to have climate policies that kill the planet, you know, and 
and they'll pass they'll pass nasty laws making life harder for members of marginalized groups as a way of appealing to the conservative side of the culture war. I mean, these are the things that Republicans do. And I think that the branding, you know, the branding is certainly a bit different from uh, from the Cheney days to the Trump days. But I'm, I'm less convinced that there's a big there's a core rupture in terms of actual policy goals. OK, we have to wrap it up. Uh, we are talking with Professor Ben Burgess author of Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Next time you come on the show, hopefully next week, we can talk about your work with uh, Starbucks. Well, there's no work, uh, there's no uh, work with it. There's, there's just, there's just been a, you know, volunteer, you know, there's, there's just me, you know, there's just me hyping stuff, you know, at any time I get a chance. But in any case, uh, sounds good. I'll see you next week, David. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, comedian. Thank you. Joining us, sorry to keep you waiting, is Dr. Ethan Hershenfeld. He's a Freudian psychoanalyst. And also joining us is Ethan Hershenfeld, a brilliant, brilliant comedian, author of a, a new book that is, as I understand it, just climbing the charts. Is that correct? It's called Today Is Now. It's published by, uh, well, it's written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin, your alter ego. And uh, how do people- make a few corrections right out of the gate here, if I yes. may. It's not climbing the charts. It's- uh, I'm hyping. I'm hyping. It's just, it's staying. If, I mean- Okay, depending on which direction you're looking from, it might be climbing the charts. If you're looking, if you're looking from below, it appears to be climbing the charts. If you're looking from below and you're falling, uh-huh. then it does appear to be climbing the charts. That's true. But it is on the charts. And also, the other correction I want to make is that that other guy is Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. And, um, what did I say? He's the actual... You called him Dr. Ethan Hershenfeld. Oh, but you know why? Because uh, I, I'm reading the screen and he came. And you know why that is. Don't wag your finger. It's it's not a good look. <laughs> <laughs> Did I screw up? Yes, he screwed up. And there are no accidents. <laughs> as a Freudian analyst. Nobody sent me an invitation for tonight. Oh, my God. Yes. And therefore, I'm on Ethan's dime. Wait, 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 wait. I'm whoa, doing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. For, let's analyze this now. <laughs> let's analyze. Okay. First off, it's a one. Uh, our producer, Hannah, is taking yeah. two weeks off. So, yeah. And your daughter. That's classy. Yes. And so I'm doing everything. Yeah, Although yeah, yeah. Dan, other people are doing other things, and uh, but I sent out the invitations. I know I sent you an invitation. I know that. Okay. David, there's a there's a problem with Zoom today. I tried to send myself the invitation like five or six times today, and it wouldn't come through. So there's a Zoom problem. But for good news, I got my book in the mail the other day. Yay! Wow. Today is now. Today is wow. now. I hope to and, meet in person sometime and sign it for you. Very good. So it's not it's not my fault. I, I would take I, I, I would say Zoom. I, I, there's some kind of Freudian problem with <laughs> with Zoom not wanting you. But uh, first a off, leader, a true leader always takes responsibility for whatever happens in the entire organization. 
Just saying. Right, but it's not my fault. What, 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 what from uh, Goodwill Hunting? Aren't you supposed to tell me it's not my fault and then hug me? It's not. Yeah. That's the the Robin Williams Judd Hirsch style of therapist. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of hugging and crying. I spent hours in in those in those in places. There was never a hug to be had. There's no hugging, no crying. That also they, they're not as hairy as Judd Hirsch or Robin Williams. Robin. The therapists in Hollywood are hairier. And more demonstrative with their <laughs> hugs and tears. That's what I learned. Why are they so hairy? <laughs> it goes way back. By the way, I was just driving by. I was on the phone with, with uh, my father right there. The other day I was driving down from, I went to a bar mitzvah in Montreal. And I was driving back south. And I happened to be driving by Bunker Hill Community College when I was on the phone with Dr. Hershenfeld, and that's the scene. That's where Robin Williams hugs Matt Damon and says, it's not your fault. Wow. That's tell me, shot those therapy scenes. Tell me about a bar mitzvah in, in Mon Montreal. I would assume. It's identical, except Judy, when the Isn't Judy Kravitz, say, doesn't Judy Kravitz take place? Yes. It's Judy Kravitz. It's, uh, it's Westmount, that, uh, that neighborhood. It's where uh, Leonard Cohen is from. Right. It's it's confusing. It's the name of the synagogue is Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom, which is like two names in one. It, it sounds like a, it's like it's like Doctor Benjamin's Institute. It's the New York American Institute of Eclectic Modality Therapy. You can't be both. You have to be Emmanuel or Beth Shalom. Make a decision. It just seems like fence sitting. Like come up with a plan, guys. But it's a very nice it's a very nice congregation. The only difference is it's the same Mishigas. It's God. It's we're this. It's God, you're great. And oh my God, how did you do it, God? You made something out of nothing. How did you you whenever you you raised the dead? You how God, you're just incredible. That's the same. What's different is that when the rabbi, and also it's the same because the cantor at the end of every tune slows it down like a bus pulling up to a stop. <laughs> so the tempo of every song, the tempo, the tempo of every song in the last few measures gets so maddeningly slow. I feel like the cantor should just be able to go like this or like, like make some, they don't have to slow it down. Everything sounds like a funeral. Every, every tune ends up sounding funereal the way the cantors do it. But here's what's different. When they say, when the rabbi says, and now please open up your, your book to page uh, 50, she also says, page 50. <laughs> it's the only difference. It's the, it's the only difference. It's the Hebrew, it's the English, but then they say the page number in French. That's the only difference. But I would think, Dr. Hershenfeld, that if you're French and Jewish, that's a double negative, which makes a positive. So I think it would be a, a great experience. Uh, does anybody enjoy temple or church? Yes. The people who enjoy it are the people who get to bullshit with their friends the whole time <laughs> for two hours. That's you know, the main function of services. It's funny you say that because at one point they did this thing that I know from like, uh, it was like uh, something from a, some sort of, churchy it was a very churchy move when the rabbi said now let's take a moment you know we did a gratitude moment think of something that you're grateful for and then 
turn to someone next to you or behind you or in front of you and say hello and introduce yourself and have a moment. It was very, it felt like church. We had a moment like that when we went to that Baptist church up in Harlem. Right. Remember we went a few years yeah. ago? They had that moment, which felt so revelatory and it felt so goyisha. But then they were doing it in a, <laughs> doing it in a synagogue. So I ended up chatting but Hang on for one fun. second. You're always criticizing your father. Goyasha is a bad word. Like you, you have, I, like I should wrap your knuckles. You can't use that word. In Look public. at my hairy knuckles. Look at this. It's practically <laughs> simian for but, your viewers at home who only have radio. Doctor, no, Goyasha. I mean it in the in the original etymological sense. It comes from the Hebrew word Goy, which just means nations. It's nothing Goy bad about it. It's just the other nations. Means the other nations, but you're right. It does end up sounding like a pejorative kind of put down of the other the other team. From I what I understand, it it, they take it badly. Well, they need to relax. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, Doctor yeah. Hershenfeld, is it conceivable that Jewish people can't conceive of saying or doing anything that would offend Gentiles, that Gentiles would care what Jews think of them. We're so busy worrying about what gen Gentiles think of us. Did you hear about Goldberg and Kelly? They were golf buddies. And <laughs> Kelly, Kelly said, why don't you come join my golf club? And Goldberg says, yeah, yeah, they don't take Jews. He says, we can fix that. You go for the interview. When they ask you, my son does not like jokes. I hate these kind of jokes that begin with a this and a that. Nixon and Carter on an airplane. They make me want to kill myself. <laughs> this kind of structure. It's, a, it, it's, it's deadly, but go ahead. No, I defer. No, I, no you, don't, you can't talk to your father that way. Oh, God. Let's That's, give him time was, out. That was in the old days. Um, this is... This is so Kelly says, when you go for the interview and they, they ask what your name is, you say, Smith. Okay. And when they say, what do you do? Um, you don't say, I work in the garment industry. You say, you're, you're a banker. Okay, I'm a banker. And then when they say, what's your religion? You say, Presbyterian. Fine. Okay. So he goes to the interview. He comes out. Says they didn't accept me. Well, what, what, what do you mean? Didn't you answer? Well, they asked me what my name was. I said Smith. They asked me what I did. Um, I, I said I'm a banker. They asked me what's your religion. I said I'm a guy. I heard the same joke. My father used to tell this joke, okay, completely yeah. different, where it's a, a a wealthy guy on Wall Street, Jewish, moves to Connecticut, wants to be accepted into a country club, and they insist that they have to meet his father. And he wants his father, who's from the shtetl, to pass oh. as a Gentile. So uh -huh. he, he spends a fortune tutoring his father, puts him in a tweed coat, teaches him how to talk with a stilted New England accent, 
and the, the interview is, you know, uh, where did you go to school? And he, you know, he, you know, Eaton or whatever. And, uh, you know, uh, what do you do for a living? I'm a, uh, a, a corporate lawyer. I represent uh, DuPont. And what is your religion? I, sir, am a guy. That was the <laughs> joke that, so that's an interesting. It's an old joke. Yeah. It's a anyway, joke. Let me just let me just say, I, it's a good joke, and you told it very well. It's my and I I, I apologize for being so uh, difficult. Uh, it's the story of my. It's, of, you know what? I'll tell you something. The kind of setup just really kills me. Who I don't know told why. it better though? That's what I'm interested in. Who well, was better, me or David? Oh, you. Well, well, hang on. Now I'm siding with Ethan. The whole thing, by the way, you interrupted me talking about the, the, the bar mitzvah in Montreal. I just wanted to say, I wanted to agree with your point, which is that it is the fun thing about it is the schmoozing with the person next to you. Because when we were doing that very churchy thing of introducing ourselves and saying uh, um, Jesus saves or whatever we were supposed to say, I said, I spoke to a guy in front of me. Turned out he was a, a very interesting guy. A semi-retired lawyer who'd been hiding out in the woods during the pandemic. Very nice guy, good sense of humor. So it is all about the fun in that context only happens for me. I, I find the, the liturgy and all the traditions and the religion and all that just deathly boring, just extremely painfully boring. It's a certain feeling. It's like being in a museum too long. It's that same feeling. Or back in the day, waiting online in a bank. It's that same profound boredom it, that seems like an assault it's an mm -hmm. assault yeah yeah and assault is bad for you it causes hypertension <laughs> dr yeah. hershenfeld my father yeah. had a friend named bob stewart who passed away like eight years ago a day doesn't go by that i don't think of bob stewart and bob grew up in brooklyn and uh from a a much older generation. And he used to tell me that his father used to say to him, it's not so important that I love you. It's that you love me. And I tried that on my kids. Yeah. And Bob said, don't do that. <laughs> don't do it. It's not going to work. Uh but there was a time when, when parents could say to their kids, it's not so important that you love me. It's that I love you. What happened well, to the good old days? First of all, they weren't such good old days. Well, Second, they, that sounds pretty good to me if the kids are afraid of you. The joke on everybody is that everybody loves everybody else. And everybody hates everybody else because that's the nature of intimate relationships. And, um, you know, sometimes one is more in the forefront and sometimes another is more in the forefront. But the basic human emotions, I don't think, have changed all that much. But what is, permiss what is permissible to express has changed a lot. So, you know, in the 1950s, Ozzie and Harriet, 
Ozzy had a suit and a tie, and he came down and sat dinner, and everybody paid obeisance. And you know, I I I can live without that just fine. I I like a little bit of honesty. Just a little bit. Just a little bit in relationships where people can sort of say what's on their mind. And but I'm talking about family. Shouldn't I'm talking about family? Yes, in the family. family. A little fear, just a little, a pinch of fear. Shouldn't the kids be a little afraid of it? it? It's it's there by the nature of the relationship, whether or not it is acknowledged. That's a whole different thing. But it's also there little, just by. Yeah, it's by weight class. It's just like in wrestling. <laughs> yeah, the kids are in the 32-pound weight class and the parents are in the 180. It's yeah. just it's not fair, just purely based on that. <laughs> by the way, I want to say something about uh, with Dr. Benjamin uh, talking about love and the family complex. Love, as he says, is a two-way street, but it's actually a six-lane highway. <laughs> and, and there's... Bumper to bumper traffic, and there's an accident, and there's no shoulder, and there are cops in the other lane. They've stopped traffic completely, and they're pulling with the jaws of life. They're pulling a body out of a, a Toyota Celica. That's the the road of love. Ah, that that explains a lot. It does. And, Very and, we, and you can. Get more of that by going to Amazon, special dispensation, and buying Today Is Now, Now, written by now, Dr. I, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. I'm terrified of my kids, and I blame Freud. I walk on eggshells. I think they somewhere along the line, children were taught everything is your parents' fault, and it's, you know— Go if if it if it doesn't work, go to the manufacturer and complain. Freud never said that that everything is the parents' fault. He didn't say that's been a misinterpretation, and the fear is there, just like the love is there. If you're thirty-two pounds and you're looking up to this guy who's got a big booming voice, you're going to be afraid of him, among other things. But uh, I think it's better that it's not so much in evidence. That's what I would say. And it does not dominate the conversation. I'm starting to think of like who I want to trust with end of life issues. <laughs> I'm, I'm, looking, plug, David. I'm looking around now i'm going "Ooh, this is who am i who do i want to unplug me uh what are you any advice ethan is that that's like the the when they would do those mtv uh concerts it was like uh nirvana unplugged <laughs> this would be david feldman unplugged but it would just be you in a bed and someone unplugging you <laughs> Uh, Feldman unplugged. What are you reading? Um, go ahead. Oh. Uh, go ahead. I, I'm sorry for interrupting you before. Please don't I, let I, me do it twice. God bless. <laughs> God bless. 
Here's what I just wanted to quote Dr. Benjamin again on death. <laughs> the thing about death is that people have a lot of people have a fear of death or a dread of death. But what Dr. Benjamin counsels is just close your eyes and think back to that place of complete and an infinite and eternal darkness out of which you came when you were born. So if you have a fear of an eternal darkness of death that's ahead of you, remember, you've already gone through one of those before your, your birth. So you're not going into some unknown. You're going into the eternity from whence you came. So that's Dr. Benjamin's wisdom on the subject of death. And that insight for a very, very small number of people is actually helpful. For most people, it's just nonsense. But for a very small number of people, it can be very helpful. So hopefully you're one of them. I was Dr. Hirsch. Go ahead, Dr. Hirsch. For many years, my plan was when I get to a certain deteriorated state, mentally, physically, that I'm just which I get to which I get to call. By the way, he's appointed. (laughs) I'm just going to end it. I have a friend who did that, who had a horrible degenerative disease. And she did that, and, and I thought that was that was great. However, you can learn from anybody. I was at my dentist last week, and he told me that his father had recently died, and his father had been gradually demented over a number of years. And he said it was an amazing experience for the whole family to go through that with him, to support, you know, to, to support the old guy, to take care of him, to work together. And we, so we have thought, a lot. We have a lot on our schedule, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I got tickets for I mean, Billy it's, Joel. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds great, but let me just let me let me check my calendar. Uh, <laughs> It, yeah. it if you're lucky enough, yeah, you can repair history. If you're given that opportunity, yeah. you can. Yeah, that's work. what happened between him and his father. Right now, how much it counts because his father was demented. I didn't go into that with him, but he said a, a well, lot. Luckily, got- there'll be another cavity, and we can find out. <laughs> Maybe some. Uh, so, I, I have an end of life plan, which is I might have told you this before, but. My plan is I will be um, laid out on a street, uh, asphalt, and then a giant steamroller will roll over me and flatten me (laughs) and widen me out. And then I will be cut up into postcards and mailed to all of my friends. Like silly putty. Yeah, but just very thin, wafer-like bits of me. And, you know, someone will get this part. Someone will get my foot. Someone will get my nuts. It'll be a whole, it'll be like a little celebration. Right. I uh, want to be an inconvenience. I want to just keep me alive as long as possible. Just drain whatever money I have left I want people to just sit around and and just prolong it. If if I as I don't mind the agony as long as other people 
share in that agony. In other words, like your current life. <laughs> like the show. I want to do a Sonny Von Bulo. Or like a, remember, was it Karen Ann Quinlan who just, you know, went into a coma and it lasted decades? That's what I want to do to people. Yeah. Uh, I want to take everyone down with me. It's totally consistent. <laughs> I'm planning. I'm also planning instead of people, you know, in Judaism, they sit Shiva for you. They do seven days. They sit Shiva. Right. I'm planning on having everybody sit 17 or seven, about 70. I really want them to spend some time. I feel like a week is not enough. What does Shiva mean? Seven. Shiva means it's cold and you're... <laughs> I didn't know. Shiva means seven? Yeah. Sitting seven. seven. That Sitting sounds seven. much cooler. I got to go sit seven. Oh, who died? That 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 is sounds so much. Let's go sit seven. Do you want to hear the fight the fight cheer from the yeshiva basketball team? Yes. What do you do when it's cold? Yeshiva. <laughs> All right. Uh, but do you know? Do you know why we're talking about this morbid topic? Because tell us, doctor. What's that? Yeah, I okay. Said, Tell us, doctor. Between the nuclear plant getting bombed in Ukraine and the forest burning up everywhere and the uh, our Antarctic melting and the Republicans, many of them, and we don't know how many of them are in the army who feel the exact same way arming themselves and threatening war. I think our minds go to uh, planning for the end of days. Right. I think it looks really bad. That's what I think. And what do you tell a patient if things look really bad? I say... Uh, I say... I say oh, you mean... You know. <laughs> <laughs> I say... I say I say, our time is up. <laughs> but in the other sense. <laughs> what do you tell a patient? About what? That, that if, why, when we first met, I said, what, what would, what, you know, Freud, yeah. how many, he was... He didn't leave Vienna to what, 38, 39? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what what was he telling uh, his patients? You're, you're paranoid? It's, you're imagining things? I hope not. I don't think he was. I think he took it very seriously. It was. He said, he said, and I quote, wait here, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, yeah, what, you're a strict Freudian. And you had patience, and it's 1939, and he's off to London. What, what? He 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 and and um, <laughs> Princess Marie Bonaparte, by the way, found the funds to evacuate and the political um, muscle to evacuate him, many of his patients, many of his colleagues. It, but it wasn't easy. He that's real transference when you're evacuating the. By the way, we we have to wrap it up. 
I, I would love um, to hear. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, just very quickly, I want to say that Dr. Benjamin does have a chapter on eco panic, which is the <laughs> subject that Dr. Hershenfeld was just discussed. He he gets into that directly. What what do we do when we have this actual uh, scientific and and correct awareness of the fact that things are just uh, falling apart? So what does that do to our moods, our, our psyche, and and what can we do about that? Today is now. Go to Amazon, special dispensation. You can shop on Amazon to buy Today Is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. I want to ask you what you're reading. Last night, I was reading about Ernst Rome. The, the essay, he was Hitler's private army. Right, the Night of the Long Knives. Yes. That was... I'll send yeah. you this paper I read. He was... It was openly gay that in the early and late 20s, even the early 30s, homosexuality was celebrated in, in Germany. Uh, it was used, his homosexual, Ernst Röhm's homosexuality was accepted by Hitler. And boy, did those guys know how to throw a party. <laughs> uh, uh, and Hitler accepted it, was not critical of it until he wanted to get rid of Ernst Röhm because Ernst Röhm talked back to Hitler. Ernst Röhm was a World War I hero. He was Adolf Hitler's superior during World War I. He would never bow down to Adolf Hitler. And, and there were these, seriously, there were some parties uh, that were getting out of hand. Uh, the SA was throwing violent parties and then there was some pederasty that went on and they they got rid of it. but it, his life it, it's a it wasn't a surprise he didn't keep his homosexuality secret i always thought it was it was out in the open until hitler decided no homosexuality is evil did you did you know that i knew in the weimar republic everything was okay yeah, Weimar. That was, that was like Miami. That was, it was yeah. <laughs> with uh, cold, huh? But cold, but cold, cold, but same amount of Miami, but chilly. Right. Yeah. What are you reading, Doctor Hershenfeld? I'm giving Proust a second crack. All the volumes, boy. Okay, we'll see. And. I have, I'm reading a book. I know the last few weeks I've been saying I haven't. I just picked up a book from the shelves here, this Lillian Hellman memoir called Pentimento. It's really good. It's bizarre. But it's, Pentimento it's is like a painting over a painting, right? Exactly. Yeah, as the paint, as the paint fades and you can see what image was there before uh, the second thing. So it's a kind of memory. It's a memoir where she goes back and looks at these people uh, from the lens of a, an, an older person. Did she show uh, Dr. You know Hellman? What Mary McCarthy said about Lillian Hellman? She said, <laughs> she said every word that she wrote, including the ands and the thes, is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Who slept with Dashiell feels, Hammett? Yeah, that's right. She calls him Dash in this mm. memoir. And uh, it's 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 very it's very fun. It does. Feel, it, I'm not surprised to hear that it was a lot of it's made up because it just reads. It's 
just seems implausible that someone lived this stuff and also remembers it 50 years, 60, 70 years later in that detail. But in any case, it's very entertaining. Pentimento. I recommend everybody read uh, Thomas Childers or uh, Shire, William Shire, anything about the rise of Hitler this summer. We're living it. Yeah. By the way, while you've been on the air, a guy in, in Ohio shot up an FBI office, a right-wing maniac shot up an FBI, and he's been killed. But So the call to arms from Fox News and from all these maniacs, they are heeding the call to arms. So it's already yeah. happening. Yeah. I don't believe that it's going to amount to a hell of a lot, other than the fact that these guys are they're criminals, they're seditious, and they wrap themselves in the flag. They're... Uh, they're the most anti-American. Yes. Uh, and anti-police, obviously. Yeah. Right. This is. Um, thank uh, you. And uh, nice to see you, Emil. Th thank you, Dr. Ethan Hershenfeld. Everybody go by Today Is Now by Dr. Yes. Samuel Benjamin. And stream Thug Thug Jew on YouTube. Great. Thank you. Hysterical. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Joining us is Emil Guillermo. He is host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He is also a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. We're running on, it's a bare bones operation this week. You probably sent me what you wanted to talk about, didn't you? You can talk about it. You know, I'm just happy to be. You talked about death and just talked about this guy in Cincinnati. Yeah, what happened? Uh, a guy showed up with, uh, he had an AR-15, and he was hold, he was holed up several hours. Uh, I heard the news reported that he had fled uh, on the interstate. He was outside of Cincinnati, just south of Dayton. And uh, I didn't get the latest where uh, he was shot. So, because uh, I was getting a piecemeal from different uh, news sources. But the upshot is it is someone responding to the call to arms that Donald Trump in his uh, persecution mode is sending out to people. And, you know, and so we're, we're getting a mini January six and a half or something, you know, where, where people are coming out and, and they are responding. And it's, uh, I, I think this is, I thought that maybe it would backfire, um, you know, if Merrick Garland comes out and, and, I thought he, Eric Garland was brilliant today when he kind of called uh, Trump's bluff and said, okay, I've gone to a, a judge. I've asked him to unseal all these documents, which will show the probable cause, which will show what was taken, which will show, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think we've heard anything from Trump. I was surprised that, um, you know, th that the news came out about the, the shooter. Like I said, it, it was still kind of, um, when I last was paying attention to the news about an hour and a half ago, that it was still like the guy was contained, but it wasn't clear from uh, the reports that I was seeing. Right. But this is where we're at. Yeah. I mean, the argument that I'm saying, I guess there was a dust up between Nina Turner and Jimmy Dore because Nina Turner said something in defense of the FBI and Jimmy Dore went after her on Twitter saying, you're a sellout for coming. Like, you cannot support the FBI. They have a storied history. And, you know, we covered, we all know the history of the FBI. 
Fred yeah, they killed Fred Hampton. They yeah. try to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide. They destroyed the IWW and, and they've spied on communists and they keep files on us. Right. But you can oh, reform, oh, oh. you can reform the FBI. You can well, keep- it changes. It changes with the administration. I mean, they, they went yeah. after Americans. They went after, I mean, Carlos Bulasan, the Filipino-American writer, had a big file on him, um, probably because there was a, a link between Bulasan and communism and or the Communist Party. And that that was enough to get you a file. I mean, at some point, you you know, there was a time when you had to be proud if the FBI had a file on you. Right. But the the FBI going after political, uh, you know, political opponents, it, it, it just depends on who's in charge. It just it varies. And so uh, I thought that what I thought what Merrick Garland did today was kind of like, uh, uh, you know, he beat uh, beat Trump to the punch. OK, let, let's reveal this stuff that you don't want revealed. And let's see. Let's be transparent. Let's see, you know, just uh, what kind of clothes the emperor has. Yeah, because. You know, it's going to all the documents that are there that are sealed will 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 list the laws that that uh, they that the Justice Department believe are are in play here. And also it'll list out all the things that they took. So anyway. And what what could they have taken that would be extraordinary Uh, evidence? You know, it this is. This is the the argument on the right is that, you know, Donald Trump, he could have just unilaterally declassified something because he's president, but he's not president now. And so, you know, there goes that argument. But pretty much that, that that's sort of the, the 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 argument that they're sort of, you know, fostering on 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 Fox right now. But, you know, who knows, really? It, it could be anything. It's not as uh inconsequential as as the right would would lead us to believe it's got to be something i don't think that this is just going to be like a busted taillight mm-hmm. and let's go get donald trump for a busted taillight because you know that they say for people of color uh, this is donald <laughs> trump. well he's this orange is donald, this is donald trump you know but i i just think it's it's amazing you know how many times he said he took the fifth yesterday and uh in fact I I want you know on my column and the Aldiff blog, I I I want to come clean. I don't want to take the fifth. I feel like I have to come clean with something in in regards to the Muslim shootings in in New Mexico and Albuquerque. I want to confess to you, my white friend David Feldman, that when I heard that the Muslims were under attack, I suspected. A young, incel, camo-wearing type person, sort of like you, like you. I'm, I'm, that, I'm confessing to you, my white friend, mm-hmm. and I, I, I felt bad for a second because, as you know, uh, I was totally justified for feeling that. Yes. I was totally, you know, we know who goes out there with AR-15s. We know right. who goes out there and shoots up people of color. But there I was, thinking thinking it was someone who looks more like you than me. And I just want to, well, who, I don't want to take the suspect? suspect. I want to apologize. Who did they, who did they arrest? What, what? They, they arrested a, a Muslim man, a Muslim man, Muhammad Sayed, 51 years old, 
Uh, he was uh, an Afghan immigrant. Well, technically a refugee, but he's you know been here five, six years. So not one of the recent ones. Coincidentally, this is the, I think, the week that most of the Muslim or the Afghan refugees have come, you know, throughout and mostly to America. And some of whom are right there in Albuquerque. So it's a real mixed immigrant refugee community. And, you know, when four people were, were shot and killed since November of last year, they were fearful. They had one shot uh, last Friday and they thought it was like I did someone who targeted Muslims because of a, an extreme xenophobia. And so I, I just wanted to cop to that, that, you know, I took that knee jerk reaction and I thought, I thought maybe you, David, my friend, my long lost friend, you know, might've been involved or someone like you. Someone you have an elevated <laughs> sense of my, I was your, gonna make, your prowess. I, yeah, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. David with an AK-40. No, I, I, no, I, but I, I felt bad and I wondered, am I racist? Am I being racist here? And I was willing to say it out loud, unlike Trump, you know, who's willing to, not willing to cop to anything. He's, you know, denying and lying and taking the fifth. I just wanted to say, maybe that's not right. Maybe I, I, I should be more equanimous and not, you know, jump to any conclusions and just wonder, well, I wonder what Filipino went out and shot the, the Muslim community. I wonder what what other kind of person. And indeed, in fact, it was a Muslim. And I was, I, I have to admit, I was kind of surprised, but really more surprised by my premature reaction. I mean, I didn't go on the net. I didn't go on Twitter and say, hey, let's look for some incel. He's, you know, he's behind this. But, you know. I, I think, though, what happens is we're relieved. You know, it, it's not right. I asked all the white people I know, I asked them if I was racist to think that. And they said, no, I mean, come on. You, you were fearful because this is the pattern that we've established just this year, right? Up in Buffalo, Highland Park. We, we have this. We have this pattern. Young incels, AR-15s shooting up people, xenophobes, racists. They got uh, a manifesto in their hard drive. They've got their MAGA hat on their heads. So, um, but I, I think, all right, so we get the racism out of the way. But this isn't a racist thing necessarily. So now we just concentrate on how does law enforcement, how does law and order apply to everyone in the United States? Everyone, refugees, people of color, everyone. And this is the accountability part. When people talk about, oh, we don't mean, you know, defunding the police. Yeah, we don't mean defunding police, but we mean we got to hold these people accountable. We have to hold the police accountable. And they're not saints. Right. Just like you're saying the FBI, they're not saints. So, right. right. The only solution to all of this is democracy. Well, we sort of have a little bit of it. We're hanging on. Right. right? I mean, this this is the thing. Law and order. Everyone gets, you know, it has the right to be protected, has the right to, you know, public safety. I mean, this is what I like. To, do you know the, this governor in New Mexico, uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham? I don't think she's the mystery writer. She's uh, actually the first Latinx Democratic governor of, uh, of, of New Mexico. I mean, she had some good things to say. She said, everyone, every family, no matter what, you know, what you know, what ethnicity and no matter what uh, the threat, 
you know, you've got to feel like your law enforcement and your 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 political leaders are there for you, protecting you. And th- this is real law and order talk on the realm of what you're saying, democracy versus the kind of fake, you know, uh, Trump rhetoric, which now includes famously the Fifth Amendment. Right. Right. They've really run out of arguments, the Republican. This is what's so scary. They, they have no argument. It's not that they've run out. They've just sort of given up on arguing. Well, they could hide in the past behind the police, you know, support the blue. And, uh, oh, you know, the Democrats want to defund the police. We're all for the police. They've lost that argument. They are yeah. against the police. On January 6th, they lost that argument. And now they've completely lost it. They cannot claim to be the party of law and order and the police. They lose yeah. that argument. They they also lost the argument 20 years ago that they were the party of Christ. Somehow people still believe that. I don't understand. Uh, well, you know, it's a religious right sort of merging in with the, um, you know, the mainstream right. And, and suddenly, you know, you're just, you're amongst each other and you're just looking for uh, people who will help you win. Right. It's like uh, Al Davis when he was uh, the owner of the Oakland Raiders. I know I promised now I wasn't going to mention sports, but it's this just win baby kind of, uh, you know, ethic, which is no ethic to have in a democracy. Great for football, but no ethic to have in a democracy, just win baby. And to see Donald Trump sort of take this right to the hilt and then have everyone just sort of go along. They don't have any argument. The Republicans don't have any argument because in the end, they just want to win and they don't care. So it's it's frightening because if democracy really is the answer, we've talked about having a pro-democracy movement in America, for goodness sakes. Well, we kind of have it de facto or we're sort of forced into having it because we see the Republicans taking it away from us, you know, bit by bit. And it's, it's, it's really heart wrenching. I, 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 you know, you, you, you said, well, the basic thing you can do to stop this is vote and vote intelligently and encourage people to vote. Um, by the way, on Saturday, primary in Hawaii, the most uh, Asian American state in the country by, uh, uh, by not by population, but by percentage. But anyway, that's, that's the idea for democracy. Vote on Saturdays, vote when people have time, they don't, you know, they can just, hang out, cast their ballot and also vote by mail. You know, they, they, they have it. So the people in Hawaii, not only can they vote on Saturdays, but they can vote by mail. And, you know, that that's a real key thing that all the anti-vote people are trying to do. They're trying to get, get rid of vote by mail. They're trying to get rid of same day res- registration. They're trying to get rid of, get rid of everything that makes it easy to be part of a democracy. So, yeah. I'm reading reports that the person they killed not only had an AR-15, but body armor, which begs, oh, yeah. begs the yeah. question, why aren't police chiefs demanding an assault weapons ban and keeping military-grade weaponry out of the hands of ordinary citizens? Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, they let they had the assault weapons ban uh, as a federal law. They let that sunset. And that was all came out of California, you know, in the 80s that stopped in school shooting. 
And, you know, they still have it here, even though it's been under attack and it's been, they've been trying, the, the right has been trying to dismantle it, but we, California still has it. And, you know, hopefully it, you know, that there'll be a version of that once again, that will rise on the federal level, but you're right. I mean, there's no reason to have, uh, you know, assault weapons, make you kill faster, people armed up, you know, with a uh, body armor. Oh, he also had a nail gun. I, uh, recall. Uh, hearing reports he so he was you know he has a uh, you know for the hand-to-hand stuff but this was th- there's a core group of people into that kind of survivalist kind of thing and they're answering trump's call but i wonder if they'd answer his call once they if if they get if the courts open up or unseal the documents and they find out what trump's really up for i mean he is so there are so many different investigations so many th- things that uh, you know, that, that he's fighting off. I don't know if he's going to have time to be president in 2024. You know, I don't think he's going to have time to run. Well, they better move quickly uh, oh, yeah. because uh, once he becomes a candidate, suddenly there'll be, en- there'll be enough voters who think this is political, that it's yeah. a political pro- uh prosecution. Unfortunately, uh, I, I've been saying it's interesting to say something and then see it being done. It's very easy for me to say, why isn't he prosecuting Trump? Why is Garland such a chicken shit? And well, then you see him doing it. There are ramifications to uh, going after this guy. It's, yeah. yeah. But today, though, Garland, he flexed a muscle. He was he was strong. But, you know, he's a he's a judge. He's a meek guy. He's he has that that equanimity going for him. Well, we said the same thing about Mueller. Yeah. Yeah. I I, but but Mueller did Mueller. I I don't think Mueller was as strong. I don't think Mueller. this going to the court. And asking them to unseal, that's a pretty strong move. But then he, you know, he said, he said, I can't talk any more than that. And he was really nice on his exit. I can't talk. I can't say anything more. He's nice. Uh, let's see what happens. Let's see what I, court- I think the Republicans are starting to wish they uh, put him on the Supreme Court instead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I keep thinking that this could have been one of those other votes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah anyway. Hey, hey, hey David, uh, I do want to mention. I, I do want to mention this COVID thing because I feel like you were talking about death. Now you haven't death. gotten it yet, and yet you canceled the trip, right? Uh, yes, I should have been on a plane today. I because I I had a gig set up in Seattle, but I COVID fest. Why were you afraid of COVID fest? I I don't know. You know, Washington they should know better. I, in fact, like eighty percent of the people there are vaccinated. I, I but this is I I am coronaphobic. I, I have this, you know, I am this uh, COVID, you know, I said the, the phrase COVID virgin to a woman the other day and it, I caught myself. I say, I can't say that COVID virgin. I, you know, it's a sort of, you know, so I, I, Why I say, not? well, because, you know, you say that to a woman and, you know, and she's probably not a virgin. So she, I don't want to make her feel bad. And, oh, you know, I, you know, I'm a, so if I say I'm a COVID virgin and then I, I don't know if she is or not, but. 
it, it brings up a kind of thing which should be funny, right? It should be funny, but my sensitive side is saying, "Oh no, don't call her. Don't say you're a COVID virgin." And so anyway, so I, saying when you get COVID, I pop my COVID cherry. That would be <laughs> offensive, right? Yeah. Well, just, just you know, pop, okay. pop something. Hey, you know, but I, you know, the CDC came out with new rules. The CDC is now saying you don't have to get, you don't have to quarantine. You can just wear a mask for 10 days. They're, they're, they're really moving away from tests, away from quarantining, which once again proves the CDC is full of it. They don't know what they're doing. It's like whatever they feel like. They're the most political thing. Are uh, you around. worried? Like, I haven't <clears throat> gotten it either. Yeah, we should start a club. And I'm, But I'm worried that maybe, like, I'm, I'm being serious. Maybe... It's better. Oh, I shouldn't say. I'm going to shut up. Nope. What? It's better to not. No, no, no. I don't want to have this guy. You know what? This is exactly what I criticize. I know. Okay. Look, okay. but here's the thing. Everyone who di didn't have it, I, I, I'm seeing stories about, oh, this person didn't have it. Then she went out and then, then she had it. And, and, and then they, she realized that it was luck and it was this, you know, it was timing. And it was, you know, the only thing you could do if you don't trust the CDC is you have to set your own guidelines and your own guidelines have to deal with your, your willingness to take on risk. If you're willing to take on risk, take more. If you're not, who's going to tell you, boo, who's going to tell you, you know, you're the risk for you. And hopefully you deal with respectful people and they honor that. And I, I, I didn't feel bad. I felt bad about saying no to life or saying no to COVID, but I find myself saying no to life. And then does that mean, even though it means I can only talk to friends on the David Feldman show, am I cutting myself off from the riches of life by, by not saying, you know, taking on life head on and saying COVID I'm going to take you on. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like, um, I used to think that it's okay to go do once in a lifetime kind of things, special things. But now I'm, I'm just, I'm still as cautious today as I am, as I was say at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and really what I fear the most is how easy it is to be uh, hoodwinked and made into a COVID conformist giving in because, oh, he's not wearing a mask. Oh, she's not wearing a mask. Let's not wear a mask. It's okay. And then, you know, that's conformity, right? Bad. Conformity, bad, right? That's why we're in the David Feldman cabal, because we are anti-conformists or conformity folks. We believe we're independent thinkers. We believe in our own things, some more than others. But that really is, that really is the test for COVID. You know, are you this... Oh, it's, it's not there. Are you a denier and susceptible to conformity? That's kind of a test, a personal one, but yeah, but I'm glad to hear that you're a COVID virgin. Yeah. We should give each other promise. Rights. Or an agoraphobic. Agoraphobic. Yeah. The, 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 agoraphobic. Oh man. Only smart people know what you are. If you say agoraphobic. I don't think that that's a $10 word. Agoraphobia. <laughs> It's like a 20, $20. A 20. Word. It actually means fear of the marketplace, which I like. That's, that's the original root. And I oh, like that better. I thought it was fear of sheep. For some reason, I thought no, it was. No, that's sheep. angoraphobia. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. I, I, I just, because I, 
you know, I, I have a thing for them. But yeah, you know, you I, didn't you growing up as a kid? You had endorophobia, fear <laughs> of uh, Samantha's mother. Yeah, fear of bewitched. Yeah, yeah, I was always watching F Troop or something else like that. Hey, so so David, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've mentioned in the comedy thing, Filipinos are like the thing now. You know, Joe Coy's got his movie out, Steven Spielberg. But it only did like $5 million first week out of the box office. So maybe, you know, maybe uh, it's not going to be the next big thing. What's the movie? Uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, it's it's made. Uh, apparently, I didn't see it yet because I, I don't go to theaters, right? I, I wait for to see, see it on, um, you know, a streaming site. But it's about a Filipino guy who goes to his, this is from what I read, his dysfunctional uh, Filipino-American family as he's about to embark in a showbiz career. And so it's, you know, it's all the things that I recognize to be Filipino. I, I, I wish it well, because if, you know, if one Filipino comic, you know, can like stick his foot out there and open it up, it's like, you know, when, when, when the, when the first Jewish comic went out there, what did the other 3000 Jewish comics say once the first one, you know, Oh, He's done my act. I can't do it anymore. No, they just went out and did their thing. Right. So right. We, we have to, we have to applaud Joe Coy and uh, hope that he does well. I mean, at least in terms of the diversification of, uh, you know, Asian Americans. Is he as funny as Clarence Sterling? You know, I, that's a, that's a good one. I know Nobody Clarence was, was as funny. funny. Clarence Sterling was funny. Clarence, but, uh, but you know, we failed to mention Lorenzo Mataruan. Yes. Lorenzo was fine. The, the late Lorenzo. You knew he died, right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and a friend of Robin Williams, good friend of Robin Williams. So. And Clarence Sterling. Clarence Sterling. Yeah. Clarence was too. They, and he always used to say, come on down to Malloy's Emil, and and see me. And Billy, there was another one. Billy. Oh, shit. Billy. I, I, I don't know Billy, but you know, Rex Navaretti, another good guy who's coming out. Uh, not, I mean, <laughs> he's coming. He's uh, he's hitting. He's he's trying to find Joe Coy's coattails, but so look for the Filipino American comics. They're out there now. Right. They're there was another comic, uh, Billy. I'm gonna. It's so hot here, and I don't have the air conditioner, and it affects my memory. Uh, but if we have any San Francisco comedy fans, I'm trying to think. Of it. I'm trying to think. I should have. I. Sh I should have at least seen him in church or something. I don't know why. Why, why can't I think of his name? Damn it! So I'm, I'm really pissed off at myself. Why? Oh, because you don't know Billy's last name. Yeah, Damn Billy. It. Billy. And it was really funny. So a hey, uh, really funny. Yeah, Billy. Fuck. I'm so mad I can't, at myself. Billy. No, okay, I can't. I can't think. Hey, uh, the Peter podcast. I know you lived in L.A. for yes. a little bit. You're probably going to move back at some point, right? Uh, the shelters, the PETA podcast. Why, well, why would I move back to LA? Well, I know you, you, you talk sometimes about moving back to California. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe, I know, maybe you miss it, you know, good tacos or something. Maybe late being laid back. It's always sunny. People are happy. My sister, uh, yeah. had some dental work and she, she said to me, you know, the doctor offered me something to take. And she said, you know, we're, we're, uh, I was afraid to take it because, you know, we're 
in mourning. My mother passed away. Yeah. And I said, yeah, what, what do you want to be relaxed and content for? <laughs> like, why would you want to take a pill that would relieve pain and anxiety for a couple of hours? That's not who we are. What's the law? Which begged, I, I, I was going to ask Dr. Hirschenfeld this question. Short of alcohol or pot or drugs, why you meditate? Yes, I. It, that's the answer for me. I mean, are you? Uh, do you actually get to a point where you feel the way I used to feel when my parents were driving us home from a drive-in movie? We they used to go to a drive-in movie theater in Nyack, and and we'd drive home on this in the summer, like nine W during the summer, and I would be. I could bear, I, it was the summer you could smell skunk and just trees and just maybe polio. You smelled polio. a little polio. Yeah. And I was happy. Yeah. You know, I was eight, nine, 10, and blissful. How the do you get, does anybody get, that. does anybody get back to that? Is there yeah, any way the back? Short answer, the short answer, David, is. Yes, to meditation, but it's. But I'm like driving you, down nine W. You can't meditate while you're driving. Well, you can if you do it properly. You you can. See, if you once can. again, you're confusing meditation with masturbation, <laughs> and I keep telling you, you cannot meditate. <laughs> All right, carry on. a handkerchief. No, the 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 idea is you can you can meditate with your eyes open. You can meditate standing up. You can meditate as you're doing something that you supposedly enjoy once a week, like talk to my old friend, David, you can meditate while, and, and it's, it's a form of meditation. You put it in the background and you are totally in the present. Uh, that's a, a different kind of present than Dr. Benjamin's present. But what, about the kind of what about the narcotic of rage? Rage is narcotic. Yes. And I, and look, here's the thing about meditation. You can, you can get captured in the moment. So you're, think you're cured you're never cured but you realize that life is this wave of impermanence that you you know find the answer you lose the answer you find the answer you lose the answer and it's constant which is why they say meditation is like a muscle where you know you do it over time and you build up this this you know your your meditative strengths that uh, enhance concentration it enhances clarity, equanimity, and but you do it, you know, ten minutes a day to start. Some people then take that and love it so much. The feedback is so great; they go off on three-day, week-long retreats, right? Where they, you know they uh, they go off to a place like Spirit Rock in California or or what, any of the meditation centers, and these retreats. Uh, you know, Buddha, you know, is very, you know, Buddhists are strict, non-alcohol, non-drugs. And you can see why if you're in practice and you get it to a state, you don't need any other stuff. I mean, I, I was listening to someone who was uh, sober for, you know, dozens of years. And it's just, there's just something about either the use of drugs or the use of alcohol, you just say no. And in, in many ways, it's just like 
eating meat, you know, being a vegan for so many years, vegetarian first and ultimately vegan and then vegan, no oil. But, uh, you know, you get tempted by certain things every now and then, but you just, you just know that your life is better and that you don't like the way it felt when you were doing non-vegan stuff or when you were drinking or when you were doing drugs and it's just not necessary, but you find these other things that replace this, this place that you want to get to, you know, when you were driving in Nyack, you know, when you were trying to get to that happy place, uh, it takes some patience, but it also takes just being still and going within. And I think it can be found very easily. Well, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Yes. I like, I like Barry. I like, you know, and I used to, I used to watch him when I was in Washington, I used to see him in all the shows and he said, that's when he was with the ACLU mostly. And, um, no, I, those were the good old days, David. Those when we, we had really, we had really (laughs) smart people, you know, on those shows arguing (laughs) with, uh, who, who were, you know, who are those guys? The firing line, not the firing no. line. Crossfire. Crossfire, those right. guys. Yeah. You know, I was just, we're moving, you know, so we've been trying to pack all this stuff, most of which we I haven't touched for a decade. So today I found a box of DVDs. You know, they used to give out DVDs when you were on these shows. And it was an argument on Hannity and Combs before Alan died about uh, posting the Ten Commandments in every school. And it was unbelievable to watch it because I can't believe that I did that hundreds of times with screaming, screaming people who would just talk over everybody. And yet... When Fox first started, it wasn't on in New York City. So nobody would go on. And then Robert Reich, Ellie Smeal, and I were the only progressive voices that ever routinely went onto the Fox News channel. And I did it to prepare for serious shows. I think I may have mentioned this last week, but I mean, it would be like the the bookers would call you up and then they'd say, well, what do you think about that? And I'd give these very flat answers, you know, and then I get on the show and I give entirely different answers. Yeah. And that was fun to do it to Fox. It also was a, a real, everyone talked over everyone and no one said anything. And that there was a value to that because people weren't uh, the bookers or the producers thought people just want to see the fight. They don't want to really see the debate. That's right. And for a long time, it was just, let's, let's have them fight over the red meat. Right. And, <laughs> and they did. And then now everyone is orderly. Like they all get their mm-hmm. turns and no one talks. <laughs> Over, you know, John Stewart, John Stewart, who, of course, back in the news because of his work on the burn pits. But uh, he really destroyed Crossfire. Some people remember this. It was Paul Begala as the more or less progressive, although I had trouble figuring out where that was, and Tucker Carlson. And John Stewart comes on and says to both of these guys, I'm not going to be your trained monkey tonight. 
You know, you people ought to be talking about serious things, and instead you're not. And it was so controversial, but so accurate. Well, I just that it was the end of Crossfire. So two days later, I'm on Crossfire. I saw the booker who used to work with me on a radio station. And I said, uh, I brought this Grinch. It was about the war on Christmas. I brought a Grinch doll. I said, hey, can I just bring that out? And she looked at me and she said, who the hell cares? We're not going to be on the air in another two weeks. We've been canned. (laughs) You know, not to take anything away from Jon Stewart, because he did the Lord's work with the pact, uh, Act. But getting rid of Crossfire, I remember when that happened, thinking Crossfire was the only show where you could hear an argument against the war in Iraq <laughs> because it was constantly being interrupted. But you, at least you could hear the other side on Crossfire. Once they got rid of Crossfire, there was no opportunity Nothing. for people to, to spew leftist thought or left of center thought. I think he did a disservice. I don't know. I, I'm, I don't think he did a disservice, but you're right about the conclusion. But it's not that anybody else couldn't. You know, Ron Reagan, who is an atheist and uh, does those ads that still run on a lot of cable networks about, I don't worry about going to hell. And uh, He and a woman named Monica Crowley did a show on MSNBC. And Monica Crowley was a conservative, but not what I would call a nut conservative. And they used to do two segments. Can you believe that? Two segments with the same guests. Hmm. So you do six and a half minutes, they take a break, you'd come back another six and a half minutes. And that was one where I thought both Ron and Monica just had a decent enough respect for each other that they didn't just yell. And it was my one and only time, I think, with Franklin Graham. Uh, the you know the late Billy Graham's uh, somewhat embarrassing son, yes. <laughs> but but you know we were talking about uh, he was getting he has a charity called Samaritan's Purse and Samaritan's Purse uh, often ends up you know helping out in emergencies and he had just helped out I think in a in a disaster in Latin America, but we discovered that he was giving kids stuffed animals with Bible verses attached to them. And so I, of course, said, you know, I don't like the fact that church groups are getting money to begin with, but I certainly don't like it when the purpose seems to be to convert little kids in another country to being Christians. It was the only time he ever went on the air with me. I mean, it was he, I think... I'm not even sure it was that good. I didn't find find it today, but don't worry. There are other box loads of things. But he was, um, I think he was embarrassed because whenever people interview him, including people on CNN who interviewed him during the last few presidential campaigns, I remember him being asked once whether he was offended by the the uh, report that Donald Trump would grab women by the peas. And he said, that was in the past. And I'm thinking the next question a good interviewer should ask is, well, that might have been in the past, but he just denied doing it yesterday. That's yesterday. So now explain why you still 
can defend him. And of course, he, he couldn't, but he wasn't even asked. The questions are so incredibly stupid that get asked by these interviewers on the few shows that actually have an op- opportunity to actually talk about the real issues, which are you know not just the three or four things that they cover endlessly on the evening news. You're, just- you're allowed the most you can do is state the problem. If you're, you know, it, it's breathtaking when they state the problem, but the solution, you're not allowed oh. on anything. You're not of allowed to not. cut through to the real cause. And I'm not talking about the economic system under which we might. I'm talking about you want to talk inflation, the real cause of inflation. You're not allowed to talk about that. No. Uh, anyway, let us wrap up with Emil Guillermo host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And you live stream every night, right? Every every day, 2, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5, I guess that would be 5 Eastern. Yeah, so I do it uh, because um, I uh, it's good exercise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I get to to talk about the news in the in the old fashioned news talk sense where, right. you know, I don't act really act as a journalist so much as I am uh, a, uh, a an opinion. Is it an opinion columnist or I, I'm going to I, I just give my opinion. And since no one ever asks what a Filipino American thinks, although. And Crossfire, Alex Escalmato used to always go on and take the anti-Marcos views on yep, Crossfire. That's right. And uh, he, the late lamented Alex Escalmato, Filipino-American news publisher. Um, I, and that's why I do it, because there are very few non, I mean, th- there aren't that many uh, places where you get anything but the white mainstream or white fringe view. And to get a black view, you got to go to, you know, you get some, you know, maybe you get Joe Madison, who I used to work with, and you get him on, on Sirius, or maybe you get, the, you know, to get Asian views. You know, where do you get that? Latino views, where do you get that? So um, this is a democratizing, uh, you know, positive thing about our internet world right now. So Right, right. Yes. How do people yes. follow you on Twitter? Oh, uh, Twitter at Emil Lamuk, E-M-I-L-A-M-O-K. And you can also catch the show there, too. Fantastic. I'm just looking at my schedule. Um, wait a second. Did you have golf with Donald? Well, yeah, that, too. <laughs> for did We're coming up at 823. Did I... I'm, you came on at 7.30, so I'm not cutting you short. Okay. All right. We're good. Can't get any shorter. Okay. Thank you, Emil Guillermo. Thank you, David. Thank you. Jo- join us Thank as, you. Joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. He is a ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, as well as a lawyer. And you're a member of the Supreme Court Bar, unlike Bill Clinton, who had a surrender is uh, licensed. How are you, sir? I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Absolutely. 
Well, Victor Orban spoke at CPAC, and there were some clips. Do you mind if I play you a couple? No, go ahead. They're shocking. They're shocking. Uh, This is Victor Orban telling, this is the famous one, where he's at CPAC uh, telling people this. Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. That's not the first time somebody said that. Why is that dangerous? Well, because there are people who consider themselves good Christians and who at most, if challenged about it, they might say, but... I have a black friend. You know, I mean, they literally think that having one black person that they have ever had dinner with is enough to prove they aren't racist. As soon as you start to talk about the systemic racism, then they dial out. Then they say, oh, well, that's not true. And then they go right back to finding Bible passages that they claim is a kind of a, Proof text for segregation. Right. And they they really, I, I've literally heard them do this. In the book of Genesis, God separated the light from the darkness. They actually believed during the 50s and 60s, and you still hear it occasionally today, that that's a biblical proof that segregation is what God wanted. Mm-hmm. They can always find these things. They, they never are at a loss for telling you what the Bible says about issues, even though they know so little about the Bible, they don't even know that it's not, it was not created as an ethics manual for life. It was a bunch of stories. Maybe some of them are true. Maybe some of them are allegorical, but it's not a systematic theology for even its day, much less today. Right. So Viktor Orban, longest serving prime minister in Europe, uh, prime minister of Hungary, he is anti-migrant. He is the the face of CPAC. He is who Tucker Carlson worships. And let me play you. It's I want to ask you how out in the open this have we ever seen something as out in the open? This is him at CPAC. We need to trust our Judeo-Christian teachings. They help us decide what actions are right and what actions are wrong. We vote for Christianity in the Middle and Modern Ages. And we fought for Christian democracy in the 20th century and continue to fight to this day. Your thoughts? Very rarely do you hear such really idiotic claims that get the level of applause that he got speaking at CPAC. You know, uh, Tucker Carlson used to have him on his show. Tucker Carlson apparently was a pal of Alex Jones, who after we had our last conversation, of course, the next day he was hit with 40 
$4 million of punitive damages that will be paid if he ever comes up with the money uh, to the to the parents of the one victim that brought this case to trial. Right. So there are caps um, in Texas, but not Connecticut, as I understand it. Right. There's another one coming up in in Connecticut. Yeah. And the caps, by the way, were had nothing to do with this kind of litigation. They had to do with corporations who got the Texas legislature to support the caps because they didn't want some guy who, uh, you know, has spilled hot coffee on his lap at McDonald's could sue McDonald's and win millions of dollars. So it was all for corporate profits and corporate protection. It was never intended for something like this. And I'm sure that the parents' lawyers are going to argue that the cap should not should not be in place for this particular case. And we should add that we had the director of a documentary. I think it's called Hot Coffee. Uh, it's about the woman who had the coffee spilled on her lap at McDonald's. Right. She was... She almost died from that. That that was an example of uh, anti-tort lawyers trying to put caps on these settlements. McDonald's almost killed this woman. Yeah. I mean, clearly, all the nonsense about what she could have done or should have done and should have known how hot it would be. The average person has no idea how hot a cup of coffee that somebody hands them at a fast food restaurant, how hot it really is. So she was pretty much harmless, but the story was so dramatic. And comedians talked about it as if it was a joke. It wasn't. And that's, of course, why we have caps on damages. And I was one of those uh, comedians. What was your joke about it? no 88-year-old lap is worth $3 million. Believe me, I've... <laughs> You've I've had dancers uh, on your lap at that age. Yeah, I've... Right. I've okay. Yeah, and, and it got a big laugh at the time. And then I went to <laughs> the Tort Museum in Winstead, Connecticut, which you should go to. You're going to be near that, Ralph Nader's yep. Tort Museum. They have a whole display about how that was completely taken out of context and... McDonald's was notorious for heating their coffee. It was like lava. You know, it was so the raid, Mar-a-Lago, the FBI. Explain to me why we should worry about the FBI. Well, we should worry about the FBI because sometimes they do And their investigators do things that are so serious that people are convicted of crimes that they did not commit. And it just happens. I would highly recommend, if you have a lot of time, uh, go on Netflix and watch a 12-episode story called The Staircase. I don't want to give away much, but there's a lot that you learn halfway through about the malfeasance of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And the FBI, by the way, notwithstanding the FBI, you know, series on television and all the stuff about gangsters, they have always had real problems. They have always been looking at minor crimes and trying to prosecute people who really did nothing of significance. 
But on the one hand, that's true, but it's not true that they did anything wrong during the visit. It wasn't even a raid. The visit to Mar-a-Lago to get materials which they had asked for last spring and were denied them. So you can't go in with a subpoena and say, give me these because I already told you they're not giving you anything. So this was all done procedurally. I can't think of one thing they did wrong, but that hasn't, of course, stopped uh, everybody, Mitch McConnell, Rick Scott of Florida, from comparing this to uh, uh, the Nazis, the Gestapo, you know, Russian pogroms, nothing. There is nothing they did wrong. They went, you have to, in order to get this kind of a search warrant, he went to a magistrate judge. Magistrate judges are uh, actually appointed in districts, judicial districts, where there's a lot of work and a lot of it's just kind of run-of-the-mill stuff. They're appointed by the sitting district judge. They appoint a magistrate judge who handles a lot of inconsequential matters, including, as it turns out in this case, a very, con you know, very consequential manner. You have to demonstrate to the judge two things. You have to show that there is probable cause to believe that a specific crime or crimes has been committed. And then you also have to, with the word is particularity, indicate exactly what you are looking for. Now, if it turns up that there is other evidence of a crime during a search, in the, as I just described it, you can actually pick that up too. So if they were in his basement and they happened to find that he was, had a meth lab there, they could seize that also. But you have to get this. It's very difficult to get one of these warrants it has to be particular. It has to be probable cause. And of course, so much of this controversy are, are the Republicans and the QAnon people and the other nuts who say, we need to know more. And that's, of course, what Donald Trump could have done at any point. He could have released the, uh, the warrant itself and a kind of bill of particulars that would tell everyone what they were looking for. So when Merrick Garland finally goes out today and says there's so much controversy, this is a matter of enormous public interest, and uh, I want the judge to unseal those two documents. We're getting reports. There are two. <laughs> uh, one is Mara Lago just presented the FBI with a $10,000 bill for resort fees and early check-in. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. But this no, but is we serious. Did, we did learn something just, just within the last hour. I learned this. Uh, Trump's lawyers are thinking of contesting the effort to unseal the documents. So that's really interesting because if he doesn't, Trump doesn't release them just because he ought to or to quell any questions that he's been raising. Now they could litigate this and you could litigate it. The judge could say, I'm going to do it anyway. Then there's then they'd appeal it. This could drag on for months and months. There is a story coming out of the Washington Post saying that 
there was uh, nuclear uh, launch codes in the boxes. Nice. Something to do with nuclear launch codes. Could that be true? That's coming from the Washington Post. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be true. I mean, he's the only person, well, probably not the only person, but one of two or three people who have the nuclear launch codes in their possession. Right. Well, I don't think it was. And he's supposed to have them in possession all the time. Yeah, I don't think, they, they, I'm sure they change the nuclear launch codes. Yeah, one would hope so. Yeah, but. Uh, it is Washington. Yeah, that <laughs> so is, well, One yeah. has to be. But, um, yeah, I do think this is the first time where I've really thought he was in serious, serious criminal trouble. I've been very reluctant to think that the January 6th uh, committee or anybody else, except for the people in Georgia, that they were really going to be able to prosecute for these things. Now, there's a lot of speculation. What's on the search warrant? What is the crime that they're looking for? And it could be, and probably should be, something called the Presidential Records Act, which after Nixon tried to take some of his materials with him, Congress passed a law that said anything in the possession of the president that he made in the course of his work as president does not belong to him. It belongs to the people and is to be immediately sent to the National Archives where they have this stuff. In general, a lot of this stuff is not releasable for at least 20 years, but it has to be there. Now, some people say, well, that's trivial. <laughs> if you were a right, if you were a left-wing conspiracy theorist, how about this theory? The FBI director, Mr. Ray, who of course was appointed by Donald Trump, thinks that maybe he should do what Jim Comey did so well, <laughs> uh, destroy the possibility of someone being president. And uh, uh, Comey, although, I, I mean, I've never believed a single thing he said. He said, you know, first of all, he said Hillary didn't do anything. But of course, the it was reckless behavior. He should not have commented on that. Then he mysteriously finds a laptop that mysteriously happens to be in the possession of uh, possibly the most hated man at the time, who was a Democrat, Congressman Anthony Weiner. And then, of course, just days before the election, he said, well, we looked at those at that computer and there's nothing there. So he managed to tick off Trump people three different times. One, by confirming that she was irresponsible. Two, by saying maybe she had some messages on a laptop. And then third, by saying, nah, didn't happen. Right. What if what if Ray, who, who has given money, I was looking into this, he gave money to some Democrats, but he also gave money to a lot of Republicans. He was appointed by Donald Trump. What if he thought, what's the thing we could do that would tick off the QAnon people and the Republican nuts the quickest? Hey, let's go seize stuff out of Donald Trump's house. Do I think that's true? No. But do I think that has that crossed my mind? Yes, it has. But that would, records. would that jeopardize Ray? 
How so? It was the F the FBI. Well, yeah, but he, but he's the FBI. Look, if it's just the Presidential Records Act, to me, it's bad enough. But he would have just done what he was supposed to do. He could go before the Congress and he could say, look, I mean, this is this is a crime. We had so much evidence about it. We knew that he failed to give us all the boxes. We asked for uh, the 12 boxes that he didn't, you know, give in the first Blanche of, uh, of 15. And he's, uh, you know, he wouldn't give them to us. So we had to do this. That, you know, the, the the people, I think, would buy that. They would say, oh, okay. Well, this is coming to us from the Washington Post. It just yeah. came over. Classified documents, this is, I'm quoting the New York, the Washington Post, classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the items FBI agents sought in search of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence on Monday, according to people familiar with the investigation. Experts in classified information said the unusual search underscores deep concern among government officials about the types of information they thought could be located at Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and potentially in danger of falling into the wrong hands. Well, this is so the problem with this is it's classified. And so if this is true, both sides, you you can't talk about classified evidence, can you? Well, it it depends what it's about. I mean, remember, even if classified information falls into the hands of the press, the press can pretty much do anything it wants with it. I mean, if somebody had found out uh, during the the Nixon impeachment. Um, no, it was actually during the Pentagon Papers, of course, that was, a, you know, the, the release of all this really damaging information about how we got into Vietnam. And uh, the Washington Post went to the Supreme Court and won the opportunity to print this, even though sections of it, according to the government, were classified. So they went and published it and freedom of the press, Trump the claim of national security, and it could do the same thing here. But it's not clear to me what, how specific. You have to be particular. You have to say, we're looking for 12 boxes. I'm not sure that they have to say, we're looking for this piece of paper, because they wouldn't know what they would be looking for at that level of granularity. But I'm, you know, I think this, this, this could be very big, but I do think that it will have, whether Mr. Ray cares or not, I think this does have the potential for really bringing out more really radical Republican voters come yeah. November. Michael Cohn tells Business Insider that he suspects the rat who tipped off the FBI, was one of Trump's kids or Jared Kushner. Ivanka didn't plead the fifth. She spoke before the grand jury, I believe, last week. Uh, Jared spoke. I think only Eric Trump pled the fifth, and that was like a year ago. So there's a... Could be. I mean, I... I mean, Michael Cohen has said a lot of things I want to believe. I don't have any reason to doubt 
him. I mean, he's many of the things that uh, he said and that he that he uh, wrote in his uh, his book, Disloyal, I think was the title of it, have turned out to be true about his relationship with Donald Trump. So I I have I give him a high degree of of credibility myself. Yeah. Yeah. How do you see this playing out? I think there will be, I think eventually the public will see the documents that we've been talking about. I don't know that it'll be tomorrow because I suspect that Trump's lawyers will try to block this, but, and it'll take months and months. But I think by the time of the, the, uh, the midterm elections, there will be a resolution of this and we'll know exactly why Donald Trump, in possession of these documents, knowing that all of his people demanded to know what is in those documents. Right. And, and I think they're going to get irritated. And I think that there might be a, a, a backlash to that. I do think that he will be prosecuted for some violation or violations of the Presidential Records Act. The Presidential Records Act doesn't just cover classified information. I did hear somebody on Fox talking about how the president is the arbiter of what is classified, and that is true. But if you want to unclassify something, there's a whole routine that you have to go through. You can't just seize the things as you're leaving town and just say, oh, I'm still president. I think I'll declassify everything. You can't do that. There's a provision of the Presidential Records Act that I do think is unconstitutional. It's the one that says if you violate the Presidential Records Act, you cannot run for public office again. You can't run to be the president again. I think there's a very strong constitutional argument that says that's adding to the qualifications of the presidency that are contained in the Constitution itself. Can't Congress, that, can't you, can't Congress vote to ban Somebody I do no. I do not believe that that can become an impediment to running for president again. I know there are people who think that you can do this. I really don't see it, and it's not just because of the makeup of the Supreme Court. I just think you just can't add qualifications. You know, to, you have to be thirty-five and a natural-born citizen, and on and on. You can't add to it. Bill Maher said something that I was thinking, and it's kind of obvious, that secretly McCarthy, McConnell, Scalise, the Republicans, they want Trump to be prosecuted, don't they? They want him to go away. I mean, I've worked in offices <laughs> where you, you see the boss about to get fired. And if you're kind of afraid of the boss or, you know, you like, schadenfreude, you go, oh, well, get rid of the boss. I get to move up, right? Nobody's rooting for the guy on top. Do you think they're secretly rooting the Republicans? They must be secretly rooting for him to I be prosecuted. I, with all due respect to you and Bill Maher, well, to you at least, um, I don't believe they do. I think they believe that he is the best candidate running in 2024. I don't see Steve Scalise. No. Hang on for one second, Reverend. DeSantis, Marco Rubio, 
people who are eyeing the presidency, wouldn't they secretly be hoping Garland succeeds in making Trump unavailable? You know, with DeSantis, maybe so. But I think, you know, McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, I don't think they're the ones thinking, gee, because I think they honestly believe he will be a stronger candidate. I I was at my 55th high school reunion on Saturday, and I was talking to a lot of people who moved to Florida. And they were, I don't remember them as having progressive ideas when they were in high school, but they sure do now. The anger that they have toward DeSantis and even to Marco Rubio is just well beyond anything I could have imagined. Rubio is pretty smart. He's smart. He was speaker of the the Florida legislature, and I've seen him speak when he was running for president in 2016. One of the sharpest minds. He was hysterical during the debate. He was the only one who could stand up to Trump. Yeah, he's he's a facile mind. He is. There is a poll out a couple hours ago where Val Demings and he are now tied now tied. And I do think she has a lot of money. Explain who Val Demings is, please. Yeah, I mean, Val Demings was a police chief. She was uh, on one of the impeachment panels. She's very, very smart and an African-American. And I think that she looked like she had no chance to win. But in the recent weeks, and now I think with this new poll today, although you and I don't really believe polls, but I mean, to be tied at this point after being down six or seven points probably shows the impact not only of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but the fact that Marco Rubio just is not as appealing to a lot of Floridians uh, as he may have been. And I do remember him in the debates and he was a clever speaker. The Republicans are saying to get rid of the FBI, that it's rotten to the core. Right. Uh, If our side said that, and we have good reason to. Of course. We'd be called (laughs) Marxists. What would happen if they got rid of the FBI? Do Uh, we need an FBI? I think we do need an FBI. I would not want to get rid of it. I'm a little less certain about the CIA. I'm not so sure we should have one. But the FBI, I think, does a decent job on the things that it chooses to work on. Uh, but you're right. I mean, if anybody said to defund the FBI, uh, it would be like the defund the police thing all over again. And, uh, you know, I was we were watching this um staircase thing I was promoting on Netflix, uh, Joanne and I, and I said, you know, given that the FBI has some issues in, in the staircases, or maybe we should just agree. We should form a unity. People like me and the far right, and we should all get buttons made, defund the FBI. Well, that's your... I could sell that. Yep, you're a Republican. Uh, (laughs) I was for about a month, yeah. What did the FBI do 
I guess during World War II, they might have been of value. Uh, I guess they've, when they finally admitted there was a mafia, they mm. maybe helped uh, break the mafia, although J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't admit there was a mafia because they had pictures of him in compromising positions and he partied with them uh, in Florida watching yep. the ponies. Yep. Uh, very strange that J. Edgar Hoover refused to admit that there was a mafia, that there was organized crime. Did they accomplish anything? I mean, we know that, I mean, Shermer Cheney, they, they did, did they help find some of the people behind the killings of civil rights? Oh, yes, they did. The, the, the Goodman, Schwerner, Cheney killings in, uh, during uh, that summer in 63, I guess. Um, yes, they, they were heavily involved in that. Uh, because the local police were also heavily of course, involved. Of course, of course they were. They wanted it. It's like, you know, it's. Uh, you know, give me something. We know you did. Uh, give us, give us something to work with. Uh, and they did take down some of the big, you know, criminals, much as people glorify Pretty Boy Floyd and all those guys. They were pretty bad characters, and uh, they did help to take them down as well. And they also destroyed uh, people who were left of center. If you yep. were a member at any time in your life of the Communist Party, your life was a nightmare. They blacklisted people. Uh, they went after union organizers. They called Dr. King, the J. Edgar Hoover famously called J., uh, Dr. King the most dangerous man in America. Yes, he did. And they killed yes, did. Fred Hampton. There's no question. Yes, he did. There's no they, question about that. And he... And they made lists of people during the anti-war movement. I was on an FBI list, and I, I remember talking to the late uh, Congressman Father Robert Drynan, and I said, yeah, I'm, apparently I'm on a list. And he said, there should be more ministers on that list. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I, I thought, so they, they did horrible things. There's no, no question Well, what about did they that. do that was good? Well, I mean, the things we've been talking about, about finally going after not only the D.B. Cooper. They found D.B. Cooper. No, they didn't. Where'd they find him? He's, they didn't uh, find he's in Parkland Memorial Hospital with Elvis and JFK. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought so. No, I mean, it's it's a great, they found know, it's who a killed, wonderful story. They found JFK's killer. They did. And they did. covered it up. <laughs> and covered it up. And now they're... Uh, <laughs> But I think it's the routine things that they do. I mean, if there's an arson, for example, unless the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms people are involved, it's the FBI who goes after hate crimes against churches, against African-American churches. So they really do have right. um, a whole set of things that reputable agents do that turns out to be good for democracy and good for the safety of the United States. They connected all the dots before 9-11? Oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. They connected no, all I... the dots before January 6th? Oh, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. 
Hmm. No, they're not. <laughs> they, all that you know, one spying of the, they do. Well, excuse me for one second. What, what? All the spying they do. Who are they listening to? They had they had all the evidence before January six and January uh, January six and September eleventh. It was all there. They, but they were so busy spying on leftists, they didn't have time to read the uh, the transcripts of the phone calls. I don't know. I mean, yes, they obviously were tremendous failures. But again, that's not. It's like, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I mean, it's it's uh, what they do that's good is stuff we don't even see. I mean, right. how about bank robbers? They that's go what, after bank robbers. That's what managers, agents, and lawyers in Hollywood, that's what they say. You don't know. No, you, the whole no. my My job is to make sure you don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I keep you. I, I know. I hear. I, I hear you. But but I think the truth is, if you look at the statistics, which they do every year, FBI does a report to Congress, and most of it's available to anybody, and they talk about the cases they closed. And I I would say in ninety percent of the cases, I would say, and I think you would say, yeah, I'm glad that person is off the streets. Well. Uh, they were given 3,500 tips about Brett Kavanaugh trying to give his tip, and they ignored those. Thir something like 35, they ignored 3,500 tips about Brett Kavanaugh. They also ignored reports about Clarence Thomas. I'm not sure about the Clarence Thomas thing. Well, Clearly Biden, they, sir, there was there were other women who wanted to come forward and Biden didn't oh, want yeah. to hear them. Well, but what Biden wouldn't Biden made the choice not to. There were two women just like Anita Hill who could tell virtually the same story at different times, including at, at more recent times than Anita Hill did. And he had all the evidence and he decided he would not get those women on the witness stand. I mean, that was. For a long time, that would have been a deal killer, no matter who Biden was running against. But wasn't the that, feeling during Clarence Thomas that if he goes down, every single man in Washington goes down, that if you're going to start saying you're if you're going to disqualify men for sexually harassing women. With Ted Kennedy sitting meekly yeah, there. I, uh, everybody's going to go away. Wasn't that the, the, the I'm, gentleman's I'm, agreement? There were no, no women. There no, were no, I really, no, I do not believe there that. Were no I don't women believe in, that. There were no women. There was women. not a woman on the Judiciary Committee at the time. Not right, there were no one. women in the Senate or Congress at the well, time. Well, I think. Very few. I think Barbara Boxer was probably in the Senate, but she wasn't on the Judiciary Committee. And Diane Feinstein, for what she's worth, uh, was not yet on the Judiciary Committee either. I think, um, I think so, he triggered all those women. I think Boxer got elected Senate in 92 because of Clarence Thomas, if memory serves. He triggered all these women running for the office. Run. Yeah. It, I don't remember when she got in there, but yeah. she, was, uh, she was there. Uh, 
Carol Mosley Braun represented Illinois. She was an African-American woman, one of the, I think the first in the United States Senate. And she was a magnificent legislator and a, a good person. She really was good. She lasted only one term and then was knocked out by some Republican. How worried are you about Fox News and the right wing animating their base. They're heavily armed. They're they're showing up to Beto O'Rourke rallies with AR-15s. Um, how worried are you about this? Well, I think there's a really serious possibility of, of renewed violence aimed at, ironically, at the police or at the FBI. And just, again, just a couple hours ago, they shot the guy who was carrying an AR-15 and, and a nail gun trying to get into the FBI office in Cincinnati, Ohio. But they nailed him instead. Well, they did, but not with his nail gun. No. Nail guns are usually only used in, in horror movies. Have you ever seen the, the right wing talk so openly about insurrection, where this Congressman Chip Roy from Texas <laughs> talking about the insurrection clause of the Second Amendment that our founding fathers wanted us to to have guns to stand up to a, a, an overly intrusive government. Have you ever seen it out in the open this way before? No, but I mean, it's been a talking point for the last 30 years that the reason you really don't want to to restrict guns is not because you might use it when a burglar comes into your house, but it's because you need it to defend against the government taking your rights away, defend you against the rogue state. That has been part of the NRA, Gun Owners of America, which is even more extreme than the NRA. That's been a talking point for as long as I've been having arguments about gun control. So, but it, what's different this time is that it's not just Chip Roy, but there are other people who have some connection to government at some level who are saying essentially the same thing. This is the kind of thing you'd hear Mark Levin say or Tucker Carlson say, but now members of Congress, state legislators are saying it openly. So yes, things are getting worse they're taking a point from decades ago and just adding impetus to it and passion to it. And it's coming from higher office. And that we ought all to worry about. That is something we should be concerned about. This is Lauren Boebert's tweet. I played it at the top of the show. <laughs> Rebellion to this. She's quoting Thomas Jefferson. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, says Thomas Jefferson. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, Thomas Jefferson. She's a gun-toting slob who is telling her followers that Merrick Garland and Biden are tyrants. And Thomas Jefferson would say, you want to get close to God? Rebel. Rebel. It's that confluence of guns and Jesus. Well, speaking of that confluence, because I know we're almost out of time here, but uh, if I were to find, as I did, 
religious right nut of the week. It would go to one of the hosts on the Trinity Broadcasting Company Network. These are the people who make the Christian Broadcasting Network look like they're moderates. These people are cranks and a half. So one of the hosts I used to encounter occasionally, Doug McKelway, he has our friend Franklin Graham, who we talked about at the beginning. Um, Graham is asked, what would Jesus do if Jesus's house was invaded like Mar-a-Lago? And Mm. here's what he says. First, he says, well, um, Jesus uh, told his disciples, disciples, render under Caesar those things that are Caesar. And then it goes on and render to God those things that are God. But then in further response, he says, and that was, by the way, about paying taxes. A lot of his disciples right. said, look, look, you know, the Roman Empire hates us. Why should we pay taxes? Jesus said, you have to pay them. So then Trump continued, or uh, Franklin Graham continued, this is, this is different, he says. This is our freedom being eroded in this country. If the FBI felt he had something that belonged to the government, they certainly could have asked and he would have returned it. Yes. Now that it didn't take today's newspapers to tell you he he doesn't ever care what people want from him. He wants to keep every single thing. He would probably have used Kleenex in his safe. Mm-hmm. Then he comments, of course, <laughs> that the Democrats are, are just using all this to bend us towards socialism. Would that be true? Yet to this day, to my knowledge, Franklin Graham has never criticized Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Never once. I can right. stand corrected, but I don't think he ever did. Right. So. You know, he, he's down. I don't know if he was at CPAC. He, he often went. But, um, you know, I'm sure he was just applauding the president of Hungary, whose words you, uh, you played. If Jesus ago. owned Mar-a-Lago, yeah. it, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't be as nice. No, there'd probably be a lot of goats. Yeah. And, and other, but, he, but he also... You know, very few journalists are ever actually allowed at Mar-a-Lago. Did you, I didn't know that till a couple of weeks ago because he doesn't want them there. He doesn't want them snooping around. But I think Jesus probably would have said, let a bunch of homeless people from Miami come in and they can stay here. And, and he probably wouldn't have a mirror in his bedroom. But no lepers... I'm on vacation. I'm not doing any healing. But when I get back to New York, I'll do the lepers, but no lepers at Mar-a-Lago. I need a break from the lepers. I I have a feeling. Yeah, it it could be. But um, yeah, that's the treatment. (laughs) This is another thing where people will say, was I there at everything? But uh, I I got the last colony of of people people with uh, the, the palsy that's commonly known as leprosy, the last group of them living in Hawaii, they came to the United States and they were trying to get some attention paid to, 
to their cause. And mm-hmm. it, we, we treated them shockingly. It was awful. And so I was able to help them get on some you gave them a hand. shows. You I gave, gave them a hand. And sorry. Uh, they, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm you should sorry. just do penance for that one. I, but no, but it's, it, it's shy. It's, it's what every person with a serious medical condition goes through in this country. And it shouldn't be that way. And there were some modest, very modest changes in Inflation Act. I'm not so sure that's going to be great for the environment. I'm not even sure it's going to reduce inflation. But to the extent that some, not all, but some people are going to find it easier to get some drugs has got to be seen as a plus. Right, right. Leprosy is probably coming back if polio is coming back, right? I don't think so. I don't I don't think leprosy can come back. I will ask Dr. Lin, though, that question, and then next week I'll tell you her answer. Okay. The Reverend Barry W. Lin, you could read his stuff, watch his stuff by going to barrywlin.com for a treasure trove of the man's appearances on television shows, radio shows, sermons, writings. And when is your book? Are we done with the book uh, yet? No, we're not. <laughs> we're, uh, we're awaiting one publisher's response, and I'm looking at another one on Tuesday. Okay. It will come out. Oh, I mean, but even you, but if you, I have to... If I have to chip it into tablets and go up on a mountain and bring them down, I'll have three, and that's what I'm going to do. And that turned out pretty good, that book. It did. Well, yeah. a third one got lost. We know that. You know, Was Moses there really lost. a third one? <clears throat> I thought that was from Mel Brooks's movie. It is from Mel Brooks' Oh, okay. Movie. So, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, look— um, Thank you. Give give Thank my you. best to your better half. I, I, I certainly will. And I never disclaim that she's my better half because she is. She but is. We're, I'll, I'll be speaking to you from Massachusetts next Thursday. Good. Very okay. good. Thank, Thank you. you. The Reverend Barry W. Okay. Lynn. Follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Coming up, the professors and Mary Ann, a lot of prolific authors here, one of whom is... Professor Mike Steinell, you should go to MikeSteinell.com, check out his music, and go to SavingCharlieParker.com to buy his new book, Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com. Dan, are you here? Do we want to do a quiz, or we should probably... Keep it moving. Let me play some music from Professor Mike Steinel. And when we come back, we will talk to the professors and Marianne. Office hours this Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to my website to get your link. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. Chairs in this Bessemer shop Back and outdated Don't ever seem to stop A man went down Cause his heart gave out Get back to work We heard them shout They said the EMTs are coming That's what they're for And life slipped away 
on a cement floor Stops are all gone away. Got me some books, I'll read them someday. Right now, I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts, and the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year Union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemore floor. I'm hoping the Union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Professor Mike Steinel, ain't no chairs. I think my truss is a little too tight right now, but that's okay. We will continue. Sorry. It's August. It's August. Let me just loosen my truss. All right. Uh, Welcome back. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Please join us for that. Go to my website to to get an invitation while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. And I don't think we have, uh, I don't think we have Professor Marianne. So it's, I think she's in Albuquerque. I think, not not saying, not gonna make any accusations. Uh, But joining us is Professor Ann Lee. You can read her over at the Daily Co's at Annie Lee. Hello, Professor Ann Lee. 
We have Professor Jonathan Bick, who will be teaching Star Trek and The Twilight Zone at Office Hours. Professor Adnan Hussein is back. He is chairman. Let me start you up there. There you go. Chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And Joe in Norway is in Spain. Let's find out what your ASMR for the eyes is. What are you cooking today? You have to unmute. Okay. Am I unmuted? There we go. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I'll be cooking some uh, Andalusian uh, recipes, Spanish, southern Spanish dishes. A, the first one I'll make is a uh, fried eggplant or aubergine with a reduction of uh, dried sugar cane and vinegar mm. with uh, toasted sesame seeds. It's a very traditional dish here in Malaga. And then I'll be making a, a winter dish, but more summerified uh, garbanzos and stewed spinach. And then I'll be making uh, not-so-poor-man's potatoes, um, uh, kind of uh, confit potatoes with onion and capers hmm. tonight. This is going to be Is my difficult. lighting okay, or is it a bit Yeah, dark? no, it's, it's this is going to be torture because I, I'm hungry. I can't. And this is, this is not going to be easy. The lighting is better <laughs> now. Where were okay. you yesterday? Where were you swimming yesterday? Uh, just down on the, the sea, down the, the road here, hmm. in the Mediterranean. You were in the Mediterranean. The moonlight, the moonlight shining across the sea, and we were across from uh, a old Roman bath. It was hmm. quite special. I wonder what that's like to be happy. Well, let's find out. <laughs> There's no time for it. I, I, was, I was talking to my sister yesterday. I mentioned this earlier. She, the dentist wanted to give her a painkiller. She said, I'm worried, you know, I can hear you can get addicted to these things. And I said, what do you want to be happy for? Why do you want to, why would you take a pill that could make you? It is terribly exhausting. To be happy. Indeed. Yeah. Professor Ann Lee, I'm happy to Hello. see you. What, what would you like to talk about tonight? Well, uh, oh, it's a very busy day today. Um, what with the and and you've talked about it earlier. The uh, uh, <clears throat> Attorney General Garland and uh, and those uh, uh, search warrant, the search warrant for the materials. And mm -hmm. I know you've been we've been talking about it. Uh, Constantly, but what seems uh, interestingly coincidental, and of course, did, do we really know whether things are always, there's no such thing as co coincidental, but uh, I wrote it a brief little thing just because it's been finally resolved, and uh, um, the guy in Ohio who decided that he would attack the FBI field office outside of Cincinnati, and um, apparently... And, and we, we discussed this actually on, or I occasionally uh, uh, troll Professor Bick on the issue of uh, psychotic breaks in Twilight Zone. And <laughs> <laughs> they managed to uh, get the truth social um, uh, tweets or truths or whatever 
from the, the this guy who tried to attack the the uh, FBI office with a uh, nail gun. And uh, if you know a little bit about nail guns, they're essentially the power of a twenty-two caliber rifle. Really? Handgun. And uh, it's essentially the equivalent of a small handgun. And he was trying to essentially bust through um, uh, bullet bullet resistant glass at the uh, in the entry area, the visitors area of that place. And for some reason, he hadn't done any empirical testing on similar types of material and apparently failed and then fled um, the Ohio State. Uh, police or the highway patrol uh, tracked him down, cornered him, and as we have just discovered, shot him to death uh, because he "quote unquote" refused to surrender. Although, or he refused to negotiate, which I think is an interesting way of putting it. Um, and um, more interesting, of course, are these uh, that he. There is some speculation that he was actually tweeting or communicating on social media. Yeah, you well, was, over Daily Kos, you posted some of them. Yes, well, uh, supposedly there are more, and some of them he posted from the field itself while he was uh, surrounded by Ohio police, the helicopter and everything. And it's just very interesting, that's all. Because if you, and this gets back to the issue of the psychotic break, if you look at the way that these are all written, they have a, kind of an interesting, you know, sort of language construction. is really... Kind of the kind of things that when you start seeing them or or listen to people say them, you begin to think something is wrong, some kind of aphasia or something is at work. And um, do you mind if it, I post a, one of them? Because it's kind of oh t- sure, yeah. They're this is from this is from Annie Lee over Daily Kos. And uh, do we know if this is Twitter or these are Truth Social? The, Truth Social. They've been scrubbed from uh, Truth Social, as far as I can tell. And they're just strangely constructed, you know, when you look at the kind of negative, um, you know. Well, he's saying, uh, but yeah, his name is Ricky Schiffer. <laughs> Schiffer, yes. And Ricky, this, Ricky Walter Schiffer. I always love the multiple names. This is the guy who allegedly tried to uh, shoot up an FBI field office in, uh, was it Cincinnati? Cincinnati. And uh, and he's not so allegedly dead. Right. No, no, he's quite dead. Um, he was wearing body armor, so I assume that's why the FBI was quite uh, thorough about their right. um, uh, neutralizing him. So this but is, this is what he, he writes, people, this is it. I hope a call to arms comes from someone better qualified. But if not, this is your call to arms for me, leave work tomorrow. This is, this is really creepy. But uh, he's saying to go to pawn shops, Army neighbors, Navy stores, uh, fighting tyranny. This is war. I'm proposing war. Be ready to kill the enemy. I mean, it's. I, I don't really feel comfortable posting that stuff. Uh, go ahead. Well, it's just interesting that he, he responds to someone who asks him, are you proposing terrorism? And he says, very important question. No, I'm proposing war. Be ready to kill the enemy, not 
not mass shootings where leftists go, not lighting buses on fire with transsexuals in them, not finding people with leftist signs in their yards and beating them up. Violence is not, and in um, parentheses, all terrorism. Kill the FBI on site and be ready to take down other active enemies of the people and those who try to prevent you from doing it. You just see how constructed that is. It's a little bit out there. And uh, this is as uh, in terms of the timestamp, this is before he goes in. This is just before he goes to the FBI office. So it's it's just interesting. Um, This is Sebastian Gorka. uh, (laughs) This act by the FBI, by Merrick Garland, the DOJ and the White House that had to approve all of it is a declaration of war against peaceful American citizens. 74. You know, it's funny. Like, you don't take these people seriously. But. This is what you're hearing on Fox News and talk radio all day. Right. Oh, it's normalizing all kinds of strange things that uh, there was a session at CPAC that um, declared. And and this was in reference resisting uh, uh, school boards and stuff, but the the title of the session was We Are All Domestic Terrorists. Right. And, you know, this time around, this is what they were saying. Uh, Yes. Yes. Um, It's just, uh, it's just, to me, it's quite fascinating. And of course, everyone is trying to take advantage of the kind of synchronicity of it that one thing begat the other, that is the, the FBI um, uh, raid, quote-unquote, on uh, Mar-a-Lago may have prompted this. It, it's certainly clear that uh, 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 right-wing media was whipping up the hate against the FBI, so there must have been some connection between the two. Now, some people may call it so-called stochastic terrorism. The word stochastic, I think, is uh, relatively... What does that mean? Sup- well, it is a description of uh, sort of a randomness relative to stochastic or uh, probabilistic stuff. In other words, it's a kind of randomness that you can't identify. But it, it's, a, it's relatively meaningless because it, it's just meant to sort of dress up the word terrorism. I, I never I try never to use it because it, it, it renders the idea of lone actors meaningless and they are not random. In fact, it's part of a larger argument that the media, and and in fact, that's why I don't like using the word stochastic terrorism, because it's really talking about media effects. That is, when you have something on the mass media that reinforces a certain set of actions, and then when that terrorist action occurs, then therefore it is stochastic, as though it it was causal but not causal. And, And the fact is, it's causal. Just get over it. Um, That's the problem with media effects arguments. Media effects arguments include, for example, um, television violence, for example. The argument for television violence is a uh, stochastic argument that that is because it's out there and because children watch it, therefore they get more violent and then you can prove some kind of connection. Well, not really. Uh, This is this problem of that one thing begets, you know, it's cause and correlation stuff. Um, 
So similarly, I don't ref- I would not refer to this as a stochastic terrorist event. And in fact, it is quite causal. And it's quite the line seems pretty clear to me uh, if it's not clear to anyone else. Also, this fellow has a January 6th connection. He was at the January 6th um, riot. Really? So, yes, uh, that's referred to, in fact, in the uh, in the pursuit, the the Ohio uh, uh Police refer to the war- warrants related to January sixth, um, while they're still tr- tr- while they were still trying to track him down. So uh, yes, it's not stochastic. <laughs> it's not very random. Let me play um, you Sean Davis. He's CEO of the Federalist. He was on Fox News yesterday. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Well, I think it's a declaration of war against the American uh, public, uh, against the half of the country, if not more, that doesn't want to be ruled by a, a bunch of corrupt oligarchs. It's easy to look at what happened and say, oh, it's just about Trump. It's just about, you know, Donald Trump. And, you know, he's kind of different. It's not about anything else. No, this is about the the ruling elites, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, the oligarchy deciding that it is up to them to pick who we get to vote for and that it's up to them to decide who gets to be on the ballot when Republicans vote. This was a declaration of war against the American public for having the audacity to think they get to decide who represents them because it is obvious what this was about. This was about disqualifying Donald Trump from ever running again. This is their kill shot uh, to take out Donald Trump's political career. And unfortunately for them, I think it's going to backfire, but that's not going to it's not going to undo the damage that they've done uh, with these Stasi tactics. No, and, and the damage won't require a conviction. It will simply require a fight. It will simply require a I just a want to play this John one. Davis. Yeah, oh, one more time, this. This is their kill shot. So, your reaction? Oh, life is a racquetball court, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, are they playing with language? Do, do they... When you talk that way, saying this is their kill shot, this is war, in their mind, what are they doing? We can't imagine. Go ahead. It's media framing. It's all the same media framing. Uh, You know, and and at at some point, speaking from uh, sort of uh, a deconstructing language point of view, um, you know, I, I... they still need to tell me to prove that a deep state exists when they're constantly contradicting its reality. And then um, uh, we should start proposing a shallow state. You know, I'm, I, I'm all I'm all in favor of the shallow state myself. Um, you know, it's kind of has the waiting pool of, <laughs> of state power, you know, maybe we can have a <laughs> the, deep the state. undertow of state power. Maybe there we can have a deep state. Uh but then we can blow a whistle and have like for the kids a kitty. Uh, sh- okay, any response? Uh, Go ahead. I'm well, sorry. the Stasi, so the Stasi uh, inference is is interesting mainly because you know what was it? Twenty percent of the East German population was connected to the Stasi. Everyone was in, could inform on everyone else. And it's speaking of Stasi tactics. It seems to me that the censorship of uh, of intersectional uh, reading material in the uh, primary and secondary schools and public schools is very Stasi. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Well, I, 
it, it, it doesn't feel random anymore. It, it, it feels like they are working off a playbook where they're talking. They, it, it's once again, the right wing is parroting talking points, but this time the talking points are not tax cuts for the rich or denying climate change. It's civil war. Somebody is feeding them two types of talking points. One that flows from uh, the nullification crisis before the civil war that led to the civil war. And there's another series of talking points that flow from Goebbels and Hitler. And somebody is studying Joseph Goebbels and... No. Well, it is it is the flood of it is that uh, there's a good Rand, Rand organization study on the fire hose of falsehood that uh, largely explains Russian propaganda, which essentially goes back to Goebbels in, in the sense that it's constantly repetitive and iterated. Um, the, the, the constant repeating of lies uh, eventually, you know, uh, conditions you to to accept its its normalcy and. Pretty much, that's uh, that's what they keep doing, and we're currently in that cycle relative to the um, raid on Mar-a-Lago, and uh, you know, it, I I think uh, what had to be done had to be done today with with uh, Merrick Garland saying, "Well, I'm going to call your bluff, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna release it, and if you resist that, because Trump can always release it, uh, you know, they're just calling his bluff, you know." And and uh, I think the interesting inference is whatever we get to at the end. Did he have nuclear secrets? Was it a new weapon? He, we know that he really has a thing for yakking about secret new weapons that nobody knows about. He's done that several times before, for example, with the hypersonic missiles. The reality, of course, is that no, everybody knows that we are working on hypersonic missiles. So it's no no big deal. But he was, you know, was another one of these um, uh measuring ex uh, you know urination exercises with the <laughs> russians when they were talking about uh, hypersonic missiles it's just very silly but but the so fact is very... he's violating the law because he's essentially stolen library books and won't return them professor hussein well i guess i was just gonna say that i mean it seems to be of a piece with so many of the democrats critiques of trump um, which is not to get to the real base problems, it seems to me, uh, but uh, his violation of the norms of what they consider appropriate political culture and behavior. I mean, Anne just mentioned that uh, Trump has loose lips. He likes to brag about these weapons. He likes to be in the know about the secrets and kind of reveal them as ways of staging his own braggadocious, you know, kinds of relations in, in, you know, among other world leaders and so on. Um, but it's not as if those things are really secret. I mean, everybody, you know, already has a kind of knowledge about uh, these weapon systems and so on. So what is it that's so terrible about him doing that is that he's not acting the way other people think the president is supposed to act. I wish that, you know, more of the attention would be on the genuine damage, you know, that he does or that his policies do instead of these, you know, I don't know, kind of um, manneristic 
complaints, um, which, you know, I don't find myself very much in sympathy with, because if we're talking about misuse of uh, mishandling of classified documents and, you know, issues like that, I realize that there's a range of issues. There's some we talked already uh, on the show on Monday. I talked a little bit about the presidential yeah, it was great. You know, records, yeah. records act. And, um, and um, I think um, uh, Reverend Barry might be right that the one key provision that they're interested in in the Presidential uh, Records Act is the uh, provision that suggests that if you violate this law, then you can't run for president. But that probably is, you know, I mean, this is like a back way. If this is the Democrats' key strategy for trying to win the election in 2024, they should really be reconsidering. You know, this is not the kind of thing that's going to work, and it probably is unconstitutional. But when it comes to this, you know, secrecy issues, the mishandling of classified documents, I would much rather be taking the position not of defending the permanent state or the deep state uh, and their logics behind security, surveillance, government, uh, you know, emergency or uh, ways of, of, of um, you know, derailing transparency for reasons of national security or, you know, raison d'etat. You know, I, I would much rather critique the fact that we are over um, classifying things. There's rampant government secrecy, classifying absolutely everything. They always err on the side of caution because there's absolutely no incentives for transparency. There are only incentives for erecting more and more secrecy and preventing democratic review, whether it's by Congress, whether it's by, you know, the public for government actions and decision making um, that should be defended and should be, you know, clarified um, and should be open to critique and review. And it's and so much many of the decisions are being made behind closed doors without any public access, that it's actually a complete epic epidemic. So I'd much rather be talking about that. I'd much rather be, I'm on the side of the whistleblowers. I'm on the sides of the leakers uh, who bring these things to light. And, um, you know, how can we have this sort of a discussion about trying to bring down Trump because he may have, you know, taken documents that are supposed to be classified, you know, to Mar-a-Lago uh, and mishandle them when, you know, we're pursuing this extradition of uh, Julian Assange, I'm much more concerned about the fact that those who have actually exposed some of these secrets are being viciously prosecuted mm -hmm. under the Espionage Act. Obama was as bad or worse. I mean, uh, I think there were nine or ten times as many prosecutions under Obama of people who government employees who leaked information, who were whistleblowers under the Espionage Act. Uh, that seems to me the real problem. And it's really unfortunate that the Democrats are trying to, it's kind of like how Obama tried to run to the right of, um, you know, his Republican opponents on the war on terror by saying, well, you know, Iraq, you know, was uh, not the not the war that we should have been fighting. They took their eye off the ball. And that's the real critique that I have of the Bush administration is that they took their eye off of Afghanistan. And that's where we really need to be, you know, in. And I'm going to prosecute that really fully. Right. I mean, this was this kind of democratic logic of trying to kind of out 
uh, play, you know, on military and security policy, the, the right wing Republicans. It's a failing strategy. I don't think it works. And we're seeing the same kind of logic now. I think the other issue that about this fascism, I think uh, this this conference is really quite interesting. I've been following all the details, but the fact that it was opened by Viktor Orban uh, and the comments that he made and has recently made about Europe becoming a mixed race society that has to be guarded against, um, you know, I don't want to go on to this uh, uh, right now, but, you know, uh, when I get a chance to talk about it, I mean, I'm very interested in this whole question that the the Bannon, Steve Bannon's kind of imagination of a new kind of uh, Western alliance that could be forged culturally to bring actually the Russians into the right wing um, as part of this kind of fascist or far right and nationalistic uh, alliance uh, against um, basically the Middle East and Asia, which is the Huntington playbook. I mean, this is what Samuel Huntington explicitly wrote in his book and the article about the clash of civilizations was that the real danger for the West um, was the rise of China and, um, you know, the Middle East. And he posited that should there be a, a geopolitical alignment that would bring the Islamic world with uh, China, that would be it for the, you know, the U.S. because then you would have control of Asia, uh, you know, without with the U.S. and the West being locked out. And um, this is exactly the politics of these far right internationalists. That's, I think, what's interesting. We've talked about it in the past uh, that Bannon wanted to forge a kind of far right internationalism and bring together the particular movements that seem to have been surfacing over the last decade or so in Europe, where far right parties have been winning elections, most notably with, uh, you know, Viktor Orban's um, electoral success uh, in in Hungary. He failed at it, though. He was not particularly respected. Um, but it's happening anyway, because structurally there's a reason and there's a logic to it. And this is what will become dangerous. The real question is, is okay, why is it, be, you know, potentially more successful now? Normally, you don't think of ultra-nationalists as being able to cooperate and collaborate with people from other nations because they're nationalists and their unit of analysis is the nation state, right? So far-right extreme nationalists in Hungary, how is it that they're going to cooperate with French nationalists? Bibi Netanyahu in Israel. Well, again, exactly. I mean, so... That's actually a really interesting case. I think we could talk a lot more about about why uh, the his reference point. In fact, actually, Orban mentioned in his speech at at, at uh, CPAC um, that there needs to be an alliance of these uh, groupings that includes like Le Pen and Netanyahu and Likud. Right? I mean. So let's bracket that for a moment, because that's very interesting. That's the question of what does Judeo-Christian mean? I think that's really the question. When they're defining the West as a Judeo-Christian civilization, that's something he also referred to, is that when Europe and the West has departed from its Judeo-Christian roots, then it has you know, faced calamity. So we need to go back to that. But I think what's actually a, a more precise formulation 
for him is this idea of Christian nationalism. In other words, there is an internationalist potential to a transnational Christian identity to be recovered that can allow some of the sharp edges of extreme French nationalism, Hungarian ultra-right nationalism, and other variants to actually find some common ground by forging this idea of a Christian nation as a transnational religious form of nationalism. I mean, it's very dangerous, it seems to me, uh, as an idea. Uh, and it just recalls me to the project uh, that I'm working on in the medieval period, which is of, you the know, crusades. Christendom, of forging Christendom through a crusading society. Uh, and what he fails to recognize when he decries a mixed society in Europe is what is Hungary? I mean, Hungary is forged from migrations from the central steppes. Who are the Magyars? They are a Turkic people, sometimes thought to be similar to or related to the Khazars, another Turkic uh, people from the, you know, the western part of Asia who migrated. I mean, people have heard of Attila the Hun. I mean, it's Hungary because we're talking about the Magyar peoples. We're talking about Huns. We're talking about, you know, Asian migration into parts of Eastern Europe that continues when the Mongols emerge and create their powerful world empire in the middle of the 13th century under Genghis Khan, they push all sorts of Turkic peoples who flee the Mongol armies. And interestingly enough, you know, for uh, um, Viktor Orban, who's claiming that they actually built the wall that Trump talked about and kept this wave of invading, you know, refugees from, you know, coming into Europe uh, that, you know, the the uh, kings of Hungary, you know, resettled and welcomed a lot of these other Turkic tribes who were fleeing the Mongols who came as refugees, basically, to Hungary. Um, and integrated them. So if you're going to look at the real his history of Hungary, it is, is forged from great diversity, uh, huge Jewish population, liquidated, of course, during the Holocaust. But we're talking about a massive Jewish population, you know, in the pre-modern period in Hungary. The largest uh, synagogue in Europe in the 19th century uh, was a uh, a kind of um, Eastern style, you know, Arabic style, Moorish, they used to call it, Moorish style church. Uh, I mean, Moorish style synagogue in, in Hungary. And of course, in addition, you know, um, in addition to Jews, uh, people of Turkic background, uh, there was actually a large Muslim population in the 13th century in Hungary, in what is today's Hungary. I mean, there's such a more complex history of migration, of interaction, of multiplicity, and of diversity, that this is why history is actually so important. The vision of history, of uh, kind of uh, monochromatic, uniform Hungary that has to be defended from new peoples coming from outside, is such a fiction, and it's such a dangerous fiction. Um, dangerous, so anyway, that's, because, uh, dangerous because it leads to what? Well, it re leads to this far-right exclusion that sees uh, people who have a different language or a different culture or of a different race or a different religion as a mortal threat to your identity rather than as part of the historical process that has forged 
hung, you know, a nation into being what it is, which is that there have been constant processes like this. And it has not meant that, um, you know, uh, it has not meant that <laughs> that new groups uh, coming in and, and, and being settled have somehow uh made it impossible to have uh, a, a whole um, integrated uh, culture. It's just that that culture has changed over time. And these are people who don't want to face the inevitable and necessary changes that take place historically of their cultures. The cultures grow. They learn from one another. They absorb influences. They transmit influences. Um they think of it as this kind of bounded organism and that it's like a virus comes in and it's going to sicken and destroy, you know, uh, the cell, but cultures are not cells, cellular organisms, but that's the imagination that you have in this far right kind of mentality of nationalism, um, that sees it as a bounded entity that has to be protected from anything that's different. Um, and then will take any extreme emergency measures because it's a, uh, existential or, you know, existential threat. Um, so it authorizes any form of suppression of minority rights, of violence against uh, people who are different. Um, that's the, the inherent logic of that sort of politics and that political and historical imagination. Wow. Uh, I, I have a, let's go to, prof thank you, Professor Bick, what would you like to talk about? Well, um, I certainly agree with Adnan that, uh, you know, Christian nationalism is a, a clear and present danger, uh, not only in the United States, but uh, around different uh, countries in the world. And, um, you know, someone said in, in the, uh, the chat earlier that uh, Republicans uh, have always been uh, fascists. And whether or not that's true, I, I'm not going to argue here, but I will say uh, what's different is that they are explicitly anti-democratic, small d democratic today, that they have no regard for the will of the American people for elections. If their candidate doesn't win, then it's not legitimate. That's not democracy. That's just saying we always win or else it's not it's not fair. Um, you know, this is a real problem we we are in a very, very dangerous place. Um, and and I wanted to, um, I think, disagree with something you said in your opening monologue, David. Good. When you were talking about John Stewart and his uh, role in getting uh, medical money for medical treatment for soldiers that were exposed to uh, toxic burn pits and so forth in, in Iraq, um, I agree that that's a good thing, right? But I think what, and you also said, um, you know, he worked the system. And, I, and what you seem to be implying was that's what we should be doing is to simply work the system. Now, let's take a look at who is working the system and toward what end. 
first of all, it's a multimillionaire neoliberal hack, as you described him. So he is clearly no threat to the political interests that the Democratic and Republican parties cater to. He's no threat to the profits of corporations. And what he's actually doing is strengthening the foot soldiers of imperialism. Which, you know, and I'm saying, you know, and, and many of those soldiers don't realize that's what they're doing. And they should get medical treatment. But in the end, his actions are strengthening the military of an imperial power. What were they doing in Iraq? Well, you're not allowed to say that. Well, that's why I say it. I'm still allowed to say it. I'm going to. Hang on. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the other thing was. Well, that hang on. Let me let me just yeah. let me respond to that. Because. You have they are victims and they some of them are no doubt. Right. And you cannot. Some blame. of them know what they're doing. Let's not give them all a pass. But I would say probably most of them are victims. Yeah. OK. And uh, taken advantage of exploited. They should have never been sent there in the first place. And everybody deserves health care. Everybody. I'm, I'm opening you up now for the next <laughs> statement. Every, you cannot fault John for wanting these soldiers to get the health care they deserve. Therefore, you, you should say. Uh, we should have health care for everyone in America, not just soldiers. Right. Uh, certainly, we should take care of uh, soldiers of the, of the military. Uh, but what the military principally does and has been doing for at least the last century um, is not in the interest of the American people as a whole. And we should recognize that. And the people who serve in the military should recognize that. Uh, you know, with the exception of World War II, it's kind of hard to make an argument that the deployment of U.S. military forces is to protect democracy and do what's best for the majority of American people. Crushing democracies in Central and South America, uh, in the Middle East, I think Iran, um, in, in Asia, all, I, all over the world. That's not in the interest of Americans. Not not the majority of Americans, you know, the, the few that own the, the productive capacity of this country, maybe, but not the majority. So um, and the other thing I wanted to push back was, by the way, and the VA. Is this is the this is the other tragedy. The VA is single payer. The VA has been gutted by the Bush administration going back. But it used to be the gold standard of medical care in America. It, the VA used to be an example of. Well, the VA is not single payer. The VA is socialized medicine. 
Right. It's a step beyond. Right. Right. It's the government providing the doctors work for the government. That's correct. It's more like the um, the uh, the service in the uh, UK, the uh, National Health Service. And if you ask veterans, but only for veterans, if you ask veterans, do you like the VA as much as they complain about it? They would never replace it. They don't want it privatized. The, the, The other story about the VA is this is the best America has to offer in terms of health care is the VA. As bad as uh, we've treated our soldiers, it's better uh, than most people get in this country. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, you know, the, the other point I wanted to return to is when you said he was working the system But this whole episode displays how sick this system is. I mean, the the hegemon of the world won't even take care of the soldiers that make its hegemony possible. Right. Wow. But he pointed that out. What the hell? Right. You know, they treat them disposably. So Jon Stewart, in effect, is trying to rescue the Imperium. In that sense. Listen, yeah. nobody it's wants a, to beat up on John Stewart more than I do. <laughs> Trust me. I know he wasn't thinking that, but but, 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 but in, I mean he in, did in reality, he, that's what he, he's but doing. It, it, he did when he was cursing on the Capitol steps, he kind of said that. He kind of attacked American exceptionalism and said, if this is American, we're effed. And he he's he said you couldn't wait to send these soldiers off to war, but now when they come home. He didn't go as far as you did, but you, you again, you can't, he worked the system. Yes. And, you know, it, it, it's amazing that the system would have to be worked to result in this outcome. You would think that an empire would take care of the military that makes its empire possible. But he had to do extraordinary things in order to get them to actually take care of the soldiers so that they can recruit new soldiers. Right. And that those new soldiers can believe, oh, yes, the government's going to take care of me because I'm taking care of our country. We needed Jon Stewart to be a hero so our government would perform human decency. It takes a hero to to do get the government to do the bare minimum. Yeah, and that's that is exposing how sick the system is, right? It it can't even function to do what uh, most of your audience doesn't want it to do, which is to be a global empire. What would happen if we had more people like Jon Stewart? If we had more people like Jon Stewart. If we had more rich celebrities... Who who stormed the Capitol the way he did? Who and he has the resources to do that. I understand. But we also have also have you know George Clooney and we we have Matt Damon. We have people. Although Matt Damon is doing cryptocurrency commercials, but uh, if Bruce Springsteen, if more people did what John Stewart did, would there be working the system for? the 99%, would there be 
more guardrails uh, for capitalism. You asked me if if we had more people like John Stewart. Well, clearly he's not pro union. He is not pro union. So at least not, not when, it, union, at least not when the, it affects his bottom line. But if but he got this bill passed. Imagine yeah. you cannot take that away from him. No, I don't, and I'm glad it passed. Right. But at the same time, when you look at it from a structural point of view of what it's actually accomplishing beyond helping those particular soldiers that were treated, were being treated as expendable. Right. Um, what you, what you, when you look at it and say, wow, you know, uh, this is going to increase recruitment. Uh, this is going to continue the fiction that the U.S. government is taking but care of. Aren't they of having trouble recruiting now? And they are, yeah. Don't you even, think? Even in that reality, they still wouldn't pass this bill to take care of the health of soldiers that put their lives and health on the line for their imperial endeavors. Right, but it's now, amazing. But 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 by pointing this out, by drawing attention to this, John has maybe inadvertently or on purpose reduce the number of people who enlist reduce them they're having trouble getting recruits we're, we're not going to be good well it's a, for another conversation we're not going to be sending troops into harm's way if the pentagon has their way i think they've cut out they've they've figured out how to cut out the middleman get rid of the troops and just give weapons. The Pentagon was always a clearinghouse for the military industrial complex. Why send soldiers when you can just have other people fight your wars by giving them our weapons? And as Professor Hussein uh, was told by Noam Chomsky, it's, it's the Keynesian stimulus package without any soldiers getting killed. That's where we're heading. The military. Well, I, I, I guess it's better than World War Three or, or nuclear annihilation. I yeah. hope we're not heading there. That's a possibility as well. Go ahead, Professor Hussein. I just wanted to say it seems like the military is mostly procurement officers. You know, I mean, OK, there are soldiers, but they're heavy on the ground. You know, basically people who work with contractors, suppliers, uh, and so on. And uh, when they're done with the military, if you're a, a procurement officer, then you get a nice uh, position uh, working for some of these companies because you can advise on what's the best way to propose your uh, products and so on uh, to the Defense Department. But that's the other side of globalism in the sense that subcontracting your warfare is uh, cost saving. It allows you to save costs at the national level, but allows you to project power. Right. It, it, it's what Russia is doing with its Wagner group. You know, that if you have more mercenaries, you, you don't have to. I mean, they don't have any VA. <laughs> the, the Wagner guys don't get benefits. <laughs> right. Um. Well, the, yeah, I mean, looking at the Wagner group, Putin's private army, it's terrifying to think this is what Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are 
talking to Betsy DeVoe's brother, Eric Prince, about from Blackwater. This is how many steps away are we from a palace guard that will be, you know, Donald Rumsfeld wanted to fight this war on the cheap, Iraq. No body armor for our soldiers, right? Then they use Blackwater, who made billions, and they're not giving that up. They, Eric Prince wants to stay in business. Uh, this is this is terrifying stuff to think of. They're pushing now the idea that Donald Trump is in danger. Steve, I played at the top of the show, Bannon and uh, uh, Bernard Carrick both talked about the Democrats wanting to, you know what, to Donald Trump. I don't even want to say the words. Uh, this is what happened in Nazi Germany, where they, they, Hitler needed his own security because the, F, the, the, the German government couldn't protect him. And then they absorbed his police into uh, the army, into the army and into the government. They're reading, Bannon is reading about Hitler. They know exact, right? Professor Hussein, you're nodding your head. They're studying Hitler, not as a cautionary tale, are they? No, it's uh, the how-to manual, but also, okay, what they did right, what they did wrong kind of thing. How can we improve, um, you know, uh, and be more successful? And I think what we're seeing is um, this very clever uh, way of reframing. This is why I said Christian nationalism uh, as the way to develop Christian uh, Christian fascism is very, very useful because they can try to use that to distance themselves from Nazism and claim Nazism was a different kind of ideology. It was more about this kind of pagan ethno-national heritage um, and that there were church figures who opposed him and that he wasn't necessarily that keen on Catholicism, et cetera, et cetera. There are ways that they may try to uh, divorce fascism. Orban from, specifically said that. He said all yes. the world's horrors come from people abandoning Christianity. That's right. And that Christian politicians cannot be racist. In other right. words, you know, whatever it is you do to protect your kind of Christian identity, Christendom as a kind of territorial and cultural and geopolitical unit is allowable, is authorized because, um, you know, they're drawing a line between whatever it is, the way they want to shape this kind of far-right ideology around some a few different bases um, and different vectors to distinguish it from Nazism and uh, communism and other to so-called totalitarian movements and present this as a defense of freedom. Right. So this is where this populist anti-government and anti-elite, right. anti which is what Hitler did. Hitler had he socialist. did exactly the same thing. That's the thing is that it is so parallel. It's just a matter of a few vocabulary changes and a few different references to legacies of history than what, you know, uh, you know, Hitler was emphasizing uh, in order to, you know, um, preserve, it seems to me, um, uh 
you know, the fiction that this is not fascism. Right. Right. That that's that's and that is interesting that they don't want to. They are studying it that you we will find that there will be further embrace of it. They will say things increasingly. There will be people who will say things that weren't possible to say for the last 50, 60 years. But overall, what has allowed, I think, the emergence of this new far right internationalism is forging some idea of Western civilization that is transnational and can be embedded in Christian identity. And the real question is, is, well, where do Jews fit into this, right? I mean, because obviously that's a problem. I mean, Nazism, you know, I mean, and we still have anti-Semitism, you know, deeply at the root of this. It's how, however, the way in which he can say that Likud is okay is because Zionism allows for a new form of Jewish identity. And nationalism. Out, yeah, as a form of Jewish nationalism outside of Europe. Okay, so not in Europe. This was the problem. You know, the Jewish question was, well, how do we give full citizenship rights or not? How do we integrate them into this new construction of nation state identities with this ethno religious minority? How do you how do you do that? That was like, you know, the, the question. Um, and one solution for it is, of course, uh, well, they have their own state and preferably, you know, you know, in this era of colonialism, that they do so as a settler colony elsewhere. And so that can be, you know, a way for washing the anti-Semitism of Orban. Orban is a deep anti-Semite, uh, but he can kind of make this pretense that, oh, no, I'm I'm in favor of Likud. And I think, you know, the policies of Bibi Netanyahu are wonderful and we can collaborate. Right. Right. So people that's, yeah. I think, how it's working. Right. Uh, I'll give everybody the last word. Uh, Professor Ann Lee, please. Uh, I, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with this degree of discourse because, uh, you know, we're we're reaching that point where it's possible to over to we're in a current propaganda battle and it, and you can see how they've been flooding you know the the entire field is flooded with this kind of messaging and and fascism requires that kind of flooding that that it dominates or pushes out the uh, diversity of discourse and and i think that that's what we're we're seeing now where it it pushes out diverse points of view pushes out minority languages, um, is anti-pluralistic. In fact, we have to have a, a sort of renewed kind of interest in pluralism that is that is becoming, uh, unfortunately, uh, closed out by this kind of nationalism. So anyway, that's <laughs> that that's my take on it. Professor Bick. Um, I don't think I want to add anything more. Uh I, I've got something, but I'll, I'll uh, share no, but, it with you next time. Okay. Uh, this was amazing. Amazing. Everybody should read Professor Ann Lee, Annie Lee over Daily Co's. Uh, the best, I always just type in Annie Lee Daily Co's and it takes me right there. Every midnight, you have an update on Ukraine. So, uh, and it's great. And Professor Adnan Hussein has Noam Chomsky on guerrilla history. 
What more do you have to say about that? I would go down. Well, not much. I mean, we also have a great series, Sanctions uh, as War. The first episode of that uh, series comes out tomorrow. And I believe the week after then, the Chomsky interview with him and Vijay Prashad about their book, which is kind of a conversation uh, uh, between them uh, called The Withdrawal, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Fantastic. On guerrilla history. Thank you all. And we'll see Professor Jonathan Bick teaching. Uh, Joe in Norway, knows he's speeding up. He's, he tries to finish everything right on time. He's racing. You can slow down, Joe. We're, it's not a race. I, it's, I know it's, a, uh, it's personal pride. You want to finish the food. You can relax. We're, we're going to be here. And Professor Jonathan Bick will be at Office Hours teaching Star Trek as well as the Twilight Zone. Please join us for office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I hold down the fort starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, and then it's turned over to the rest of the community. Uh, Joe, relax. I have a new book, an old new book. It is The British Marxist Historians, written by... Professor Harvey J.K., a new preface from him, as well as a forward from by Eric Hobswam. And I have been the bomb. I know. Uh, <laughs> and this is exciting. This is this is your first book, right? It, it, you mean, it, yes, it was my first book. It was your first book. It's not it is. It was. Right. Well, you've also yeah. written The Powers of the Past, The Education of Desire, Why Do Ruling Classes Fear History, and Other Questions, Thomas Paine, Firebrand of Revolution, Are We Good Citizens, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and then there's a whole host of other books that you've Edited, FDR on Democracy is the most recent one, which everybody should pick up. And uh, thank you for this book. It's not signed, but uh, that's... Uh, it sure it is. No, it isn't. Oh, my God, it is. Oh, my God. Thank you. You know how to read a book, right? You open the tough thing, yes. you turn the page. I, I, it looks so... And also joining us is Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. Joe in Norway, uh, I am lightheaded. What did you make? Oh, that was a close one. I, I know. I, you don't need to do that. that that's very cute I that you were trying to... He tries to finish this exactly on time. Now, look at this. He's coming to us from Spain. Look at this, Alan Minsky. Look at, look at Professor Harvey J.K.'s face. The pain on your face. Yeah. What's really what's really interesting to me is what what, what that's not this, is that eggplant. What is that? This yeah. is fried eggplant with is eggplant? A, a vinegar and um, molasses reduction. That was great. Very very nice uh, combination there. The the vinegar and the sugar cut the sweetness and the vinegar mm -hmm. and the acid and the vinegar cut the fat of the. Eggplant and it's nice and juicy inside. Speaking of juicy, we've got uh, garbanzos called nespinacas, so stewed spinach, 
more of a winter dish. Mm. And then uh, not so poor potato, poor man's potatoes, just uh, confit, uh, shallots, and potato. Nice little snacks. And now I've got to check on my phone because it overheated while I was deep frying and shut off. That's why we lost the bit of the Unbelievable. You're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to have to do a, you're going to have to do a cookbook and your own cooking channel. This is it's intoxicating. Thank you, Joe in Norway. We'll see you tomorrow for office hours and ASMR for the eyes continues. Let's go to Dave in PA and Chad. Hello, Dave in PA. Hi, Dave. Hi. Uh Chad's buggered off. I can't find him. I was just looking for him. Well, buggered off. I'm gonna have to fly solo. Easy on huh? easy on saying Chad and buggered off in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> well, he brought it back with him from the slammer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. What will you be doing anyway, today? Uh, I'm doing a staircase next week, and I'm going to. Uh, By the way, how were the a, cherry? You went to a wedding. You made some cherry goblets. How were they received? The wedding was great, and when I finish those goblets, I'm sure they'll receive them uh, oh. with grace. <laughs> I didn't finish in time, uh -huh. but I enjoyed the wedding, and I enjoyed uh, breakfast with uh, Professor John. Brunch, I should say. Oh, you had brunch? Look at that. Yeah. Now, Professor K, you are one of the found. You're the founding father of Office Hours, and Professor Jonathan Bick, and Dave and P.A., had brunch. Did you ever think from this little acorn of office hours when we first started it two years ago, a mighty oak of a relationship between Dave and PA and Professor Jonathan Bick would would sprout into brunch? Did you yes. really do brunch? Yes. I knew it would happen. We well, not only that, David, uh, next in two weeks is uh, shop camp 22 the second annual shop camp and uh this time it's in uh wisconsin or not wisconsin oh yeah wisconsin and minnesota instead of pennsylvania with andy yeah with yeah i'm andy. heading i'm driving out this time they drove out last year i'm driving out this year right and hannah my daughter uh was there uh yeah last year yeah yeah and we'll be able to watch some of it at office hours right damn right Okay. Is it held at Andy's farm? Uh, part of it, yeah. We we don't call him Andy anymore. No? We we call him uh, the Candy Man. Candy Andy. He's uh, our pharmacist. I don't know. Well, we, we decided he's an expert on pharmacy. Like, I, given what I see here, you probably just call him pussy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, those jokes are... <laughs> All in <laughs> Professor Harvey K's first book, The British. This is what I do. I'm like Trump. Everything I touch turns bad. Go pick up the British Marxist Historians by Professor Harvey J.K. Uh, and I want to talk to you about Grace interviewing you going over this. Uh, what are you going to be building, Dave and P.A.? Oh, okay. Real quick. I'm doing a staircase next week and uh, it's got a square newel post at the bottom. And I, and I thought about a design for the cap. Uh, 
and I'm going to try it out tonight. It's going to, I'm going to turn it round and then cut it square and, and see and the see combined shape. Fantastic. And professor, uh, prof uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn was talking about the staircase, which is a 12 part series about the FBI that he recommends. So it all comes together. Well, is there any relationship between the Overton window and the staircase? Yes, you. Okay. Uh, the I, well, I was going not going to do it. Uh, not. And how are you, Alan? I noticed you you left the K out of your name tonight, or somebody yeah. did. Alan oh. Minzy joins us. Yeah, Alan that's Minzy. really strange. I, I'm not responsible for that. Yeah, I, I probably um, am. Hannah is. I, yeah, with Harvey J.K. as a co-author, I you know, there's so many K's running around. There, there we go. Fixed it. Somebody right. changed it. I didn't change it. I Normally, just, I don't have a professor since I'm not part of the professor's team that precedes I, us. I'm usually just Harvey J.K. I don't think I usually have the professor in front of my name. Not part of that. Well, I, I'm around. doing. I'll, I'll tell you, Hannah, my daughter, yeah. does the bookings, and she's off in the woods doing a vacation or a camp or something, ha something that makes her happy, which I. Uh, which woods did she head to? She's at some camp, a performing arts camp where she teaches. And, you mean like New York State or? Well, I don't want to violate her privacy. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I wasn't trying to stalk yeah. her. Anymore. Yeah. But uh, she's been going to this performing arts camp since she was a kid with the other wow. children that I have. And I never approved of their being happy. And uh, <laughs> life is too short to be happy. Be happy. <laughs> I don't. I told them you weren't put on this earth to be happy. I really did tell them that. <laughs> uh, I think happiness is a waste of time. I'd give anything to just have 30 seconds of just calmness. But let's talk about we have... A, a, a By the way, do you remember that? Sorry, just before, as long as we're schmoozing at first. Yeah. So I just blanked on a name. I feel terribly embarrassed. The animal psychologist, the behavior. <laughs> remember her from Arizona? Yeah, University it's hot Arizona? in here. Dr. Huh? Jen. Yes, right. So I had a communication with her earlier in the summer. I meant to mention to you, but she was heading off to Africa for a while or something like that. Yeah, so. I haven't. There, there have been some people. We haven't had a falling out. Some people, I have, I have had a falling out with. Yeah. Some people get really busy. I, I do have to uh, call Doctor Jen. I'm really bad. I think uh, she's due back in September. I could be wrong. I'm really. I'm a horrible human being in terms of keeping up with people. Like there are people who, like my mother, passed away. Well, you don't answer my texts. I I do know that. I am the worst. I, I have people who have sent me notes and cards and called me and about my mom, and I just have not. You know, I don't. I well, uh, so I, unfortunately, your your mom passed away, and I'm really I was trying to communicate with, with you at the time, and I was in New York at the time. And we were possibly going to get together, but I'm going to be back in New York in the last week of August. I will see you. And Grace Jackson is coming in next week. Hang on. Whenever I mention my mom, I have to, what's good for the goose. I remember you were appalled when I did that to, uh, I'm going to try this. Uh, 
What, I'm sorry. Oh, your Joe in Norway is feeding. Okay, so Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, the senator, Republican, yes. unpopular. We have an opponent. Is he good? Who is Mandela um, Barnes, Lieutenant Governor Mandela? Lieutenant Barnes. Lieutenant Governor from Milwaukee, comes from a labor back labor family. Well, both members of his family were labor. Um, I thought he ran a mediocre campaign, but he was the best known of the Democratic candidates. And I believe since it was wrapped up, he's come out with a far more significant platform online. And uh, right now, the polls are pretty much, you know, even, you know, a margin of error kind of thing, but pretty much even. I will tell you this, Johnson, and I assume the Republicans all across the country are doing the same, is running a campaign that emphasizes inflation caused by Biden and the big spending Democrats. And the the uh, Mandela Barnes has come out, you know, for all the kinds of things you expect Democrats to come out for. And it'll be just a matter, I think, of how much people have become disgusted with Republicans and uh and, and Johnson in particular, because the the vote for Barnes is fairly is I think will be fairly predictable where the strengths will be and all that. And the question is, possibly will folks sort of at the edges turn to the Democratic camp because Johnson's just so abysmal and the Republicans are are what they are. Mandela but, Barnes is African-American. Ron Johnson. Oh, yes. Yeah, I should have said that. And Ron right. Johnson has a problem uh, with African-Americans. He said something like. Uh, he was grateful January 6th wasn't BLM, that he felt safe knowing it wasn't Black Lives Matter oh, storming geez. the Capitol. Yeah. Uh, you also have uh, a... You have a governor's race underway. And Trump succeeded, right? He, well, he succeeded. Well, the Republican in the Republican race for the nomination, a woman who I thought might actually win... Rebecca Clayfish, who I recall was maybe a lieutenant governor for Scott Walker, at least one term. I, I'm, you know, people don't usually pay attention to lieutenant governors. All of a sudden, lieutenant governors were significant this time around. Uh, was running against a man named Michael, M-I-C-H-E-L, and Trump backed Michael, and he won Michael. Um, Construction tycoon. But yeah, I mean, something like that, I yeah. guess. I mean... I already know where I'm voting, so I haven't really paid much attention yeah. beyond that. The speaker, the Republican speaker of the assembly, it's interesting. There you go. Trump and he have, ent have entered into a real battle. They're, you know. What, Over what 2020. A, what? Over 2020, right? The, Over the, 2020. The speaker, the Republican speaker, wasn't cooperating. Right. With, he wasn't quite aggressive enough in, in those terms. Yeah. Right. 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 Uh, Alan, but, I mean, it's just all this stuff, you know, it's hard to keep up with it. I'm impressed you have. Well, I, it's only the future <laughs> of our democracy. Yeah, I know. But these, these kinds of, th you know, the divide between Republicans and Democrats is so great that it's like in any given moment, it's going to be, whether people wake up in the morning and decide to go out and vote almost right is what I'm is the, is the way I look is the way I feel about this. I mean, the country's divided. 
There's no dramatic shifts and transfers. The only thing, obviously, that is striking is that the Democrats, I think we mentioned this last week, the Democrats may not lose, but may, in fact, even pick up a seat or more in the Senate, right? Right. That's that's interesting, which is why the Barnes thing is itself is a value. So, uh Alan Minsky, executive director of. The- but, I, but can I say one other thing? Yeah, as please, as, please. As, yeah. I mentioned this. We, Alan and I had a conversation about some other stuff earlier in the day. And I said to him that one of the thoughts that occurs to me here in Wisconsin is the degree to which, given the Republican control over the sort of House races, it seems to me, is that instead of where, instead of coattails bringing along other seats down, you know, lower down, it might well be the case that coat collars, I haven't used that, but coat collars would might work, where the at the grassroots, the Republicans may well do well, better than than the, in the Senate races. And that may actually drive the Republican, you know, Senate race here and the Republic, sorry, the, the Senate race and the governor's race. That's what I would worry about to the extent that however oh, so it would smart, bubble up yeah sorry a bubble exactly exactly and and i think i think you know i said to alan earlier that wisconsin was always noted for smart voters ever since walker i'm not quite so sure about that but one thing i do know is that i'd like to know how many people when they walk into the you know, into the booth just check off or pull the lever party wise and if that's the case then I'm I'm not confident the Democrats will because they may be walking in convinced they're going to vote for the congressperson and as a consequence, just pull down the thing. It'll, it'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. If you live in Wisconsin, remember this question, are you better off today than you were four years ago? If you live in Wisconsin, are you better off today than you were two years ago? I do remember ago? that question. Yeah, I do, rem- I do remember that question. So um, are you better off than you were two years ago? Yeah, I, I'm prejudiced because I'm retired and I'm living better. Right. But most would you is it fair to say, Alan Minsky? I don't know what your your being prejudiced has to why you had to share that with us. I mean, who are you? I'm kidding. Uh, Alan Minsky is America. Are Americans better off than they were two years ago? Are they and do they know they are? Because they um, are better off. Than they were two years ago. Um, Americans um, look. Inflation's a tough thing, and uh, if wages aren't going up, consonant with inflation, then people are losing money. And also, it's a very disorienting thing. Um, it's something that people haven't dealt with for many decades now in the United States, and they've heard about it as being part of the previous crisis that is often referred to and Republicans talk about it all the time. The Fed people talk about it. Got to avoid inflation. Got to avoid inflation. It's something really to fear. And now they're seeing its its negative effects on their day-to-day life. I think the election in um, right now from where we sit, and I know the inflation news was slightly better in July than June. And of course, gas prices continue to go down. Um, I do think that that, of course, is the um, predictable prime determinant of the midterms. If inflation is high, I don't think there's anything the Democrats can do. Um, and we definitely have a strategy that we're going to promote and start promoting publicly within the next week um, that we feel is a winning hand, as strong a winning hand as the Democrats can have in this election cycle in the, in the not 
in the post primaries, so in the general midterms, in terms of holding on to the House and winning seat, seats in the Senate, but all of that would be negated by the increasingly high inflation rate. Um, and the degree to which Americans were able to deleverage their debt to a degree during the, the high portion of the pandemic, the first uh, 18 months of the pandemic, I think that's over now. And uh, debt loads are returning and, uh, and wages are not keeping up with inflation. And in ways that are particularly hitting, you know, middle class, working class people. And of course, poor people did not do well during the pandemic. Right. They don't right. tend. They don't tend to vote much. But so you know, I mean, you definitely have a situation where in Wisconsin, um, you do have an alternative situation: the incumbent who could suffer because of the high inflation, the bad economy, is a Republican. You're talking about um, Evers. If, no, I'm talking about John Johnson. Oh, Johnson. I'm, just, I'm, I'm thinking of Evers. Senator. You yeah. said governor, but yes, yeah, Senate. Oh, sorry. I meant. I meant. Uh, I meant the yeah. Senate. And um, and I'm thinking about holding on to these things because look, we're we're um we're in deep trouble. In this country, if we don't uh, pass some kind of voting rights in the next two years, um, you know, the, the Republicans are going to be very competitive in 2024, whether it's Donald Trump or DeSantis. And uh, a victory by the Republicans in 2024 would have incredibly dire co- consequences for the, you know, the um, Republic, as it were, Democratic Republic. So it's worth uh, trying to do everything we can to, to cut that off as, as fast as possible. Now, if the Democrats hold on to the House and the, and the Senate, in 2022, that would be a huge victory, and we can probably see more progressive policies coming forward. That would be really defying expectations. That's not common. It also would be a big blow to the Trumpian thing, and I think you'll have a lot of infighting in the Republican Party as a consequence. But inflation is the key. If it's high, the Republicans are probably going to take the House. And yeah, the person, it, I, so what do you think if they... So the moratorium is running out, what, weeks away on student they, debt? They'll, they'll, at least, they'll at least extend that. Uh, the, the the student debt moratorium. I don't think they have the mechanism in place to start collecting those. Yeah. Anyway. So wait a, wait a second for one second, please. I yeah. I forgot there is still a moratorium on student debt. Till the end of the month. Till the end of the month. Yeah. And and this has been going on since when? Since Trump put put it in place. Trump put it the in start of start of the pandemic. You know? So. If he extends the moratorium but doesn't relieve student debt, is that the more likely outcome that he just extends the moratorium, kicks the can? A lot of speculation either that will happen or he'll have some kind of student debt relief that he'll announce. He's done a few little marginal things for specific groups. He might do something like that, but there's more expectation and hope that he'll, he'll, um, you know, declare not for the privately held. uh, loans; those are only about eight to ten percent. But for the the ninety percent that the federal government holds, the about a ten thousand uh, dollar relief is what people are anticipating. Maybe a little higher. Most of the student debt. Is, who who holds most of the student debt? The federal government or private lenders? Oh, federal government overwhelmingly. Ninety percent, ninety-two percent. It's managed by private companies. That's where the potential lawsuits come. Oh, so they Navient and companies like that is yeah. So they make a lot of money on fees. Yeah, and on top of that, um, by the way, the average student debt is that high, but a lot of people have actually seen their student debt grow, and there's a question as to whether he'd be relieving the principal, um, and uh, we know what happens then to the accumulated interest for the group for the for the people who've been unable to, unable to pay and have, have seen it gone up, and uh, that's a big question to see what he decides. But he might not decide anything. He may just kick it. Kick the can down the road, 
who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll see. It, it'll be before the end of the month. Um, um, I want to say this final point about the midterms, though, just to give a sense of that there is a lot, you know, this isn't like a Donald Trump is going to destroy democracy election specifically. It's not a presidential election. But if the Democrats lose and the Republican main talking point is that this fiscal policy produced inflation, that could be a really devastating blow that we're going to have to really figure out how we overcome for progressives because, of course, we've been pushing more fiscal spending for progressive policies as at the core of Bernie's agenda. And if they get back into the mix of victory over the Democrats and the major talking point was their fiscal spending caused inflation, that would be a significant defeat for us. Even Larry Summers has been outspoken about how government spending doesn't cause inflation. Are you surprised by Larry Summers now? We have a lot of evidence of that from the last four decades. I mean, this inflation is almost entirely created by um, the supply chain problems, plus um, rent. You know, corp corp corporations didn't make money for a couple of years. They see an opportunity open to them to charge more because of the, the general situation. Yeah, of course, the rent. Uh, but the, but what's, what, what is in the standard indices for inflation is it's supply chain and it's profit taking. And then it's oil. So oil obviously has a compound effect because it's not just oil going into certain things, but it, it's the cost of transportation. So those are the three components. There has been massive federal spending in the past two years, unlike anything we've seen. The bipartisan infrastructure bill, the CARE Act, stuff under uh, Trump. We have this new $300 billion CHIPS bill. The uh, Inflation Reduction Act is coming up. And they are spending money. And if what the Republicans claim is true, inflation should be double digit by now. If all this if federal spending causes inflation with all the spending that's been going on, you would think it would be. The massive amount of spending that occurred in the CARES Act at the top of the pandemic when the society was shutting down in a completely unprecedented way didn't really recirculate in the economy. It was largely it was mainly outlays just to keep businesses afloat and to keep them healthy and to not produce, you know, really right. catapulting massive unemployment. So, um, yeah, I don't think, and we didn't have it for the first uh, uh, 18 months of the pandemic. It's kicked in largely in the last 15 months or so. Maybe I'm getting my timing a little bit wrong. But about halfway through from where we are from the start of the pandemic is when inflation kicked in. What happens, Professor K, if Donald Trump goes away? It is conceivable the, the Republican Party is going, once he declares, they will stop paying his legal be, bills. So a lot of his legal bills are being paid for by the RNC and supposedly donations. If he is no longer running again, what changes? Honestly, I don't see a hell of a lot changing. It strikes me that DeSantis, I mean, DeSantis is as far right and atrocious as uh, Trump. But when you see this fever of violence in the Republican Party, when you see people talking about the deep, dark state and taking on the FBI. Well, the, yeah, I, well, the, the, the language may change, but anyway, consider what is it, the Don't Say Gay Act in down right. in Florida. I mean, you know, it's... I mean, 
it's already the pattern is set. And it started with Gingrich. I mean, it started with the Oklahoma bombing uh, was Gingrich's fault, the Lang and Rush Limbaugh's fault. Uh, goes back. I, 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 maybe I'm not sure about that connection. I mean, it's I. I don't know. I don't know. But the tenor changed, perhaps, but I, I don't know about that. Dana Milbank has a new book out that I've been skimming, and he says this iteration of the Republican Party is the culmination of the Gingrich revolution, that it can be traced directly, the meanness, the, the unwillingness to compromise flows directly from Newt Gingrich in 1994, not Reagan in 1980. Well, that's assuming that there would have been a Gingrich without Reagan. Right. For that matter, Reagan without our friend Carter, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's all, it's, it's, look, Carter did what he did, paved the way to Reagan. The years of the Reagan administration, okay, and, and which already, in essence, was the time of the celebration, wasn't that, that was the age of the, of the celebration of wealth and lifestyles of the, of the rich and famous. Right. It's, you know, it's all there. And, and Gingrich, you know, I mean, obviously he is, is in this, he was in the house and the contract on with America. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, that was not inconsequential. I mean, let's put it this way. It's not like it wasn't predetermined as a consequence of Reagan, but similarly, it wasn't predetermined as a consequence of Gingrich. I mean, the Democrats just literally over and over again fail to respond in fact, not only they what failed to respond, they they literally create, they created the divide. I mean, the neoliberalism of Carter and then Clinton created this this mess. The Republicans couldn't have gotten away with all of this if they hadn't been empowered by the Democrats during all those years. I've said this before. I said it when Trump was nominated. I said it when. Uh, Bush destroyed the country. Uh, not to be an accelerationist, but have things gotten so bad? Have the Republicans run out of an argument? And yeah, I, I mean, I, I've, I've asked myself, what are the chance? There, there are no longer any. There is no bringing back a Republican Party of the likes of the past. Say the, the Nick, the, uh, it's going to sound funny, Eisenhower, Nixon, remember I'm talking party, not mm -hmm. uh, Eisenhower, Nixon kind of years. Right. Right. I mean, it's, or, you know, it's just not, that's not going to happen. This party, that party must be destroyed. Right. Either by itself or by somehow, you know, a, we've lost, we've lost the opportunities of the crisis crises we've seen for the Democrats to actually create a brand new Democratic Party and destroy the Republicans by way of their national programs, their reinvestments in areas of the country that have been neglected, their um, reductions of it, the reduction of inequality. I mean, there's all those things that might well have happened that could have changed. I mean, two years ago, I don't know if I was telling you, but two, in, on any number of shows, I said two years ago, 
that if the Democrats can take office, if they can actually create such things as the, the you know, was it the Civilian Climate, no, what's it called? The, the Civilian CCC Climate Corps? The new CCC. Yeah. If, if they could create opportunities where young people, okay, can come together from around the country and get to, and, and literally have to work together and as a consequence, get to know each other. If, if you could actually change, okay, the circumstances in which young people themselves are, you know, are There's, without solidarity into moments of solidarity. I, you could literally have made it. It would have been a radical difference in the direction of this country. Over and over again, the Democrats have just turned their back on all. I, I hesitate to use the word lessons of history, but we have enough examples from history that show that for all of the what, whatever difficulties ensued as a consequence of dramatic and radical change, the country was better off. I mean, just better off. And I'm confused on why you say, I mean, we knew that Joe Biden winning and we knew where the 180 out of the 220 members of the House Democratic Caucus were coming from previously. I mean, I had no illusions that they were going to just magically be persuaded by AOC and the Green New Deal proposal that they were going to support, uh, you know, a, a strong. No, I, I didn't for a moment believe that Biden's election was going to be the election of, of Bernie Sanders and, and a new a new Congress. But there were things inside of Biden's platform that struck me as offering possibilities for 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 changing. The, if you like, I, I, I also believe that there's a way to to regenerate the Republican Party that you you described, which is that we get those elements of the Democratic Party out of the Democratic Party and have them go to their natural home in the Tory Party, right? So Jamie, well, Dimey, that would be great. Except we picked up all those. Uh, all the neocons we picked up, okay, the suburban Republicans who are not favorably inclined to the kinds of progressive. Uh, by the way, I do agree with you. That's always a possibility. But that means you'd have to you you would have to have secured a progressive hold. I mean, one thing that I that I adore about the, 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 white, is, the white working class, basically, you, you've got to get the white working class back into the Democratic Party. Yeah, you've got to do it then you really do need unions because you need an in institutional backbone that's both inside and outside of, besides civic organizations like PDA, they, they can supplement this, but I, you know, just because of the nature of contract law, you need unions. They're just much more stable as, as institutions. And if you get the working class organizing to try to have higher wages, and then you have strong union institutions, now that's that's a long shot. And maybe in some respects, it's easier to build up uh, civic organizations at this point, um, you know, just, that takes takes less less effort and people come and go. But yeah. but I think I think again, um, you'd have to have a strong backbone because you'd be going up against all of American capital. But you know, the American political system has never been organized that that clearly in terms of class lines between the two parties. And uh, but that's always got to be the goal. I think if we're going to use a two party system to transform the society in the way that we need. And also, the other thing too about everything you're saying is. I do think in some ways we have history on our side. You know, if America is going to remain this national entity, I just don't see how it can be a well-functioning society, except for the policies that you were sort of leaning towards and outlining just now. So somebody's got to adopt them and advocate for them. You know, like yeah, no, right. If, if, yeah, I'm, I don't, I wouldn't argue with that. I'm just, my, my view of the near future 
and longer term, actually, of the United States is I'm not saying I'm not saying it's it's predetermined, but I am actually rather pessimistic. I mean, I think, look, what the Democratic Party stood by and actually encouraged this round in this in this midterm elections. Okay, the bringing in of those billionaires dollars to, to crush progressive candidates. Okay, and but and the and the most telling ones. Okay, Nina's is very telling given the, the scale of the attack. But and but the most telling one is that Jessica Cisneros versus Cuellar. That was the most to me, that was like said everything. Because it wasn't just Democrats standing back, it was Pelosi and her ilk actually going to bat for Cuellar, who represents everything, everything that that the Democratic Party claims to 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 oppose right i mean right. i mean that union, union. Tell, you know i mean he's pro, look, the pro he's the last pro-life democrat the last no, the only democrat who voted against the pro act the pro-union bill really yeah, mm-hmm. yeah the only, the, it passed the house and one vote one democrat voted against it henry queer wow i mean it's inconceivable to me that they would have that you know, it's one thing to be surreptitious about it, but to be so blatant about it. So, look, and now I know they're old; they'll be out of the way soon. And but the you know, and the question is, to what extent do we get nailed with uh, what's his name, Jeffries next? Yeah. The um. By the way, I mean this this election results on Tuesday outside of Wisconsin. We did have a good pickup in Vermont. It was a good thing. Uh, the lieutenant governor there was a centrist who many people feared was going to win. And fortunately, just like Tom Nelson in Wisconsin, one of the two progressives dropped out, clearing the way for the other progressive to win, which is great. So we will have a more progressive uh, Democratic caucus in from Vermont than in, in Capitol Hill than we've had previously, because Welch is more progressive than Leahy. And Welch is, is, is going to be the new senator. And, and then also Ilhan Omar, who we dodged a bullet. We would, oh, yeah. we would be talking about nothing else except that loss. And it was super close. Three thousand. we did survive votes. that. Yeah. Yeah. APAC stayed out of that for some reason, right? Oh, they didn't go full bore. They went. They were there, but they didn't go. They didn't, you know, drop that. <laughs> they spent a lot more against Andy Levin. Right. I think they, like everybody else, didn't think it was going to be close. And that, that they had wasted a lot of money on the last cycle there. So, yeah. And in uh, Washington, uh, Buell, uh, the the moderate Republican lost to a Trump uh, back candidate. Um, it's so, Trump did well generally across Arizona and all sorts of places recently. Yeah, is that good or bad going into the midterms? That Trump. That's like that's that's something that's been bugging me. I keep asking myself. Inflation is going to be the prime determinant, so it could be horrible. Yeah, unbelievably horrible. Right. I mean, just get you just are going to pay. Inflation is not something you lose sight of on a day in day out. Everybody notices it every day. And if the closer we get to October, and it's still ongoing, it's a bad scene. So hopefully the gas prices will keep coming down, and that number will go down. From it went down from June to July, you know, zero point six percent. We got to hope it keeps coming down. Right. Yeah. What are you optimistic about? Me? Yeah. 
cooler weather is coming. It was only 75 degrees today in Wisconsin. I heard you were pretty hot out in New York, right? Yeah, another hot day. Yeah, and I can't run the air conditioner during the oh, show. That's real. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Really? Well, I do it for several reasons. One is it's like meatless Monday. If I can go eight hours without air conditioning, I feel I'm helping the planet because it's a vicious cycle. You use the air conditioning and then it heats up the planet. Lynn, are you raising your hand? Let me see if Lynn. Lynn? You have your hand. I, I, that was an accident. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. That's uh, Let's invent a question for her to ask. Yeah. Yeah. You've been called on. Ask a question. Come on. You um, guys. How many, okay. How many people are phone banking for Alessandra Biaggi in New York 17? I remember <laughs> her father, Mario Biaggi. Yeah. Oh, is that really? Is that Mario? Is okay. it her grandfather? Because, because grandfather, yeah. Yeah. Because I don't remember her grandfather being, he, he used to run for mayor in New York. Professor huh? Kay, do you remember Mario Biaggi? Being I definitely a, remember the name. You but, bet. but he wasn't a socialist back then. He, he was not. He was a decorated police officer okay. for, before he got into politics. Interesting life story. But um, he did go to prison <laughs> for getting finance difficulties. So we don't want to talk about him. When uh, what are her politics? Uh, Green New Deal, women's rights. Um, Is she running like in, in Nyack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she got a bit of a bad, bad, bad break around the redistricting, right? Things were looking better before. Uh, actually, she switched over to uh, challenge um, Sean Patrick Maloney. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, and, and he actually, he switched. The, the head of the DCCC. yeah. And he's taking a ton of money for himself. And I was just checking campaign finance and she's just totally um, small donor funded. Nothing. It, he's not helping her at all. Of course, it's terrible, but maybe a low turnout. It may be a low turnout and that's what we're hoping for. And so we're people powered. We're calling everybody and I'm getting a lot of uh, yeses for her. So I'm hopeful this time. So if you live in the Nyack area and you're a Democrat, uh -huh. when is the primary? August 25th? 23rd. 23rd. Yep. Couple Tuesdays from now. Uh, I always like that area, Nyack. Yeah, suffering. Are you, are you in that area? No, no, but I I, I knew somebody that uh, lived in uh, Suffern for several years. Yeah, and I, I grew up just... Well, I, I, we lived in New York for a while, but I, I grew up just south of there in New Jersey. So. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You, yeah. So anyway, if anybody has time um, or interest, um, phone banking, there's going to be a rally Saturday. I forget where it is. And if you're in that area, um, get out the vote weekend, This the next couple weekends. Lots of shifts, lots of hours. It's a great group. I invite you all. Help Alessandra. And hey. I'm probably pronouncing her name Alessandra. But anyway, thanks for thanks for calling on me. Thank never... you. And uh who do we want? Jerry Nadler or Carolyn Maloney? Ooh, Alan. Not, not Siraj Patel. Not Siraj Patel. No, no, we don't. No. He ran, there was another progressive candidate um in the last election. 
that was really good. This, uh, I forget her name, but uh, she was the progressive and he ran against her and he was like very, uh, I don't know, sleazy, I might say. He teaches business ethics at NYU. He's from Stanford and Cambridge. He's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah not, I don't think he's very ethical. I would not support him at all. But he teaches, he, if you have to teach business ethics at NYU, it tells you that you're not ethical. So who do we want, Nadler or Maloney? Uh, and, and I mean, I don't know. I suppose over time I've appreciated some of Nadler's quips more than Maloney's, but I don't know. I don't really have a strong, strong take on that one. Um, uh, you know, what's really funny about that is that 30 years ago, let's see, 30 years ago, late 90s, how many years ago? 23 years ago, not 30 years ago. 23 years ago, I was at at the DSA convention. I was a delegate. And Nadler was a speaker at that convention. And I thought, wow, that's pretty good. Congressman comes to speak to the DSA. And but now I don't know if the, what the distinction is between a lot of these people, Maloney, Nadler, mm-hmm. you know, I guess it's a choice if you like the east side or the west side of New York. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, the the tenth? Is it called the tenth? The one that Mondaire Jones is in? What are your what's your take on that, Lynn? Oh, Mondaire Jones, I I I totally support him because I I like that um, he didn't try to uh, fight it out with uh, Sean Patrick Maloney and uh, and Alessandra. So yeah, I I think he I think he's been pretty good. You know, what um, do you? Think? Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, there's uh, other candidates. I think the candidate Yulin, is that right? Who's, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Who's, who's got a lot of left support there. Yeah. Um, she wins. That. I would vote for her. That would be good. That would be. Um, but again, I, you know, I haven't disliked Mondaire. I think it's, it's just such a such a geographic leap. Yeah. I think that's not going to help him. I, I prefer I would have preferred if Maloney had stayed in his district and, and Mondaire would have held that district. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, and I think Maloney's a real villain in this. And so, yeah, yeah Biagi would be very much worth supporting. Yeah. I know, it's, politics is very uh, corrupt. <laughs> it's it's just the strategies. That now you tell me. <laughs> it's a little... But, yeah, but we, I don't know. I, I, I just, I see a lot of people in the chat that are very discouraged and pessimistic. And I, I a couple... Fridays ago, I was crying, actually, because I was feeling it hopeless myself. But then I heard a speaker talking about, uh, can I use a foul language? Like, fuck hope. <laughs> Who right. cares? Hope. What we care about is winning, trying to win, and giving it all we have, even if we lose. Why just turn it over to these, you know, right. uh, horrible politicians that right. don't care about us? So I'm fighting right. for everything and... It's all about the fight. They they want you to give up hope. I'm looking at uh, New York 12th. Nadler Mm -hmm. in an August 5th poll is leading Maloney uh, by uh, nine points. So Mm -hmm. he's up nine. And Liz Cheney is going to get clobbered next week, isn't she, by Hageman. And then they give her a cabinet post? Is that it? What? Listen, at this point, <laughs> am I wrong for rooting for Liz Cheney? Yes. 
Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's too perverse. That's so perverse a choice. I can't. Uh, knowing the Cheney family, I'm sorry. I just can't. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad she spoke up. I mean, good for her. But I'm not gonna. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not gonna spend any emotional energy on that choice. Let me run an idea past you. Okay. Bush and Cheney destroyed America. Trump will destroy democracy. Yeah. America. Yes. Let Cheney win, but it's not going to happen. America can come back from. It can't come back unless there's a democracy. And Trump is destroying our democracy. What's left? Yeah, well, that, that, that is why I said in the end I'd vote for Biden. Right. All right. Alan, I guess, dropped out. I threw him off. He was, uh, I said. Was he being, was he being. Uh, I said, he, get, he, we got into a big argument and I said, get off the show. I'm trying to be more like Alan Burke. Do you remember Alan Burke? No. Wait a <laughs> he was one of the. Alan's, uh, ba- Alan's back. Alan's back. I, all right. Internet disconnection there, so. British Marxist historians. By Can I just show that I got, the, today arrived the new the, the final cover. Oh, I don't have the, the final? No, no, you guys have, you guys got the advanced copies. Ah. Mm. Everybody yeah. go buy. Those will be collector's items someday, actually. It'd be like coins that have the wrong date on them or some upside down dates. Right. Signs too, yeah. We got to take this to softies in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else before we call it a call it? A night? Well, we didn't. I don't want to get into it, but we didn't talk about Missouri at all. Go no, ahead. Sorry, I just went, no, no. I, I, I that was God calling me home. I got I got to run. Okay. But Missouri's my home state, and I was very disappointed. Yeah, yeah. I, somebody I know who who was in a conversation with the winner. He was not a supporter. Are you talking about cunts? A guy, a, the winner is what's her name? Um, Bush? Is that her last Anheuser name? Anheuser Bush. Yeah, but who was the guy who. Kuntz. There were three. Kuntz. Uh, Kuntz. 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 Yes. The guy, uh, Spencer Toter. How's and it pronounced? Spencer Toter, Spencer Toter should have dropped out once Bush got in, and it's a shame that we can't get discipline among progressives. Spencer Toter was perfectly great to run when it was him versus Kuntz. Fine. Yeah. Hang, hang. But once it's clear that he has like 5% of the support and he's going nowhere and it's Kuntz versus Anheuser-Busch, the difference that the votes that Spencer Toter got were the difference between him and Anheuser-Busch. You're saying it was, it was Bush versus Kuntz? Hang on. Let's keep you got it. it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Can we... Uh, well we started we started on uh andy brown as uh pussy and uh yeah but mine was a lot andy you know i love you don't take anything i say as anything less than a compliment he's the candy man andy the candy man all right you know there's a lot a lot of lost fun there right that guy's last night name not making it into the senate but um you know next time maybe six fucking years of eric schmidt who by the way i think the anheuser-busch woman at, her, at their mansion, they've hosted fundraisers for Eric Schmidt. Did they yeah. really? Wow. They what? What did you say? They, in the past, there have been fundraisers for Eric Schmidt earlier in his political career at her mansion. 
I mean, it's the mansion on Grant's farm. The Anheuser Busch owns the Ulysses S. Grant's old yeah, farm. Yeah, well, what I what I what I didn't get to finish is the guy who was in a conversation with her after her victory was astounded at how dense she is. Oh yeah, horrible, unbelievable. She wouldn't debate cunts. She and her media appearances just the same was post dispatch and endorsing cunts. Dense. Just, just I, like this woman has nothing to say, she can't even answer a question straight. Yeah, and she fucking won with her own money. Well, at least Cory Bush won. Oh, and Claire McCaskill was a huge supporter of the Bush woman. Oh, I'm sure, absolutely, a corporate centrist Democrat, absolutely right. We love Cory Bush in Missouri, right? Yeah, she won handily, which is good. We love her. All right, we love. I have a daughter who lives in her district. Unless they redistricted her out, I don't know. She she is, I think, is St. Louis. She lives in St. Louis. Yes, right? uh, yeah. My other, my older daughter lives in St. Louis. Too. I uh, I think she's Corey Bush is the best, the best. Uh, everybody, go buy the British Marxist historians, FDR please, and democracy. Please go buy it. Please. I I. I really, in, I'm my retirement with this inflation desperately needs people to buy my books. Yes, please go buy the British Marxist historians, and uh, and then give to Progressive Democrats of America. Follow Harvey JK on Twitter at Harvey JK, and Alan Minsky. What's uh, Progressive at, at PD America at PD America. And um, unfortunately, while somebody had to step down from our staff to run for state assembly in Arizona, they didn't win. They were in a tough district where there were a bunch of incumbents were forced together. But that means Brianna's returning to our Twitter handle and she's brilliant at it. So PD America at PD America on Twitter. Fantastic. Thank you, Minsky and Kay. Let's Thank go. you, David. And I'll be see I'll see you next week, but I will also see you in like what? Two weeks. Two weeks. Fantastic. Yeah. We Lies. go from Minsky and K to Dave in PA. What do you got? That looks beautiful. Where'd you go? There you are. Yeah, here I am. Uh, first of all, don't kid yourself about uh, Andy Brown. He's an Aryan phrenologist. <laughs> Make no mistake. He, but the difference is he gives you the bumps on the head first before he interprets them. Yeah, he told me to bring my calipers with me, so... Anyway, yeah, made this uh, little null cap. Wow. See, it's already got the molding on the bottom. Fits into this hollow post. And this is for the staircase. Yep. Beautiful. Yep, yep. That's beautiful. Thank you. How, how do people yeah. stay at your bed and breakfast? Good money. Um, go to uh, Tiny CC, uh, Bertie's Country Cottage. Or go to uh, uh, Airbnb and in Millerton, PA, it, I think it's called Small Farm Retreat. Small Farm Retreat. Sm I, retreat. Small <laughs> retweet. Farm Retreat. <laughs> yes. Uh, on Airbnb in Millerton, Pennsylvania. That's right. We should show pictures. Yeah, check me out. Uh, check me out on Instagram at Hedro Joinery, LLC. Okay. We'll show some pictures next week. Thank you. Tight. Thank it's you. Beautiful. Have a good weekend. You too. I can't believe it's already the weekend. 
cannot believe it. Rodrigo oh in Mexico. Hi, David. Contain Hi. yourself. I know you're excited talking to me. It's a big thing. Contain. I'm very excited. Uh, I wanted to ask you to show an image I just posted on the chat. Um, last, last time I was talking about the former head of communications for the Sanders campaign, and I'm pretty sure the host of his official podcast, someone disagreed and basically said we were scared of a black woman speaking truth to power. I wanted to ask David to share an image I posted of a TV actress. Yvette Nicole uh, Brown? Yes. I used to be a big fan of her who was lying about people safely voting for Biden in the Democratic primaries and pretending Brianna was trying to suppress the vote when she asked for the Democratic primaries to be fully voted by mail. I've been posting that screenshot on her tweets for the last three years until she blocked me. All right, and so hang on. So this is Yvette Nicole Brown, March 17th, 2020. So yes. this is in the, the, the primary season. Oh, this was right before COVID. This March, was during COVID. March 17th. Right. Okay. Yes. Welp. What does welp mean? Oops. Oopsie. Yes. Joe Biden has a clean sweep. He won Arizona. This is what she writes. He won Arizona, Illinois, and Florida. Guess folks didn't listen to you. Rejoy. They safely showed up to vote en masse for Biden, which is what you feared when you came for Simone D. Sanders and tried to suppress the vote. I don't understand what this is about. This is about um, a Biden surrogate actress pretending that Brianna and the other Bernie people were trying to suppress the vote when they asked for the Democratic primaries to be fully bought by mail. And I don't want to talk too much about the personal cost to me of defending Brianna, but this actress hosted a host play competition on the sci-fi channel that I was a big fan of. So please believe me when I say I have followed Brianna and I have continued to defend her against bad faith attacks from Biden people at least until she said that Tucker Carlson was anti-establishment. Tucker Carlson, who made Ted Cruz beg and grovel for five minutes. This is the power of the anti-establishment icon, Tucker Carlson. And anyway, I know there's way too few women of color speaking truth to power, but when you refuse to give up on your icons, you end up defending the indefensible. Five or ten years from now, Brianna Joy Gray will talk Chris Hedges into going on Tucker Carlson without ever mentioning that Republicans are worse than the Democrats. And I want you to remember, not that Rodrigo was right, but that Brianna's entire value to the right consists of how many leftists she can lead down the mindering and crooked left-to-all-right pipeline. And uh, did you hear that Tulsi Gabbard is going to host... Tucker Carlson tonight, yes. tomorrow. Yeah. 
Yes. He took another unexpected vacation and one of the people who is going to take his place is Democrat Tulsi Gabbard. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the alt to left to alt right pipeline. So thank you. Great. Uh, okay. Let us call it a night. I want to thank all our guests, Professor Ben Burgess, the Hirschenfelds. Go uh, buy Ethan's book, Today Is Now. I want to thank Emil Guillermo, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the professors and Marianne. Professor Marianne wasn't here. We just had the professors. Read Annie Lee, Anne Lee over at the Daily Co's. Under the handle Annie Lee. Thank you to Professor Adnan Hussein. Listen to Guerrilla History. They've got Noam Chomsky. And listen to the Mudgeless podcast. And of course, Professor Jonathan Bick. We'll see him tomorrow night. It's almost, tomorrow is almost today. Uh, he'll be teaching Star Trek and The Twilight Zone. Minsky and Kay, pick up. Professor K's first book is being reissued, The Marxist Historians, published by Zero Books. And of course, Alan Minsky from Progressive Democrats of America. Please join me for office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I host the first hour, 90 minutes, and then the community takes over. Join our community. If you would like to attend office hours, go to my website and hit office hours. It'll take you right in or go to my website, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday and it has in it an office hours invitation. I think that covers it. We would love to have you come into our Zoom room. Go to my website to join us. Thank you to the mods in the... Uh, YouTube uh, community. I don't have their names in front of me. Today's show, as always, is produced by Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Professor Jonathan Bick, Hannah Feldman, Grace Jones, The Invisible Ninja, uh, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, and of course, Dan Frankenberger. I think that covers everything. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me. But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by 
As long as I stay healthy and I never die All I really need is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die 